Well, hello, ladies, gentlemen, and everyone listening in to this newest podcast of VORW Radio International, the voice of the report of the week. It is probably going out to the week of the 9th of April, 2023. This podcast is uh, the one that is not going out on YouTube. It is only available on the audio streaming platforms, and it is considerably longer. It features a lot of miscellaneous discussion, some of the subjects of which uh, may not necessarily be appropriate for YouTube, or, you know, it might get the show demonetized, etc. Likewise, some of the earthquake experiences aren't uh, necessarily advertiser-friendly, so uh, as a result, I had to cut so much out of this show uh, for the one on YouTube that the one going out on YouTube essentially is just the fast food experiences and nothing more, uh, whereas this is the full show with everything, so I hope it makes for an enjoyable listen. If you are tuned into this program, please note this program is not monetized and it has no advertisers at present, uh, therefore I earn absolutely nothing from this. If you are tuned in, you like what you hear, you want to support the show, and you want to hear more of it, the way you can support this program is very simple, via a donation to PayPal at V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com, or Patreon, patreon.com slash the report of the week. Likewise, I extend an open invitation for any and all listeners to tune into my international radio broadcast. It is heard twice a week, two separate programs, on the frequency of 4840 kHz shortwave, at the time of 2 a.m. Eastern every Saturday morning, and at the time of 12 o'clock midnight Eastern every Monday morning, again on the frequency of 4840 kHz, the second airing most of you would probably think of as Sunday evening. If you have any feedback for this program, any questions, comments, opinions, pieces of feedback, any topics you'd like to hear in future programs discussed, you're welcome to send in any and all feedback to the following email address, and I'll try to answer it on air in the next program that I do. And the address is as follows, V-O-R-W-I-N-F-O at gmail.com. Over the next six hours, you are bound to hear points, opinions, and views that you disagree with, that you may find offensive, that you may have vehement objection to. Understand that this is a program that is not looking to incite or instigate any sort of hatred, etc., but you may still hear things that you disagree with. I'm giving you that warning that, yes, in this next program, you will, regardless of your ideology or view, hear things that you don't like. And if you do not like that, this is your opportunity to leave, and I certainly welcome you to do that. That's why I wanted to give you that bit of a warning, a heads up, uh, just so you know what you might be in for. But again, this is not a controversial program. I do not attempt to make this controversial in any way, shape, or form. Uh, But nonetheless, if you listen long enough, you're bound to hear something that you disagree with, and... uh, You have been warned, for lack of a better word. Now, for the remainder of the broadcast, this program will be starting with a few miscellaneous emails that are read, 
Then I'll be going into some feedback about the state of fast food, its declining quality. I'll balance it out with more random feedback, then we'll get into the earthquake experiences. And following that, we'll conclude the program with more random feedback. Thank you for listening into this brief introduction, and now into the program we go. This is VORW International. So I was thinking about the best way to maybe go about all of this, because I know that there is going to be quite a lot to talk about and read in this program. So I decided what I think I'll do, because I could essentially break down all the correspondence into three distinct categories. Category one, you have the fast food responses. Category two, you have the earthquake responses. And then category three, everything else. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off with some of the random emails. After I read a few of that, we'll get into the fast food emails. We'll read all of those. Then we'll take a little bit of a break. We'll read some more random messages. Then we'll go into the earthquake ones. Then we'll finish off the show with uh, a couple more random emails. So we'll kind of have those two distinct categories with a smattering of random feedback uh, in between. So before, in between, and after, if that makes any sense. If not, it doesn't really matter. Just strap in, listen, and enjoy the show because there's a lot to cover. So with that, let's get into it. Some of these messages Really, I might not have much to say in response, but I still might read them and uh, and just get the thoughts out there. It all depends, but uh, if that is the case, don't think that it's anything against whoever sent it. Just, you know, there's some things that are more, more I have to say about than others, but that's all that there really is to it. Anthony in Arizona says, I have to say it's an absolute honor to be able to email you. I've been a fan of yours since day one from the Energy Drink Reviews down to your latest review. wanted to email you to tell you how grateful I am to know about your channel. I suffer from really bad depression and anxiety, and listening to your podcast and your videos have taken away a lot of the bad thoughts I've had in the past. I also wanted to say I own some of your merch, And it's absolutely amazing. Uh, You're amazing. Thank you for everything you do. And uh, continue to do just that. Know that I'll be a fan for life. Well, thank you, Anthony in Arizona. I really appreciate your kind words, Anthony. It means a lot. And thank you for not only being a longtime viewer and a listener... Also, though, for supporting the channel by uh, obtaining some of the merch. I appreciate your compliments as to the quality. But most importantly, beyond all of that, to me, it means a lot to know that what it is that I do here, be that at the camera or at the microphone, is able to help you through those difficult times in life. It's more than I ever would have expected, but it means a lot to to know that, and thank you, Anthony. 
This world around us and uh, life itself isn't always easy. We know it has its ups and its downs, and it's not over. It's not evenly dispersed either. But you just hang in there as best you can. I sincerely wish you the best. All right, this one was sent in before, well before the fast food quality message. So I'm just going to cover it separately. Actually, it's two things. So first, Mark is checking in with two questions. You know, you sent in the second one more recently, so I'll answer that real quick. Honestly, Mark, it's not something that I really want to talk about much, so I'm going to omit the details, I really think, to the benefit of most listening. Um, but I will briefly mention it. Uh, so you say, as a side question, if I get this in at time, you mentioned before that you had an eye injury that was too weird to talk about at the time. Are you willing to talk about it? What happened? How did they fix it? So, first and foremost, it was never fixed. It just kind of got back to normal on its own. But... Like I said, I don't want to be overly detailed here. I'll tell you this if you're listening in. If eye-related stuff bothers you, then please skip this. This was back in 2014, early 2014 at that. And uh, I was sitting there one afternoon, average day. No, um, nothing new, nothing different about the day in question. You know, uh, you see this a lot, of course. I'm sure many of you listening have done this perhaps quite frequently. I'm sure you see it on television or on movies or whatever. But, you know, I don't know if there's a specific term to describe this, but if you're kind of sitting there and maybe you're a little stressed out or whatever, so you take your hand... You kind of hold it up to your eyes, you close your eyes, and maybe you run your your thumb, maybe your index and middle finger just kind of over your eyes. You kind of just, not really squeeze them, but, you know, it's just... You see people do that all the time. I don't know why people really do that, but uh, it's just something that, you know, people do kind of rub their eye a little bit. I'm not talking allergy-wise, you know, it's just people kind of will put their hands to their face, and sometimes they might just rub their fingers through their eyebrows. Maybe it'll be over the eye itself, closed, of course. Maybe it'll just be kind of over it all and then kind of pinch the bridge of your nose. But, uh, you know, a lot of people do that to at least one extent or another. It's a pretty common thing. And uh, I had gotten in the habit my whole life of doing uh, something similar. I would not exert very much force. I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't really go crazy or anything. It was just something that I would just, I don't know, I would trained myself to do when I was kind of stressed out, that's all. There was no reason behind it. It's just one of those things. It's akin to twiddling your thumb or curling your hair or, you know, you don't even think about it. So, I wasn't even thinking about it. Uh, 
I raised my right hand, and as per usual, I essentially put my index and perhaps my middle finger over my left eye. I say this, mind you, from my perspective. So if you were looking at me, it would look like it would be... So this is my on my right hand side. All right, so middle finger and index finger over my left eye. My thumb is over my right eye. And as usual, I go in for that uh, maneuver. No big deal. I don't feel like I'm putting any pressure. And uh, I gouged my right eye out. So nothing like that has ever happened since. But mind you, I have been very careful to never do that um, maneuver with my fingers ever again either. Uh, Certainly the scariest moment of my life. And it uh, is something I hope never to experience again. Once was more than enough for me. Uh, No one cared at the time. No one, I don't know, everyone I told about it just kind of shrugged it off. They acted like they do, um, like like this happens every day or something. So no one cared. Never got it looked at beyond that point. And that was that. So, there you have it. You wanted to know, and now you know. You also ask the question, and I'm sorry to go from such a grotesque subject to one that's uh, far more lighthearted, but it's merely the nature of the situation. You ask, I recently rewatched your old JetBlue review, and you mentioned how terrible Famous Famiglia pizza was. It currently has a rating of 1.6 out of 176 reviews, so others agree. May you share that experience in more detail. So, thank you, Mark, for your questions. Well, it was five years ago, so I don't really... I can't say that it's fresh in my mind or anything like that. I just remember that it was a pizza place located at the Orlando International Airport, and I hadn't checked the reviews previously. I got to the airport early, I got through security early, I had time to kill. I was hungry, and I thought to myself, well, this looks like a New York pizza place. Some of these places can be quite underrated, and uh, they have some uh, pepperoni pizza and all that. Yeah, let's, you know, why not? I could always go for a slice. So I got a slice of their pizza. I think it had pepperoni and sausage on it, if I'm not mistaken. And I was online there. The gentleman behind the counter recognized me and he said are you the are you the report of the week i said yes indeed i am and uh, he asked if he could get a picture with me so i obliged and uh, he took a picture and uh, we had a friendly light conversation while the uh, pizza slice was being prepared i paid i got the food Everything was smooth so far. I took a seat at one of the tables nearby. It was like in a food court. And uh, I picked up 
the slice, and that's when it all went south immediately. The pizza slice had no structure to it whatsoever. If you could imagine the base of the pizza had the consistency and stability of that of a, a piece of wet paper. So as soon as I picked it up, I remember I picked up the slice with my right hand, the bottom immediately caved in because there was really nothing there. There was this microscopic layer of dough that immediately split open at the seams under the weight of the cheese, sauce, and toppings above it. And all of a sudden it split and it was like I had this tent, almost, of melted cheese and sauce and toppings drooped over my right hand, and it was burning, and the oil and grease was running down my hand like crazy. And I had to drop it immediately, and I was trying to use a napkin to get all this grease that was now almost getting to my wrist off my hand. It was really gross, you know, and I was thinking, you know, this is disgusting. So I, uh, I tried plan B, where I tried to maneuver it in such a way that I could at least try to reasonably eat the piece. I took a bite, and I remember it was bitter. It was bitter-tasting. A bitter-tasting pizza. Can you imagine that? It was like a combination of being both bitter and sour, and that was it. There was nothing rich, there was nothing flavorful, there was nothing salty, or it was bitter, and, and a little sour, too. And that was it. Those were the only characteristics to describe this. It was utterly inedible slop. And I remember looking up from that table, you know, with the realization that this is... I'd already realized this was the worst piece of pizza I have ever had in my whole entire life. I looked up at the establishment, only to see all the employees looking right back at me, because obviously the guy that recognized me, I'm sure, was telling all his co-workers there, yeah, this guy is, you know, a, a YouTuber and this and that. He's right here. He's trying this pizza I made, etc. They were all looking. I guess they were all looking to try to see if I liked the pizza or not. I just felt very uncomfortable. I decided, well, I just don't want to be disrespectful. I'm going to pretend like I have to get up and go do something and I'll take the tray with me. And as soon as I'm out of sight, I'm throwing this out in the first garbage can I can see. And then I'm going to the bathroom and I'm going to wash my hands very thoroughly. So I did, you know, I kind of faked, oh, I you know, gotta go over here, I gotta catch my flight or whatever. So I got up, walked away, threw that, that trash out, washed my hands, and uh, and that was that. I realize now... This was not a deliberate attempt to try to give me something bad. Because some people may think, oh, well, you know, the guy recognized you. Maybe he was trying to play, like, a practical joke. 
you know, I'm going to make this as bad as possible to try to get a rise out of the food review guy or something like that. But I truly believe that was not the case because over the span of years and years consistently, there is nonstop one-star reviews saying in regards to this establishment, this place should not be in business. The food quality is horrible. The staff are horrible. And there is nothing good to say. I truly believe that the individual who prepared the piece of pizza that I had genuinely believed that he was about to serve me up a delicious slice. And I think he was proud of himself and he was proud of his work. When in reality, I like pizza. I've had a lot of pizza. It's easily one of my favorite foods. This was undoubtedly the worst piece of pizza I have ever had in my entire life, bar none. Nothing else even comes close to how bad this was. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Easily the worst pizza I have ever consumed. Just a message from Aaron coming in next, saying, I'd like to specifically say that your miscellaneous videos and podcasts, especially how to find your creativity, have always been my favorites of yours. Your encouragement in videos like the one above is invaluable, I wanted to say how much I appreciate them. They give a vital nudge at times when giving up on a project or endeavor seems all too easy. Hope you're keeping well, and I look forward to your next podcast from Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. And thank you for your kind words there. You know, those how-to videos that I've done, uh, that's the least popular series of videos I've ever done on my channel. There really wasn't any interest in them. Uh, there really wasn't any demand for them. They hurt the channel in the algorithm, but the subject matter uh, is something that I felt sincerely enough about to do the videos, nonetheless. I'm glad you enjoyed them. That's really, I know, 2018 to me, which is, I think, when I did that video. Uh, would have been elated at your email because there really wasn't much that came in about those videos. And I know even now it's it's nice to know that those videos actually had a little bit of an effect. Thank you. Josh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Are you a fan of Star Wars? If so, which one is your favorite? The prequel trilogy... The original trilogy, or the sequel trilogy? I would like to hear some of your thoughts on the Star Wars films. Thank you for everything from Josh in Charlotte, North Carolina. Josh, thank you. Good question. Yeah, I like Star Wars. Uh, I'm sure this is the answer a lot of people would give these days, but the original trilogy... By far. That is uh, my answer. If I had to 
rank them, I would say the original trilogy, followed by the prequel trilogy, the sequel trilogy, I couldn't really, I just don't even care. I don't say that to try to get a rise out of anyone. I don't say that to try to uh, bring offense to to anyone or their interest. If those are your favorites, I'm fine with that. But me personally, there's just been nothing about the Disney Star Wars films that uh, has even... I just haven't really been motivated to watch any of the new ones. I've actually... It's just the motivation isn't there. To me, the Star Wars films are the original trilogy, along with the prequels, and that's it. But that's my view exclusively, and that applies exclusively to me. I'm not saying that like some people do to say as if they're making some sort of absolute definitive rule or anything like that, because I'm not. That's just how I see it, and that's all there is to it. But the Disney Star Wars films, it just wasn't... I see it that they were driven more by greed, and that's it. I have to be careful with uh, what I say about Disney because they're one of those companies that will make things difficult for you. They have already. Back in 2018, I learned the hard way, let me tell you. If uh, you say something that they don't like, they have, I truly believe anyway, they have people in the system that... uh, Oh, kind of fire, in my case, a shot across the bow. And, uh... It's essentially their way of saying... Be careful. Because I made a video back then criticizing them. And I know that what happened after that was not coincidence. But it is what it is. Obviously, the sequel films have been enormously profitable. And uh, they certainly have their supporters and their detractors. But the original trilogy, by far, my favorites. The prequels, I'm all right. The sequels, I I just... uh, I, I can't say I really feel any way about them. If you like them, you like them. If you don't, you don't. So thank you there for your question. And this next question is coming in from Taylor. Do you listen to radio dramas at all? Welcome to Night Vale is always a staple in our house, but I've recently discovered a few older shows and hope to find more. Thank you for what you do, and take care. So thank you, Taylor, for your question. You know, this might be a surprising answer, but I really don't listen to radio dramas. Uh, That might seem odd, but I I don't, actually. So, I know that's not the answer you probably would have expected. 
If you have any recommendations, feel free to send them over, but no, I, I actually don't listen to any at present, so I, I haven't any recommendations, but thank you for your question. Mr. Byrne is checking in. I was wondering what your thoughts on furries are. Why are people able to come out of their shells so easily when behind a mask? I, I don't understand the uh, context of uh, the question you're asking. Furries? Those are the people that dress in the fur suits, right? I, I just don't know enough uh, to answer that in any capacity. And I feel that if I were to answer that question in any way, uh, shape, or form, it would be foolish of me to do so because I'd be talking about something I know nothing about. So I can't speak on that matter because there's really nothing that I know. Uh, I, I am aware, I believe anyway, that the, the uh, furry community and culture uh, I know sometimes is portrayed as a sexual fetish and uh, I would assume it has those aspects to it uh, but I also am under the the impression that that is not the exclusive purpose thereof but I uh, I just don't know enough to say anything definitive that right then and there is the uh, the scope of my understanding and that's all that I could really say I should say, though, that I think in general terms, any sort of mask or costume, it could be something as simple as a COVID or a, a medical mask or whatever, a pair of sunglasses, it could be a full-blown costume, uh, could even be certain outfits or certain makeup, you name it. It could serve as a bit of a barrier to the world, and as a result, having that barrier in place can uh, uh, allow it allow for, I should say, an individual to express themselves in a much more comfortable manner. I know in my case, I don't like being recognized. I don't really like being seen at all. So at a minimum, if I go outside, I'll usually have sunglasses on. I know that doesn't change all that much, but it prevents people from being able to look at me directly into the eye. And as a result, having that barrier in place gives me a sense of protection in the mental sense, that is. And it allows for a slight increase in comfort, I suppose, with being out in the world. Because I don't like being looked at in the eye, generally. It's a uh, by, by strangers, especially. I mean, look, if it's someone that I know, I, I, it doesn't matter. That doesn't bother me. But it's when strangers look me in the eye. I just don't like that. So having sunglasses on, it's just nice because I know that they're looking at the sunglasses. They're not staring into my soul or anything like that. And that helps. But... I could only speak in terms of my uh, personal situation. Brady is checking in, said, 
Will you do an unboxing video of the 100k subscriber plaque if you hit 100k subscribers on the podcast channel? So thank you, Brady, for your question. I don't know. That was really something that I hadn't even thought about. I don't even think I would even ask for the plaque for the channel. It's just... I guess I'm just not really one to, uh... I'm just not one to really care for accolades, personally. It's like the, um... You know, the one million subscriber plaque is, uh, sitting inside of a closed cardboard box collecting dust. It's sitting in the corner of a storage room as is the 100k plaque for the main channel. And uh, I really, I haven't looked at them since I received them, and then I put them in a box, and uh, and there they have remained. So I just don't really, I just don't do anything with them. So the thought actually hadn't even occurred to me to even ask for a 100k plaque. The thought just hadn't, uh, again, hadn't even came to me. But I suppose it's possible. I know I did an unboxing of, uh, of one back in 2017, I suppose it was. But, uh... No, I haven't even, haven't even thought about it. Thanks for the question, Brady. It was one of those things that was way in the back of my mind that I had uh, totally forgotten about, actually. So... Good question. Thank you, Brady. Ryan in Brisbane, Australia. Been a listener for a few years now. You mentioned in a video once that you write short stories, and I was wondering if you publish these stories anywhere, or if you just keep them to yourself. Would love to know more about them. Keep doing what you do. So thanks, Ryan. Or thanks, uh, Rylan. I'm sorry. Sometimes I mess up the names. I apologize for getting your name wrong initially. It's one of those instances where I see the combination of letters in my mind just assumes that it was Ryan, but it was actually Rylan. Sorry I got it wrong. I know it's no fun to have someone butcher your name, and I I apologize. Anyway, thank you, though, for your email. Nice to have you as a listener. Uh, The stories that I I wrote, uh, many of them were written years ago, are uh, ones that I'm just not going to publish anytime soon, at least. I might work on them if I have the motivation to do so. Lately, I, I haven't really. But I might get back into the swing of things, but I, I haven't any immediate goal or aspiration to publish anything of any nature anytime soon. So uh, I've no I have no goal to do any of that. Some of the stories that I wrote were uh, written years ago when I was in a very different frame of mind. And some of those stories, I do not think I am even in the capacity to complete. Because the frame of mind, and I personally will interject, I think this is for the better, that I am in now does not match the one I was in when I originally wrote some of those stories. So, it's one of those things I think would be better left unfinished in some cases. Uh, Some of the stories, looking back, the writing is very remedial. You know, it's very, uh, 
it's coherent, but it's not. It reads like something that, you know, an inexperienced high schooler would write, and that's about it. And essentially, that's what I was when I wrote some of these. So it pretty much is uh, par for the course. And uh, I know they could certainly be heavily edited and tweaked a bit and livened up somewhat, etc. It would be a lot of work. I would just have to be really motivated to do it, I suppose. And quite frankly, I think if I want to get back into writing, which is not something I am opposed to, uh, by all means, I'd be happy to get back into it again. But I believe that if I do get back into writing, I think my best choice as I see it, uh, would be to start anew and create new stories completely as opposed to expounding on past material. But that's just my opinion. But this is all conjecture at this point. I have no plans on doing anything. I'm just saying going forward, if I decide to, that's probably the course I would take. Thank you for your question. Bill is checking in and just said, I know you mentioned in your shortwave broadcast that you have no way of knowing how many people are listening in at any given time. In your opinion, what percentage of listeners are listening via terrestrial shortwave, and what percentage are listening via a streaming service? So thank you, Bill. That's a good question that you ask. And... What I decided to do, because really, I I didn't have that answer in uh, absolute terms. The numbers change constantly, but what I wanted to do was I wanted to uh, try to give you a percentage, at least based on the last radio show that I did, which was on Monday. Sunday night for some, Monday morning for me. And I compiled the number of emails that came in, and then I decided to sort through them as to whether or not it was mentioned explicitly uh, that the listener was tuned in online or on a shortwave radio. And any emails that did not mention the means of listening were excluded and were not counted because I had to be exact, the ones that I'm very definitive about. So the numbers are in, and this is at least, I'd say, I'd say this is a good representation because the amount of correspondence that came in uh, for this particular show seemed pretty average. So I would say, while there would be some fluctuations, this is a pretty good representation. So, of the feedback that came in for the broadcast, 85.3% of emails received were from listeners tuning in on physical shortwave radios. So 85% of listener response is from uh, listeners tuning in on a shortwave radio. 14.7% were from listeners tuning in Uh, streaming, be that on their phone, on their computer, etc. So again, 85% listening on an actual shortwave radio, 
14.7% streaming, be that on their phone, on their computer, etc., listening online. So, in my case, the vast majority of listeners are still reached via physical radio, which is why I continue to invest in shortwave broadcasting, because the numbers, at least in my case, for what it is that I do, suggest very strongly to me that it is still an effective means of reaching a mass audience. I cannot say that that statement is truthful as a generality, but in my particular case, in terms of the specific show that I do, VORW, Radio International, then that technology indeed is effective and is by a long shot the primary means upon which listeners receive my broadcast even when alternatives are available. So as a result, being that it's not even close, I am continuing the shortwave broadcasts for the foreseeable future, and I see no reason whatsoever to curtail or discontinue any of the broadcasts that I have, especially those to North America, because as you could see the numbers themselves, the percentages, I would say, are a pretty accurate representation. It's not like it's 60-40 or 50-50. I mean, you've got 85% almost to 15%. When it's such a disparity like that, then it would be foolish of me to uh, stop any shortwave broadcasts at this point because I think they're still effective, they still reach the remaining audience across North America, and uh, that's how most people listen to the show. So I feel like the numbers uh, speak for themselves. Thank you, Bill, for your question. Peter in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, writes... Regarding your question about the future of fast food, I think it will be around for the foreseeable future. Yes, prices are high, and less people are working, but I think fast food is certainly ingrained in the American culture and has spread to other regions of the world as well. Try not to think of it from the perspective of a single individual. Many... Busy families rely on the fast food run to keep their families going through numerous activities, school, commutes, etc. I feel like parents have less time to cook these days, which is a great shame, but it is a byproduct of our busy society. On a personal note, I enjoy taking my two children to McDonald's because they love the play place. They are young enough to consider it as a magical visit akin to that of a playground. During the winter months, the McDonald's Play Place has been a great place for them to get their energy out when an outdoor park is not feasible. I don't find the fast food quality to be as bad as you seem to experience. However, prices are definitely up and service is generally slower. I will usually not purchase fast food without using a deal 
on the chain's phone app. I am perhaps gullibly impressed with the amount of deals the apps do provide. Peter in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Thank you, Peter. I wanted to read your email first because pretty much every other email, uh, aside from yours, is uh, going to go against the grain of what you brought up. Uh, But it is interesting that your experience with fast food is generally positive in comparison to uh, mine. And, uh, no, I, I agree that it certainly is, for better or for worse, a part of, uh, society. I just wish, and I don't have a problem with that, I just wish that considering that, these places then would, uh, realize that and almost take pride in that and, uh, strive to serve, uh, even the quality food that they did years ago. Chris in Atlanta, Georgia... Here's a classic fast food memory for you. I was in high school when the original Pizone came out from Pizza Hut. It was fantastic back then. I had the new ones recently, and they pale in comparison. And yes, I think the quality will get worse. Smaller amounts of the ingredients that people want, less pepperonis on the pizza, less cheese. I think the powers that be want us eating trash until we are sick. Not to cook our own meals, everything delivered. Chris, in Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah, I remember the original Pizone from Pizza Hut. What year did that... What year is that released? That had to have been the 2000s, right? Yeah, the original one was something special for sure. Thank you. For your thoughts. Melinda writes, I generally agree with you that many fast food places have a diminishing quality over the decades. One particular chain that comes to mind is Wendy's. In the 90s, I recall enjoying Wendy's and finding it a bit of a step above other fast food joints. And I have a distinct memory of my mother giving me allowance to eat in the mall food court during a school trip, and feeling a sense of excitement and maturity that I could get an adult meal with a frosty. Take that with a grain of salt, though, as I grew up in Indiana. With time, however, I felt Wendy's food is just not as good. I was unhappy when they changed the fries, usually had an order issue, and found myself waiting for a long time even if the location wasn't that busy. At this point, I don't even bother going and haven't been to Wendy's in a long time. As for most fast food chains' end goal, I think it's basically the same as every corporation's goal these days. Make the maximum amount of money with the lowest amount of effort possible. The cheapest ingredients with the lowest legal salaries for their employees doing all the hard work. Fast food chains slowly creep in smaller portions or cost increases until consumers realize it and stop coming. Chains respond to the drop in profit, the only thing they'll ever respond to, do some hand-waving and temporary rollbacks, and once the cash starts flowing in again, do it all over. Rinse and repeat. 
those chains that don't catch on to this song and dance go under. So thank you, Melinda, for your thoughts, and, uh, yeah, Wendy's definitely used to be better, and I actually have a similar uh, view of them that for a while I always imagined them as being, let's say compared to McDonald's or Burger King, uh, the better of them uh, in terms of quality, etc. So I, I, I see it the exact same way. That's how it was for me. I remember there used to be a standalone Wendy's that I would go to in the early 2000s, and uh, they had the sunroom and everything, and it was just nice. It was good quality, quality experience as well. And, uh, you know, these days when I go to Wendy's, I have to wait forever and a day, and uh, the food quality is uh, very subpar. And the establishment upon which I received the horrible food poisoning was a Wendy's. It's a shame. It is uh, essentially how the mighty have fallen. It's disappointing. Jim in Chula Vista, California. I really like this one. Uh, I like that... I know you can't see this as a listener, but he uh, took the time to actually write a physical letter out and then photographed it and sent me that and, uh... There's just something about that. I I appreciate that, that you actually took the time and effort to to do that. Uh, That's really nice to see, so I just want to commend you on that. It's uh, it's unique, but appreciated. Now, you're right. Dear John, I would love to hear your review of those one-serving pecan pies. Have you seen those things? They look like pocket-sized versions of the regular pie. You could find them for sale at gas stations, liquor stores, and now I even find them at Whole Foods stores like Sprouts. I first fell in love with these little tasty treats when I was a kid. I used to heat them in the oven, this was before the microwave oven, and wash them down with a glass of milk. So delicious. There are a number of brands of these, and price varies depending on where you get them. And that's why I think you and many of your viewers and listeners might find a review of Pocket Pecan Pies interesting. I've only recently become a fan of your show. I love it. So thank you, Jim, in California. And uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've seen those. I'm not sure where it was where I saw it, if it was at a supermarket years ago, or if more recently, perhaps, it was at a gas station, but I know exactly what you're talking about. I don't think I've ever had them, but I've seen them. And I actually remember that my curiosity was piqued. And I remember thinking, this looks interesting. I wonder what it tastes like. So, at a minimum, If I don't do a review of it formally, it's definitely something that I'm going to personally try, and I'd be certainly happy to give my uh, opinion thereon in a a future broadcast. But, you never know, a review might be uh, interesting as well, because I would have to wager I'm not the only person to have that sort of curiosity 
when I see them. So thank you for the suggestion. And uh, again, thank you for putting uh, the time and effort into actually writing a real letter. It really, it stands out to me. Zach in Birmingham, Alabama. Regarding your discussion question on the reasons behind the dramatic decline in fast food quality, I have to admit this topic is very much something I can't relate to. Because, in truth, I don't consume a lot of fast food, especially when it comes to the brands you frequently consume and that leave you disappointed or frustrated. I have never been to Taco Bell or any pizza chain. When I do partake, it is usually McDonald's out of pure convenience. However, based on my discussions with the local food store owner I talked to when I worked at my neighborhood pizza place, whose ingredients were much higher quality, the overall price of mass-produced food goods is going up and putting a strain on price metrics. While usually a huge company like Taco Bell could take the hit and still make a profit, it is clear that their primary concern is to generate the highest amount of profit possible. Thus, it is my guess that these companies are changing their suppliers to compensate for the price change. And as a result of these lower costs, the quality of the ingredients decreases as well. You would think that because of this dip in food quality, you would lose more customers and thus negate the savings, but according to most of these fast food companies, their profits are in fact increasing, some even by close to 10%. So I guess that now more than ever, the financial strategists at these companies understand that the point of their service is convenience over quality. This is all speculation, but it lines up with the trend in other major industries, like the recent news about rail transportation, that the quality of a company's product will inevitably decline over time as they work without oversight and only drive up to increase and only drive to increase profit margins every quarter. I believe the quality of ingredients will continue falling until raising them is the only thing that will drive up profit margins, which could easily never happen in a hyper-consumerist culture such as ours. Then again, based on your videos, you may live in an area that's hit the worse with the quality decline, since you run into so much garbage and your experience is an outlier. But the same could be said for me in the opposite manner, since I haven't really run into these problems. Stay healthy and have a good day from Zach in Birmingham, Alabama. Good points that you raised. This listener writes, The quality of all fast food has dropped off dramatically. Not to sound old, but prices have also raised dramatically. Little Caesar's lunch combo jumped over a dollar. Burger King used to have almost decent deals, especially if you used their coupons. Well, they have eliminated most of the coupons and increased their prices on most items 75 cents to a dollar or more. I exclusively eat microwaved food at home. I live within a quarter mile of a Burger King. Two Junior Whoppers and two small fries for $4 was a deal and a treat. I didn't have to cook. Now, 
I think the price has jumped to the mid five dollars before tax in a very short time. No thank you. Plus, the quality has dipped significantly. I don't think I've been to a Burger King in six months. I used to frequent at least once a month, probably more. My other fast food complaint is trying to figure out what's on special without using the app. I refuse to download apps, I know I'm weird. Because of this, I spend most of my restaurant money at three locally owned small businesses. The food quality is significantly better, the prices are reasonable. Shout out to the Chicken Basket in Anderson, South Carolina. I enjoy your show and I appreciate your time, so thank you for writing in. And that's a good point about Burger King, both the price rise as well as the quality decrease. But likewise, I understand what you mean in terms of refusing to download apps. That's how I am, too. I understand that having a smartphone, apps are what they are, but I don't like the fact that all that I'm doing is selling out my soul, my data, my information to some greedy corporation and uh, to download their spyware that they'll sell everything out, they'll watch me, who knows what backdoor programs they'll put in. No thank you. I'd prefer not to. Which is why if I could avoid it, I too avoid apps. I just don't like them in general. I don't like how they bombard you with nonsense. Some of them they make quite confusing. They are so insistent. So even though I know that some people will find that ridiculous, in today's day and age, I just can't help but feel that way. Some people I know will say that it's unjustified, uh, but like I said, it's just how I feel and <laughs> I can't help it. Whether it makes much sense or not, but I know exactly where you're coming from. I don't really think anyone's going to complain. There's two emails, one that's food related and one that's not, that uh, are on the shorter side. I'll just get to those, and then we'll get into more explicit uh, decline emails. I am so happy. This comes in from Matthew in uh, British Columbia, Canada. I am so happy they just released the Chicken Big Mac at McDonald's here in British Columbia, although I have not tried it yet. My girlfriend and I are huge fans of you on YouTube. I was wondering if you were going to put out a review of the McDonald's Chicken Big Mac. Best regards. So thank you, Matthew and company, for the review suggestion. So, it's an interesting concept, and it's one that actually surprises me that hasn't been done before. Unfortunately, at least in terms of the official item, I... I'm unable to do a review, believe it or not, because this is an item that is only available in Canada. And being that I'm here in the United States, I uh, would be unable to, to try it as it's not formally available. Uh, but from the looks of it, anyway, the picture seems to imply that the uh, chicken patties are of similar quality, maybe not identical, but at least quite similar to the uh, chicken that you could find on their McChicken sandwich. Uh, 
the other components look the same. Uh, the secret sauce, the lettuce, the uh, buns, the cheese, and all the other toppings. But it seems to me like the chicken is equal to that of what would be what would be on the McChicken sandwich uh, within the Big Mac toppings. So take that into account and understand that the quality of the chicken may not be equal to that of what you may have on uh, one of McDonald's premium chicken sandwiches. So just take that into account, but it seems like it would still be an interesting novelty. I'd be curious as to how the uh, sauce would work with the chicken. That would be interesting. Jennifer is checking in. She writes, Hi, John. Been listening to the podcast for a while. I checked out some old broadcasts from the 1920s. Do you think you may be a reincarnation of a radio broadcaster from a time past? I know you probably won't read this since you have millions of subscribers, but I adore you and everything you post or broadcast. Hope you respond as I think you may be from the past. Even if you don't respond, thank you for helping so many people. Well, thank you, Jennifer, for your kind words, and uh, I'm pleased to say that despite the volume of feedback that comes my way, uh, I'm right here at the microphone right now, uh, getting to your email. I certainly try to get to whatever I can in each program of mine. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting question that you asked, and it's not the first time that a question like that has been directed my way. You know, in the end, I'll say this to, to give a serious answer first. I've never had any sort of distinct past life uh, experiences, so by that, there's no sort of... Because I know sometimes as far as past lives and uh, reincarnation and all of that, some people will say that they get a distinct memory or feeling, etc. They might think, you know, I think I was a soldier in my past life, and they have all these memories where they feel a certain way around certain things, etc. But uh, in my case, I don't have anything like that. But who's to say that we haven't been around before, and we only remember our current existence, and then when we pass away, the slate gets wiped clean, and then we just go to a new a new host, a new body, etc., and start anew. You know, who's to say that doesn't happen? I don't know. You have these people out there that think that we know everything and can explain everything and have the answer for everything, but... I've become a lot more open-minded, and I realize, you know, that while humanity has made great strides in terms of progress, technologically, etc., to pretend that we have the answers for everything is utterly foolish and idiotic. So who's to say? There's just so much that we don't know. And I think it's all right to say that, too. That, you know, who knows? because there's so much up in the air at this point. So thank you for your question and for your kind words. 
as well. I took a uh, brief break. Now I'm back at the microphone again. It might seem silly to uh, go over these sorts of things, but I know as a listener it really is irrelevant since it all gets edited together again by the time you're hearing this. But I guess in my case it makes it easier for me to put everything together and... I don't know, it just helps establish chronology of certain things, etc. So... Picking up where I left off... Again, I'm sure this sounds silly because there was no time jump on your end, but I believe that I read a few random emails and then was going to get back to those about the fast food. So that precisely is what I'm about to do. Isn't it, isn't it weird? And this is how it is for me, that's why I even remark about this. That I don't even... I don't even organize things, I just plug the microphone in, get it set up, and I hit record. And I haven't even... lined everything up, I don't know. Anyway. It's no big deal, here we go. I found some fast food decline... emails, so let's get into it. Start here. And this is an interesting one. Comes from a listener in Lithuania. And I might get the name wrong, but I'm going to try my best. Martinas, I believe. From Lithuania. Since I live in Europe, it is very possible that my experience with the fast food industry is much different compared to what is going on in the US. From what I've seen, the fast food quality varies with each establishment. I will give a few examples based on my personal opinions and experiences. McDonald's, I believe, is currently worse than before. It used to be the golden standard of fast food to me, but now most of their sandwiches are really dry, they all taste the same. Food from Burger King, which opened the first restaurant in Lithuania a few years ago, is overpriced and tastes average. As in, I don't remember the taste of what I've just eaten kind of average. Their mozzarella sticks are awesome, but for some reason they no longer sell garlic sauce, which used to go very well with the sticks. Hessburger is quite popular, but it is a Baltic States exclusive fast food chain, which I find to be really good at the moment. I used to hate it because their sandwiches were so full of sauces that everything that's between the buns used to slide out of the burger onto the tray, but now that issue seems to be fixed. Prices are really good, and they frequently do new releases that are pretty high quality compared to other establishments. KFC's quality has been yeah, kind of the same as far as I remember, and that is a good thing because it's one of my favorite fast food chains. Based on all of this information, I see no overall trend because each establishment is in a different situation, so therefore, 
I can't really say where the fast food industry is heading, but I'm just hoping for the best, so thank you. Martinas in Lithuania, it's really nice to hear from the international listeners. You give some good perspective, I feel, on uh, the state of things over there. It's interesting how uh, for you it varies really from location to location. Though I will say here in the U.S., and this is not absolute by any means, but what I've noticed is that some of the, the, the chains that do a better job are some of those regional chains. So, you know, in the U.S., you have the different parts of the country. So you have the South and you have the West Coast, you have the Northeast and the Midwest and all of that which, uh, given the size of things, can be quite large. But uh, some of those chains that are just available in a region or two seem to be some of the best, which is interesting. So thank you for your thoughts. C.R. Fox with a few thoughts. I share the same experiences where the big fast food chains are indeed declining in quality, and I actively avoid them for that reason. But the more boutique chains are skyrocketing in price, leaving me with seemingly no options. Fast food workers are often demonized for the decline in service and food quality. Unfortunately, the giant companies who run the fast food chains are more than happy to have their workers be the scapegoats for the consequences of their greedy practices. These companies make the food as cheaply as possible to the point where they have to sell us on the fact that it's made with no fillers and real cheese, all the while paying their food workers a fraction of a living wage. People who are taken care of have the energy to do a good job, and food service workers are rarely taken care of, no matter how expensive of a restaurant they may be working in. I think things will continue to get worse as inflation causes even more stress for the class of people who keep our fast food establishments running. Until our society is more equitable, things likely will not improve. Thank you for the great show. Hope 2023 has been treating you so well. Treating you well so far. There we go. Thanks, CR Fox, for your thoughts there. I don't know if that playing field is ever going to uh, to even out, and uh, and let's just say in a hypothetical situation that you actually had the ability to level the playing field, let's say legislatively. I don't think they'd allow it. I think that. There are entities out there that would take any means necessary to uh, ensure that doesn't happen. Any means necessary. That's a, that's another reason why I'm pessimistic. I think if someone who uh, you know could actually be, and you could take this any way you want, if someone came along who could actually be the change for the better... Would they even let it happen? I don't think so. I just don't think so. I think that the dynamic that we see at play, 
you know, you might say, well, what if you got enough people, right? But that's the thing, there never will be. Because do you realize the media and social media and all that can be easily controlled? I mean, it already is. It just, it's not going to happen. I don't want to say that definitively. Look, maybe I'd like to be wrong, but... I guess I'm just trying to say I'm not optimistic. But I make that clear time and again. All right. Next... All right, this one comes in from Herbert, who says, My first job ever was in the early 80s at a Burger King in Anaheim, California, and I was maybe 13 or 14. I remember that there was a constant striving for quality and customer service, from the owners stopping by to check things out, and management... They were all very interested in the quality and service. We were constantly reminded about it. It was in the forefront of our minds to work consciously and give the customer a good experience. These things do not happen overnight. It happens as a gradual slipping away, and the process of it actually goes almost unnoticed until one day... You get a horrible chicken taco, and you can't believe another human being would serve to you this. And you pound your hand on your head and ask yourself, how could this possibly happen? This item is so bad, you could actually smell that it's bad, and see that it's bad, and you're baffled as, again, how someone could have the audacity to sell and serve such a thing. Or regarding service, a similar scenario, does this person understand that I'm giving them good money for this stuff? I didn't come here to claim a prize from a bingo ticket or a raffle. I am a paying customer. Because of me, you get a paycheck, and you can pay your bills. But it would seem that they do not see it this way. It's really, they see it the other way around, that they are doing you a favor to roll you a burrito or make you a burger. Either that, or is there's just a likelihood that many are just oblivious, completely unaware of what they are doing or not doing. And when you complain, they are either genuinely dumbfounded and that perhaps you are not completely in your right way. You go to the restroom on your visit and it's horrible and you wonder, how can that be? The floor is horrible. How can this happen? Trash is bulging from the waste baskets. What the heck is going on here? And you complain and you receive this look of genuinely dumbfounded. What do you mean? I, I don't understand it. Let's face it, $15 is a lot to pay for a fast food combo meal. Two people go out, and the ticket is likely going to be over $20. The food isn't cheap anymore at most places, but the quality and service have, in many cases, gone down. So again, you ask yourself, how can this happen, that I'm paying more and the quality and service is less, as well as the bathroom being filthy and the dining room being horrible. So again, it doesn't happen overnight. It just slips and slips away. Complacent managers, owners or higher management not present, or as well, complacent. But there are still those doing a great job. Not all is horrible. 
but it would seem almost half or more have some issues. And believe me, that people pay attention enough to these details to know. Why do you think the lines at Chick-fil-A or In-N-Out Burger are often wrapped around the corner with double lines? These places are making tons of money and taking business away from the horrible places because they pay attention to customer service and quality. That's my review of it, review bra. Comes down to management, probably, because employees, they can be trained to do things correctly if they have the right management. Anyway, it is what it is, but I always hate it when you get ripped off or get bad food and have to deal with it because you seem like a good dude. Thanks for keeping on from Herbert. So thank you, Herbert, for your thoughts there. Very well put, if I may add. And personally, I think that you're your statement about things just gradually slipping away and, you know, things not happening overnight, to be honest, you could take that same train of thought, in my opinion anyway, and apply it to many of the problems that we see in the world, in society, looking around us, and you could say the exact same thing. And I think you'd be right on the money. Not, you know, for everything, but there are a lot of things where that same thing most definitely applies. But back over to fast food, I agree. Now, especially in my neck of the woods, Chick-fil-A is, uh, is the best. I'm a Chick-fil-A fan. I like them. And, uh, I think very highly of them as a chain. And they seem to be one of the few that despite everything you've seen in terms of quality and all of that, they remain, they, they remain true to, to their service, their quality, and you are absolutely right. The customers know it because I've been to a good number of Chick-fil-A's and, uh, I look at them, yeah, especially during lunchtime, but really any time of day, and there is a line, a large line at that. But here's the other thing. They have it down logistically. So, and I'm sure you've, many of you have been there, and there's the long line, but what do they do? They keep it moving. So you're not going to be sitting there for 50 minutes wrapped around this building, barely moving. They keep things going in and out, and they do an excellent job, they have good service, a good product. For all of those reasons, that's why I'm still a, uh, a regular customer of theirs. I like what they do, and I like their product, and uh, if I happen to be in the mood for a chicken sandwich, odds are I'll get it from Chick-fil-A. And, alright, here's another thing about Chick-fil-A that I like. And this is one of the few places that I could actually say this about. I essentially like their entire menu. Pretty much every single thing on their menu, you really can't go wrong with. Now, that's just my opinion. That only applies to me. But it's all good to me. I mean, you've got their regular chicken sandwich. That's great. The spicy chicken sandwich is awesome. You've got their... Uh, 
chicken nuggets. Those are great. All the sauces, outstanding. The uh, waffle fries are excellent as well. Their shakes are great. Even those premium deluxe. All right, the only thing that I really am not a huge fan of are some of the grilled nuggets, but that's about it. But otherwise, a lot of the deluxe sandwiches, totally fine. And in the breakfast, hash browns are good. Chicken biscuits are good. The chicken minis are good. Good service, decent price. I mean, they, they are a chain that gets it right. And I just hope that they realize that. I have a feeling that they have. But I hope they realize that. And I hope they realize and understand we've got a good thing going right now. Let's not squander it. Andrew in Illinois. I was thinking about your question regarding the decline of fast food at places. And I thought maybe yours and other people's hindsight bias may have been to blame for the perceived decrease in quality of the food. Perhaps it was just a change in palate over the years. Many younger people like sugary drinks, candy, junk food, etc., but then as they get older, they have different tastes. But then I gave it some more thought, and I remembered the popular trend of impossible burgers and plant-based foods being promoted at many different fast food chains in recent years. I'm not a vegetarian, but if I was, I could see the appeal to have this type of item available at the restaurant. But I was always suspicious as to how they could create a sandwich that tasted so similar to meat, and even looked like meat, while allegedly being made of plant material. I then saw an interesting video about plant-based meats, and how they are not as healthy as we might have been led to believe. In the video, it explains that many of the companies that are producing these imitation meats have been producing them at a much lower cost and have been selling them at the same price as regular meat for a huge profit. Soybeans, a cheap and easily accessible grain, are being genetically modified to contain a molecule found in animal blood called heme, that's H-E-M-E, might have been hem, but I'll say heme, kind of like hemoglobin. Uh, this is to give the food a meat-like flavor. The video also goes on to show studies of how the chemicals that they use in the synthesization of this blood molecule have been shown to cause cancer in mice and have neurotoxins. point I'm trying to make is that if these massive companies like McDonald's, Burger King, Taco Bell are able to create synthetic or lab-grown meat at a significantly lower cost, or the same, or even higher profit, then it would make sense, from an economic standpoint, to explore what other items on their menu that they could apply this process to. The technology and the methods that go into this process will only advance even further in years to come, it might even come to a point where the entire industry's success will be built on automation. Machines making synthetic food. Picture the McDonald's being scaled down to something like an advanced vending machine, where you walk in, put your order on the screen, a robot will make your food-like product, thereby completely eliminating 
the need for paying cooks and cashiers. There was a SpongeBob episode like this where the Krabby Patties were being made of this gray sludge, and everyone kept eating it until they found out how it was made to interject. <laughs> you even included a screenshot from that episode. Yes, I, I remember that. That was... Uh, I always felt at the time that that was a... Uh, they were kind of playing on those... Uh, like family-style restaurants, you know, like the... Applebee's, Chili's, Friday's, those types of places. That's that's the impression that I got back then, anyway. Continuing. If more fast food companies started using synthetic meat, they could see a huge increase in profit, but of course it would depend on the public's response to such a change. While many people would be against the idea, I could see many people being indifferent to this, as they would just argue... Fast food isn't supposed to be healthy, so what does it matter anyway? Especially if there's no discernible difference in taste or appearance. I mean, just look at all of the questionable chemical ingredients that go into a Big Mac already. I'd imagine that the companies would make the change under the pretense that they're committed to reducing their carbon footprint, so they're switching to healthier and more sustainable plant-based meats. We always hear about the negative impact that the meat industry has on the environment, it's becoming more and more often that we hear we should cut out the meat to curb greenhouse emissions. This would garner a lot of support from environmentalists. Overall, I think more synthetic food is going to be made normalized. I mean, how often is it already that you see labels on products that say things like made with real fruit or, or real cheese? Food shortages and profits will be the main drivers for this sort of thing in the future. As far as insects in food, well, who knows, maybe one day we can get Bug Burger with a spooky black bun from Burger King. I'm a regular listener to the podcast, enjoy the videos for many years. I commend you for your dignified attitude you bring to the platforms, and you have my full support from Andrew in Illinois. P.S. There's a movie that came out in 1973 called Soylent Green, which actually takes place in the year 2022, where there is overpopulation, pollution, and food shortages. Much of the impoverished population consumes something called Soylent Green, which later turns out to be made of people. A bit too dramatic for that to actually happen, but... It was just something I made the connection on while researching the topic of synthetic food. Also thought it was interesting that it takes place in our current time where food shortages are very real. Thanks, Andrew. Illinois checking in. I could see that. More artificial meat and all of that coming to be. You know, I, I'm not a fan of all of that. I say, look, it's up to you if uh, if you want to eat the uh, Beyond Meat or the Impossible Meat or, you know, this, that, or the other thing. That's fine. I mean, look, it's a product, and uh, you have the ability to use your discretion as a consumer to control what you eat and what you want to eat. Look, I don't care. If you want to have... I don't know if this is a real thing or not, but I'll give an example. You know, if you want to have the impossible bacon over the real bacon, 
What do I care? It's, it doesn't affect me any. It doesn't matter. It's there. It's on the market. If you've got the means to get it, like I said, I couldn't care less. Reason I don't like it personally is uh, there's something about it that just doesn't sit well with me. And I, I mean that in both the metaphorical and the literal sense. When all this stuff came out in uh, 2019, you know, it was really hyped up and all of that. And I'll tell you what, sometimes when you see these things in society, it's like certain things, it's not said aloud, but I'll just say this, as someone online that, you know, does this stuff with social media, there are certain things that it's unspoken, but it's essentially expected of you. And uh, these days, I couldn't care less anymore. It's, you know, I, I just don't care at this point in time. Couldn't give a damn. But uh, there was a time, even as recent as uh, 2019, where I still remained impartial, but at the same time, I kept in the back of my mind... It's kind of like, you know, it's like, you could do whatever you want, but there's going to be these mafia guys in the corner kind of saying, you know what to do. They're not going to explicitly say do this or that, but, you know, you put two and two together, and uh, and you could figure it out real quick. So, I knew that in the end the burger was going to be what it was. I'm specifically referencing the first lab-grown, you know, alternative uh, item I ever tried, the Impossible Whopper from Burger King, I knew it was going to be whatever it was. And uh, if it was bad, I'd say it. But at the same time, I just felt like I kind of had to hype it up a bit. And uh, admittedly, I gave it a good review because indeed, it tasted exactly like a Whopper. I mean, there was something... It was indistinguishable. I could tell texturally that it wasn't a regular Whopper that they gave me by mistake, but taste-wise, it was very similar. But, you know, that benefit that I lauded in the review, because I really... I don't think most people would care, but to me, personally, was more of a drawback than a benefit. That was the first thing that just was... I just wasn't a fan of it. Because it was... It was too realistic. It was like... It it was like eerily... Similar, if that makes any sense. So that just bothered me. You know, to know that it's... I don't know. The other thing that bothered me more so, though... Was uh, the physical reaction that I had to it. Uh, my body did not like any of this impossible stuff, or beyond stuff, in the slightest. I, I would, you know, in the reviews that I've had for this, where I've tried the impossible pizzas, and the impossible burgers, this, that, and the other thing, my body immediately has an overwhelmingly negative reaction to it. You know, my stomach starts going crazy with all this noise, and uh, it's just gurgling, and it's just... And then the pain comes after that, and that uh, fills me with pain, and then, you know, before you know it, I can't wait to just get this out of my system, because I feel 
the way my body is anyway, as though I had consumed poison, for lack of a better word. Now, you could interpret that statement as you will, you know, my body is what it is, it's, it, it's my body, it's, yours is different from mine, you know, it's, it's a case-by-case basis. But in my situation, I could just tell that there was something about it that bothered my body again on a physical level immensely and profoundly negatively. And, you know, people could say what they want. They could say, oh, it's because you're conditioned for eating this, that, or the other thing. Or, you know, you could say, no, it's just because it's loaded with so many chemicals, your body can taste that, or discern that, I should say, and is trying to get that poison out of your system. Whatever route you want to go, I certainly don't like that, and I want nothing to do with it. So, uh, as a result, I don't eat any of the impossible stuff, or the beyond stuff, and, uh, it's for that alone. The last straw for me, though, was when I tried out those Beyond Nuggets from KFC, and it was at that point that already, you know, despite still that, uh, kind of undertone that, you know, you know, you'd be better off if you hype this stuff up, I kind of looked at the metaphorical mafia guys in the corner, gave them the finger, and, uh, those in, those beyond nuggets from KFC were some of the worst things that I've ever eaten. And uh, I made that overwhelmingly clear. And I thought, at this point, if uh, some powers that be decide to punish my channel for not singing praises about the uh, the impossible stuff, so be it. And that's it. So... That's my view. If there is uh, something in the future that turns out to be some sort of hugely hyped up uh, sort of item, I might review it. And uh, I'm not going to go out of my way to try to say negative things about it, but at the same time, I'm not hyping up anything anymore. It's like, look, people can be as enthusiastic as they want for it, and I'm going to treat it like any other item. I'm not going to push anything. And uh, if someone expects that of me, you've, you've come to the wrong person. If it's good, it's good. But at the same time, you know what I'm also going to do? I am going to mention my own personal reactions to it. Because I, I just don't think I'm the only person in the world. I'd say, look, just take that into account. And uh, that, you know, it really bothered me physically every time I've ever had this. But I'll say, look, that's, maybe that's just me. Maybe it's just a personal allergy. I don't know. Just something to think about, you know? That's what I try to do in the videos. I just try to... I know I'm no chef. I'm no culinary expert or genius, and I don't try to pretend to be. But what I certainly try to do, at least to the best of my ability, is when I review an item... I want to sincerely give as rounded an assessment as I possibly can. And, uh, you know, that's just all there is to it, really. All right, this one comes in from Jeff in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Been a listener for a few years now, and I want to start by saying I appreciate what you do. You really helped me get through 2020 without completely losing my mind. Well... 
to interject. You're too kind, Jeff. And uh, 2020 sure was crazy, wasn't it? But I'm I'm glad that my broadcasts were uh, able to to be of help at least through that insane time. Anyway, to get back to your email, your question about the decline of the fast food compelled me to write in. I certainly have noticed a drastic drop in the quality of products and customer service, but not only from fast food companies, but seemingly across the board. While it's not exactly fast food related, I'd like to share a recent bad experience with you. My wife and I bought our first house in early January. To interject, congratulations, that's a big purchase and uh, something to be proud of, so congratulations. Continuing... Shortly after moving in, I purchased a treadmill from Nordic Track, as the weather here often makes it difficult to run outside. I wanted a brand name, hoping for something that would be long-lasting and uh, have a good customer support. Big mistake. When it arrived, I spent about three hours assembling it. I powered it on, excited to behold the fruits of my labor, only to find a dead, flickering screen and an unusable machine. Disappointed, I spent another few hours on the phone troubleshooting with numerous departments at Nordic Track. We couldn't... We could find no fix, so they begrudgingly agreed to send me a new screen free of charge. The screen arrived about a week later, and I painstakingly installed it. The screen powered on, and I thought to myself, finally. And then after a few minutes of loading, the machine completely died. I had had enough of this. I contacted Nordic Track again to tell them I wanted to return it, and that they had sent me a bad machine. Several days later, they replied, of course. That'll just be a $450 restocking fee. I reiterated that I was not returning it because I had changed my mind, but that they had given me a product that didn't work, and was quite literally now just taking up space in my home. Essentially said, too bad, that's our policy. I of course asked for the situation to be escalated to the manager, but they refused, assuring me that management had already reviewed the case, and this was the only course of action. I tried later to speak to a different customer service rep and was told the same thing. They were quite rude about the whole thing, which made the situation even more infuriating. I did a little digging and I found that many other Nordic Trek customers were dealing with similar or identical problems. Turns out this problem is due to a bad software update that has been occurring since December. So Nordic Trek has been knowingly selling people a defective product, and then charging them a restocking fee to return it. Some folks are in the early stages of a class action lawsuit, but who knows if or when anything will come of it. People online claim they were a great company until very recently, but I don't know. I can't imagine how they would have remained such a popular brand for so many years with this kind of service. In the end, I was forced to choose between losing 450 or keeping a $1,500 hulking piece of garbage. They're picking it up later this week, and 
I have to go back to saving to afford a different machine. It's one of the worst situations I've had with bad products lately by far, but every new thing I buy seems to be made of trash. It costs twice as much as it used to. It's truly shameful. Hope this rant wasn't too long if you choose to read it on air. Feel free to trim it down as much as you'd like. Thanks for being a rare voice of reason in our declining civilization. I wish you and all your listeners the very best in 2023 and beyond. Best regards, Jeff from Santa Fe, New Mexico. So thank you, Jeff. I thought that was some really good perspective. And I, I you know, I appreciate that you took the time to write that out. And I think you proved a good point here, that the quality, the decline we're seeing is not exclusive to fast food. I concur. And I I see it for the same reasons. You're seeing this across the board with a lot of things. And you hear, if you research this, you're going to hear time and again, this was such a good company until, right, until it all goes downhill. It wasn't good as it used to be. I don't think these people are just making this up. You know firsthand what you experienced. So for the people that say, oh, it was always that way, I don't think it was. I don't think you think that it was either. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, you know, you went through what you did. So... What a pity, right? What a pity. It's just really... It's, it's disappointing. I hope it gets better, but, but will it? I can't see that. I hope, though. I just, I just hope. Alright, let's take a look over to some more random stuff. Let's see if there is anything there. There's a lot of reports that came in for the shortwave, so we'll see if there's any kind of mixed in a lot of good reception reports those are always nice the reception reports that come in for the shortwave it's one of the best parts about doing the show you know it's for me anyway that's a lot of the allure of of international broadcasting you know you've got these high power transmitters that are the size of of a refrigerator or two, and they're cranking out hundreds of thousands of watts of power into these giant antennas, and your signal is being shot out invisibly into the upper atmosphere, and it's being shot up high into the ionosphere, and it's bouncing off of it like light reflecting off of a mirror, and then it's being heard across, in my case, with the broadcasts that are my main airings, the entirety of the United States, Canada, Mexico, the Caribbean, Central America, and uh, there have been reports coming in showing that broadcast also reaching the entire Atlantic Ocean. So you might have, who knows, some guys on fishing boats out there listening in. Uh, It's been making it into Western Europe, North and even West Africa. South America, all the way down into Argentina, and it's even been making it all the way down into New Zealand, Australia, Hawaii. I even got a report from Singapore 
the other day, and it's fun, number one, to just think that from this one transmitter, it's not just people in the town, the local town or the city or the state being able to hear it, but when you've got literally multiple continents and the entire Atlantic Ocean and almost the entire Pacific being able to hear the exact same broadcast at the exact same time on the same station and everything. It's just really cool to to think about that, for me anyway, and to think about all the different folks out there that could be catching this, where you might have some ham radio operators listening in with all these advanced setups. You'll have people out there listening in on their portable radios. You have someone listening in on an old boombox, someone out there tuned in on an old wood panel radio from the 1940s. There might be some guy listening in again on a fishing boat or a container ship. And then in parts of the world where shortwave is more relevant, you know, there might be people down there in Haiti or Cuba listening in regularly on the shortwave or people across West Africa. There might be listeners out there to my broadcast in places like Nigeria and Mali, etc., that I'll never hear from. They don't have internet. They don't even, maybe even have electricity, but the radio is what they've got. There might be people in uh, the Pacific Northwest or up in Alaska, northern Canada, out camping or in uh, off-the-grid cabins tuned in. It's just, it's uh, fun to imagine the, the variety of folks of all different walks of life the broadcast reaches. And then what I'll do is I'll shout out the email on the air, and uh, as I do that, I'll hit the refresh button on the email. And then just like that, you'll see the feedback start coming in by the dozens and dozens. And uh, it's hard to keep up with when the broadcasts are going. But then, you know, you click on one email. Oh, it's, you know, sounding good here in Memphis. And I'm listening in from Glendale, Arizona. Oh, I'm tuned in uh on my truck over in rural Nevada, and then you, re you refresh the page, and then there's a dozen more that came in, and you never know what you're going to get, and that's just a lot of fun uh, that I really enjoy about the shortwave broadcasting. To me, it proves that there's still life left in this medium. That's why people say what they want about it. That's why I do not give up on this. That's why... I put the financial backing into this that I do. And that's why when I focus on my broadcasts, you know, for where most of the listeners are, because I'm realistic about this, I know most of my audience is in North America, so I don't pull any punches when it comes down to trying to, you know, get the best, the best signal. So I pay for the expensive stations. Like WWCR, their airtime isn't cheap, but these are the results that it delivers. You know, it's like there's certain stations out there that sell their airtime that look very, very affordable compared to what WWCR charges. But you have to realize when it comes down to shortwave, and I say this just to anyone who's even thinking about getting into it as a broadcaster, please note and you might not like the sound of this, but you do get what you pay for. And unless you're interested 
in quantity purely, quality might be better. So for instance, let's say with your budget, you could choose, oh, I could either do 10 broadcasts from this station that uh, it might just cover a state or two and the signal might be really weak or staticky, but you never know, you know, someone with a real good setup might still listen in, right? Who, who knows? And I could do 10 shows, or I could save that money by one hour of airtime from WWCR, but get a crystal clear signal that covers literal continents. That's up to you. But you might wind up getting more response from that one airing that's more expensive than you would get from all 10 other airings combined. Some people, you know, you could only, you could only work with what you've got, and that's, that's just a fact of things. But uh, if you've got that ability, I just think about it. Some folks, you know, they just, all they could really do, or they might not know, they settle for the real low-power stations because the airtime might be more uh, appealing, financially speaking, which I get it. But, uh, you know, then they might go for it. They'll put their blood, sweat, and tears into what could sometimes be a darn good show. But it's just not transmitted with all that much, and no one could really hear it. And and then that leaves people feeling demoralized, and they'll think, this medium is dead, it's, it's pointless, I'm, I've given up on this. When really, it's just an unfortunate victim of circumstance. And if they were able to broadcast that very same show... Uh, from, let's say, one of those 100-kilowatt transmitters that I use in uh, Nashville, you know, they would have a very different... a very different story to report back with, but... it's just unfortunate how it is. Alright, here's a random one. Comment. Just discovered the channel, which I find strangely intriguing. Not super into fast food, but your manner of style gave me pause. It's genuinely like watching someone who walked out of the 1920s or 30s Northeast U.S., like straight-up H.P. Lovecraft, was sitting there telling me about how bad these Domino's tater tots were. I've watched a few of your videos about you dealing with some of the negative aspects of being a YouTuber, and a couple of details, and a couple of others dealing with people's comments. Your ability to laugh off people's negativity is admirable. And I think you handle the stress well. Find the videos pleasant? I think you're a fine young man. Thanks for the entertainment from Kevin. Well, thank you, Kevin. It's much appreciated. Ah, the short email coming in about the fast food. From an anonymous listener. So I think things are getting worse because of the higher demand for fast food. Basically, because everything is mass-produced, it means they are more focused on quantity than quality because there's so much money in these large establishments like KFC and McDonald's. By the way, you're an amazing YouTuber, and keep up the podcast. Well, thank you. Anonymous listener there. It's appreciated. All right, this one comes in from Paul. A year ago or so, I emailed you asking about getting a good shortwave radio. You said the Texun PR-880 was a good choice. Last Sunday, I was listening to random frequencies until it was time for your program. Between 11 and midnight Eastern Time, I picked up the voice of Turkey. 
and the website, shortwave.info, said it was transmitting from the Turkish village of Ermelur. I also picked up Radio New Zealand International, and it was transmitting from Vrangateki. But the signals were as clear as my local FM station, and I was just using the antenna on my radio. So my question is, is it really possible that the PL-880 can pick up those signals from that distance, I live in Miamiville, Ohio, or is it more likely that shortwave.info made an error regarding its transmission location and was transmitted much closer? I enjoy listening to your program as well as your podcast. I feel a certain sense of nostalgia listening to shortwave. Reminds me of the old days of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty during the Cold War. So thank you, Paul. It's a real good resource, by the way. Short-wave.info Website might take a little, little while to get the hang of, but it is one of the most comprehensive resources of figuring it out, figuring out what's on the air at any given time that uh, you'll ever come across. Yeah, so the good news, Paul, what you heard is uh, the real deal. The voice of Turkey. That's where it's transmitted from. It's transmitted from Ermelur, Turkey. That's exactly it. You heard it. Yes, that clear. Straight from the source. And the same goes for Radio New Zealand as well. Those two signals, real deal, transmitted exactly where the site uh, said they were transmitted from. So isn't that cool? That uh, That's another appeal of the shortwave to me and many others that, yeah, those broadcasts are really from where that site says, which is uh, amazing. You know, the shortwave is case by case. Right now, it's not a... Where I'm at the microphone, it's not a real good area interference-wise, and uh, there's not a lot on at this hour, but I'll see if I can get anything distance-wise. There's going to be a lot of interference, though, but let's find out. Oh, yeah, yeah, look at this. I don't want to uh, have it too loud, but because uh, there's music, but listen to this. That's Radio New Zealand right there. That's uh, coming in from New Zealand. It's straight from the source. And uh, as you could hear, I'm just using a portable radio. No fancy antenna, nothing. I'm in an electronics-filled room with all this stuff around me that causes interference. But you could hear it was still coming in pretty darn good. So uh, yes, that's absolutely the real thing. Sometimes the uh, the signal quality can vary day to day, but uh, that's again one of the appealing things about shortwave. What you hear is what you hear, and uh, a lot of the time it does come straight from the source. So the signal's making its way all those miles to you. All right, this email comes in from Tim in Nashville, Tennessee. Hope you're doing well. Just wanted to say that I subbed to your Patreon 
I know it's difficult to maintain all of this, so I hope my small donation will help in some way. Uh, well, first, to interject, thank you so much, Tim. I really appreciate it, and, and I want you to know that your support, it really does help significantly. Everything that you hear, know that you directly, through your support, play a role in this happening. So I first just want to mention that. But secondly, also, I don't know if you monitor it or not, but sporadic E skip is high today, as WWV at 25,000 kilohertz is still receivable at 7 p.m. Central Time here in Nashville, Tennessee. One more note, I found an extremely affordable entry-level AM-FM shortwave radio, the XH Data D219, if you want to mention it. So thank you, Tim, in Nashville. I, I won't bother to explain it all, but... Uh, just to you, I've noticed the same thing. I've noticed that the higher frequencies have definitely been propagating uh, much, much better in recent times. And uh, I would have to assume that indeed, because I know we are getting into the season for sporadic E. I know that's usually a, a springtime thing, and also I think in the fall as well, but um, we're definitely getting into that. Likewise, though, I believe the uh, increasing sunspot number and the solar flux and all of that, that's been higher than expected. For solar cycle, for this solar cycle, if you look at the, uh, the trends, what was projected and what's really there, the sun is more active than they thought it was going to be. So I, I believe, anyway, that the increased solar activity is definitely having an effect, but, uh, yes, I've noticed the same thing, that I'll scan around, even in the evenings or the midday, and I'll notice on the top of the uh, shortwave spectrum, I'll hear a lot more than I normally do. So, now granted, I have mostly an interest in international broadcasting, uh, but I do check the CB radio spectrum, and, uh, Time and again, really, every single day, from, I would say, 6 a.m. all the way until 11 p.m., sometimes as late as midnight, the uh, CB is wide open, and you'll hear all these guys, you know, talking over each other incoherently, practically, and uh, some of them, they'll give out the locations, and I'll hear these uh, guys on the CB radio. I heard one the other uh, the other day from the Mojave Desert in California, so that's just on a CB radio. Granted, this guy was using a modified setup, but still, to have a CB radio broadcast propagate literally across the entire country uh, goes to show how good the conditions are. But uh, WWV on uh, the 25 megahertz has been constant as well. Uh, it fades out, of course, at night, but uh, it's there during the day, and a few years ago, you would never hear a thing, so that's that's another sign. And uh, then getting a little bit lower, you know, when you look at the 13-meter band, I can get granted what broadcasters there still are. I can get a lot of good signals on that, too. So the BBC World Service, I can uh, pick them up pretty clearly. Radio France International... Radio Riyadh, and uh, Radio Romania, some of the stations that still can be heard around uh, the 
megahertz. Those come in just fine. Uh, the one thing that I haven't heard yet is any stations on the 11 meter band, but then again, no one really uses it at this point either. But, uh... There's really nothing to check, but no, the propagation, it's really improved. It, it definitely has. So I'm seeing what you're seeing. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how long this continues. I hope for a while, because it's, it's fun. And uh, the XH Data D219. Wow, that is cheap, my god. That is cheaper than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> $6.00. It's no seven six ninety eight. You know, I'll just say you you know it's. Uh, I don't want to openly advocate it, just as I'm wary about price and quality. But uh, wow, for seven bucks, I'll say that's a good deal. All right. The important thing, if anyone does think about it again, just understand, use basic discretion, and just know that the price is what it is, and you're paying $7 for this. But I am looking at it, and it does cover the frequency for my broadcast, 4840 kilohertz. This radio does it in megahertz, but it has 4.8. So that means that it does cover the frequency uh, that my radio show is heard on, because sometimes, and it's always unfortunate when this happens, not all radios cover the same frequency ranges, so someone will get a cheap radio to try to uh, listen to my broadcast, only to later on realize, wait a minute, the radio that I got doesn't pick up the frequency that your, uh, your show can be heard on. And that's always unfortunate, but in this case, 4.8. Yes, so that would mean that uh, it does pick up the show. All right, that's good. Uh, good thoughts there from uh, Tim. Nashville, Tennessee. Adam is checking in. Started listening to your podcast about three months ago and have worked my way through your shows. I'm currently listening to the broadcast from around mid-2020. This email is sort of in regards to the what does the future hold for fast food. However, I actually have a question for you if that's okay. I personally am a fan of Burger King. Now, I know that may send shivers down the spine of any fast food connoisseur, but allow me to explain. I live right across the border from Detroit, Michigan, in a place known as Windsor, Essex County, in Canada, of course. I've noticed a trend over the past, let's say, five years of people hating on Burger King to no end, but in my neck of the woods... No one has ever complained. I decided to try to look into why this might be, and I've noticed that most of the people I see complaining online are American. A quite famous example I could give would be Moist Critical, who also lives in Florida, and he has a disdain for the chain restaurant. This has led me to conclude that there could possibly be a difference in standards across the border. Perhaps fast food is getting worse in America. I only came to this conclusion, as I haven't personally noticed a decline in fast food quality over here. Maybe that's just me. 
I have noticed, though, that there is a considerable amount of talk online about how McDonald's seems to be better in Canada, but this seems to be a pretty well-debated topic, so some might not agree. I remember you saying you've been to Canada yourself, although I don't particularly remember if you've mentioned how long ago, and I can't know if you have even indulged in Burger King whilst here, but my question is, have you ever noticed any difference in quality across the border, or if not, have you ever heard of this phenomenon? I obviously live close to the border, but I don't frequently travel to the States, However, I am going to New York City this summer, and I intend to try a Whopper at least once while I am there. I know that I've had Burger King in America more than once, but not recently enough to remember any difference in quality. My apologies if this email has run long or seemed all over the place, was meaning to send it uh, for some time now. So thank you, Adam, for your thoughts there. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up. Now, I will mention that the uh, when I went to Canada, I never really had any of the fast food there. I was mostly just going from one restaurant to the next and, uh, and all of that. But I have heard of the phenomenon of the difference in quality in terms of international chains versus what you have here in the United States. And uh, I can't speak exclusively for Canada, but I'll give an example. I believe this was in regards to... I want to say Taiwan, but I am, I'm not going to say that definitively, but if, if I had to guess, that's what I would say. It was in regards to a McDonald's, and again, I just I want to say Taiwan, and uh, the menu available there, and the quality of everything looked so so much better than what we get here. I mean, everything was just better. The, the, just the slop that's uh, shoved in our faces here versus what you get there was a, it was a remarkable difference. And uh, that was years ago that got me thinking about that. So yes, I, I have heard of that. It certainly wouldn't surprise me. I will say that as far as Burger King goes, the Whopper is, uh, in my opinion, the best item of theirs. That's just me saying that. Of course, I don't really go to Burger King very much unless I'm doing a review, but I will say that uh, if I were forced to go to a Burger King, then uh, a Whopper burger would definitely be what I would be uh, going with by default. So uh, that's, I think, the best thing on their menu, in my opinion. But still, your mileage may vary, but, uh, you know, don't go in with uh, the expectation that it's going to be vastly different. It might, you know, it's hit or miss. It's all over the place, but I've just had enough bad experiences that, uh, in my case anyway, it's more bad than good. This is an anonymous listener checking in. Greetings. First of all, I'd like to thank you for the quality content you deliver, especially in regards to the podcast. I know the feelings of self-doubt and imposter syndrome well. No matter how many compliments I receive, the criticism or the haters rise above them because it just confirms the self-doubt and feelings of inadequacy as being correct. And it's no easy task to overcome this, but I wish you strength and Godspeed in your battle. 
I'm not a close friend or family member. I've nothing to gain from complimenting you. But that said, you have a way of breaking down a topic that is quite refreshing. It's clear to me that you possess the skill of critical thinking, and this is not appreciated by some people. Now, onto the topic at hand, which is the declining quality and rising price of fast food. I've noticed this also. There is an issue which has many causes, but they all boil down to one thing, money. The rising cost of supplies and labor has forced restaurants to cut more and more corners in order to turn a profit, add in economic hardship with inflation rising each year, and the value of our money decreasing each year. And you have a problem that go that isn't going away anytime soon. The only solution I see to this is one I've already implemented. Stop buying this crap. Since I had to reassess my finances and make cuts where I can, I've been eating out less in order to improve my financial stability. Hopefully in time, this will also improve my health. I'll continue to support those restaurants that are doing it right when I can, but those that are not will not get my money. Before I end this email, I want to touch on the issue of eating insects. This is 100% an agenda of the global elites who meet each year in Davos at the World Economic Forum. The World Economic Forum has called for radical policy measures to mandate the use of insects. This is disgusting and despicable. I can assure you any policy measures will not affect the billionaires at the World Economic Forum, but will surely affect you and I. And this is not an issue of eating bugs if you want to. You won't have a choice. This is further confirmed by the rise of disgusting plant-based meat and increasingly strict regulation on agriculture, especially in Europe. Some European countries are already adding cricket powder into flour. Anyway, I'm not sure how eating the bugs is affecting the fast food industry, but rest assured that the rising food costs are no coincidence. But don't take my word for it, dear listener. Do your own research. So that was from an anonymous listener there, and... uh to interject, yeah, there's... I've been following what's been going on, especially, I believe, in uh, the Netherlands there with the farms and and uh, all of that. It's, uh, it's scary stuff. And likewise, of course, whether people agree or disagree, you know, say they what, uh, what they want, I would hope anyway that people will always realize that regardless of the issue, as you could hopefully see, I just via direct observation on the world around you and uh, and those who call the shots, that there's going to be that disconnect that, uh, you know, you would hope by now, and, and sadly a lot of people just don't, uh, don't get it, that the people that make the rules don't live by those rules, you know? It's, it's like, let's say that there becomes a time where there is the strict adherence uh, to eating insects, and, uh, you know, you're in this dystopian, uh, hellish nightmare reality where, uh, you know, everything is tightly regulated and everything you say, do, and think is controlled, and you're given your little ration of insects each day for, uh, 
you know, basic survival or whatever it might be, and uh, and this is your life, and you know you're going to be trained to be uh, complacent with it, and uh, you're going to be trained to think anyone who isn't satisfied with this is the problem. But the people that put you in this situation are they doing the same thing? Are they are they uh, living the same squalid life? No, of course not. You know those people that do that to you, they're still going to be there in their limousines and with their armed bodyguards and they're going to be eating steak dinners and they're going to have the finest this, that, and the other thing. They say, don't do as I do, do what I tell you to do. And uh, again, I gave a very extreme hypothetical, but just in day-to-day life, you see that time and time and time again. The folks that actually lead by example, few and far between. Thank you for your thoughts. Alright, this one comes in from Bill, who says, My name is Bill. I live in California. Longtime viewer on YouTube and a recent VORW discoverer. Keep up the amazing work. I'd like to speak on the question you posed to the audience regarding the fast food industry. With regards to the state of the industry, I agree. It is in sharp decline. I often think back to when KFC used to be the standard in terms of a fried chicken meal and compare it to where it is now, and and I cringe. KFC used to be the standard for fried chicken on national scale. Yes, there have always been smaller, more local chains, uh, that some might argue outdid KFC, and I can't dispute that, but on a national scale, KFC was the standard. Sadly, though, those days of KFC are but a shell of their former self, and I can't say I will ever return to one of these restaurants if I'm given the choice. The chicken is greasy, with far too much batter and not enough actual chicken, and to add insult to injury, you can't even get the potato wedges anymore. That was one of the biggest differentiators that KFC had in my eyes, and they gave it the axe. You've previously mentioned in uh, previous episodes of the podcast that you remember uh, back to when the dining rooms of the fast food restaurants were inviting, unique, and somewhere you'd even have a birthday party. And that made me laugh because I quite literally had a birthday party at a Wendy's growing up. Wendy's even provided yellow balloons for the occasion. On a side note, I miss the Wendy's solariums from the 1990s and early 2000s. To interject, we were just talking about that earlier on in the program. Uh, the Wendy's exactly. You, We're on the same page here. You see it the same way. That... Uh, The interior of all these places was so much nicer. It had... It was warming. It it was inviting. And it had a level of character and soul to it. That none of these lifeless cubes... Because that's what all these restaurants are. You ever notice that? That they lose any original architecture and it's just a gray block. It's like a gray cube. And that's it. And that's every last one of these places. And it's the exact same minimalistic thing on the inside. And I know they say, oh, it's the, the, the millennials that like it that way. And 
And I'm not going to argue what the numbers say, but I'll certainly speak my mind and say it's disappointing that uh, it had to go this way and these establishments lost their... uh, They just lost a lot of the character, you know, a lot of the soul, a lot of the things that... that, uh, made these places that now you you look at and you just shake your head at but that made these places actually special which now you know it's it's a ridiculous comparison but at the time when they actually had something to offer you you get it same thing with McDonald's these days when i think of McDonald's and i've i've given this example before the thought of a birthday party at a McDonald's never fails to make me laugh these days because I think of what a miserable place uh, a McDonald's these days happens to be. But, you know, it wasn't that way. In the early 2000s, I've had birthday parties at McDonald's, but it was different then. And uh, and if if you remember it, then you could attest to it. It was It was different. What more can you say? It's like comparing apples to oranges. The McDonald's of 2002, you can't even equate to the McDonald's of 2023. It's just a different place. I don't know, it's sad. You remember when Subway, you remember the wallpaper that they had on those establishments too? It was like that old uh, New York City architecture and all of that. That was cool. I remember I'd look at the wallpaper there, and it's like even just a simple thing like that. It gives the establishment character. Now, continuing. Overall, however, I predict the continued decline of what I would like to call legacy fast food. McDonald's, Burger King, KFC, Taco Bell, Wendy's. And we will continue to see the rise of what we call next-gen fast food. Chick-fil-A, Raising Cane's, In-N-Out Burger, Habit Burger, etc. These next-gen brands aren't particularly new, I should add, but their explosive growth over the past decade, I think, is an indicator that they are doing something right and attracting a growing number of customers. They are offering the quality food we all used to know and love at around the same price as the legacy brands, And I predict that the legacy brands will decline to only a certain point, and once that point hits the bottom line of their corporate overlords, something will be done to compete again. But until then, we just need to wait it out and watch closely. One final thought. Mobile orders need to die, and fast. Everywhere you go now has mobile ordering, even for things that don't need it, and don't make sense. I was driving through a local parking lot recently and saw that there there were reserved parking spots for mobile orders at a sleep number mattress store. Give me a break. Who's mobile ordering anything from a mattress store? It's just gone too far. Now, I have other thoughts on why mobile orders need to die, but maybe I'll save those for another day. Take care. You are a beacon of light in a dark world even if you hold a pessimistic view of certain things. I look forward to hearing what other people have to say regarding the topic. So thank you, Bill. Nice to hear from you, and good thoughts, I may add. 
This comes in from Harry in Oklahoma with uh, two emails, one about the uh, fast food and one that's more random. So you say, it does seem like fast food quality and more significantly service speed has declined in the last few years. It takes an unbelievable amount of time to get through the Whataburger drive through line these days. Chick-fil-A takes, uh, tastes about the same, but service has slowed. The only chain that seems immune is raising canes. Uh, in their defense, they essentially have only one item on their menu, so that must help. Quality is going to decrease and prices will increase as automation increases. Service will remain terrible as long as worker wages are terrible. So that's the first part. All right. Now, the second part, random-wise, uh, you write, What do you think would have a greater effect on society? One year with no deaths, or one year with no births? Everything else proceeds as usual. There would just be no births or deaths from January 1st to December 31st. A year with no deaths would obviously contribute to the current overpopulation issues in some areas, but it would also prevent the untimely passing of many other people, too. Think no tragedies, no school shootings, no infant cancers. What kind of damage would a year without population balancing do? Would there be any long-term effects 10, 20 years from now? A year with no births would obviously have the opposite effects, population stabilization for a short period. I'm not sure what, if any, short-term negatives this would create. Down the line, you could have labor shortages, teachers wouldn't have any students to teach for a year, etc. So what do you think would be some long- and short-term consequences? So thank you again, Harry in Oklahoma. I think the uh, greater effect would obviously be, to me anyway, the uh, year with no deaths. And, uh... You know, it would have its good and its bad. You know, the good, of course, would be that uh, some of the good people in this world would uh, still be around a year longer. The bad, of course, is the uh, all the people that you wish were already gone are going to be stuck here now for another year. And uh, I could just see it being very problematic, and it's going to have... It would enable behaviors in people that uh, you would never see otherwise, because a lot of people, something that keeps at least a number of folks in line is purely the, uh, the understanding that life is finite, and if I do this, then uh, my actions will have consequences that may end my life. Well, all of a sudden you're told for a year, no deaths. Guess what? Things are going to get real bad real quick. And, uh, you know, as you're standing there and you've got some guy uh, that's going to do bad things, you're going to be wishing that those bullets would start having an effect. And uh, it's just so I, I see it again, though. I always gravitate toward the negative. I just see the problems immediately from there being a year with no deaths. And in that case, it's like, all right, 
well, you could have more prisons and uh, just try to keep the bad people out of society, but, uh, well, if they don't die, then what's going to stop those guys from uh, then ganging up and saying, well, fine, we can just take them. We could take this place. Let's bust out of here. What are they going to do, shoot me? <laughs> you know, it's not going to have any effect. And uh, so a lot of those things that control a lot of uh, aspects in the world suddenly aren't going to matter anymore, and things are going to take an immediate turn for the worse. Uh, a year with no deaths, that is not a year that I would like to be present for. I'll tell you that. So I see it more as a, a nightmare uh, than I see it as a... Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be able to be with, uh, you know, my grandparents for another year or something. I see it as, as chaos. Uh, a year with no births? I think long term I will say also that uh, the damage caused by that year with no deaths would... The physical damage would take years to recover from. The mental, psychological damage, the trauma, the shock. It might not be healed for lifetimes. That's my opinion. As far as a year with no births, uh, really, uh, I would take that any day. You name it. Let's, uh, let's go for it. And uh, it wouldn't be long enough a time to will any sort of children of men sort of uh, reality, but it, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be that bad, honestly. Yeah, I'd take that. I'd be totally fine with that. I would take 10 years with uh, no births as opposed to one year with no deaths. That's how far I'd be willing to take this. There really wouldn't be any consequences from the one year with uh, no births. You just postpone a few things and you reorganize a few others temporarily and then it's business as usual. And... Uh, even in the case, if there were ten years of no births, then there would be certain industries that eventually would uh, would have some issues, but even then, things could be gradually reorganized, and there would be the understanding, likewise, that this merely would be temporary, so after the ten-year span, then... Uh, things would get back to normal, but society would not collapse, even after 10 years, because, mind you, for that span, you'd still have all the kids that are around right now that would be growing up. You would still have a constant uh, flow of uh, new people coming to age and uh, being able to uh, participate and uh, contribute to society. It's really when it gets longer than 10 years when it would start becoming a problem. So even then... I couldn't see too uh, too much of a of a problem coming even from as drastic as a decade with uh, no births. Would things get thinned out a bit? Sure, but life would go on, and uh, quite frankly, it just wouldn't it wouldn't break down over uh, as things would in regards to. A year with no deaths, in my opinion. Society would still function. You'd still have pretty much the same quality of life you're used to. Really, you wouldn't, you wouldn't notice all that much. 
in one year especially, but even ten years, you just wouldn't really notice it. And, uh, that's all there is to it. Sure, there would be some psychological issues that would have to be worked out long-term from that, too, but I see one as way better than the other. And, uh, I was using the 10-year analogy because, to me, it's like, you know, the comparison otherwise, when it's one year, it'd be like saying, all right, what would you, uh, what would you rather do? Would you rather stand outside for one minute in uh, the wind when it's uh, 30 degrees in the wind and stand out there for one minute, or would you rather dump accelerant on you and light yourself on fire? And it's like, you know, I think to myself, uh, I'm going to stand outside for a minute. Uh, So you're telling me that I'm given this choice and... One choice would just leave me feeling a little cold, and then I'll go back inside and warm up, and then I'm good as new. And in the other choice, I'd either be dead by the end of it, or I would be wishing I were dead. Yeah, one sounds a lot better, and it would be an excruciating, one of the most painful ways you could possibly die, too. And the immense suffering. So it's like, you know, there's not even a choice. It's, uh, of course I'll go with one over the other. But that's the way I see it. But, you know, it's a good question that you bring up because it comes down to one's interpretation, too. Where me, I'm looking purely at the behaviors that I fear would result from that knowledge that for a year you wouldn't die. It would be like the purge, you know, on, on steroids or something. And uh, that's what I focus on, as opposed to thinking all the people that I like in this world will still be around. You know, if I purely focused on that, that's one thing, but I guess, you know, I just focused on that one aspect, and that just seems overwhelmingly bad to me. But again, then it depends on your own priorities in life. It's like some people... As far as life is concerned, I think they want to stick around as long as possible. You know, if in the future, if life extension breakthroughs come to be, there's going to be so many people lined up for it. Uh, But, you know, then you get some people that just kind of say, yeah, I'll be here as long as I am, you know? That's all there is to it. I'm one of those people. So, that's why... That's just why I have the view that I have, you know? It's like, death is a part of life. What can you do? All right, this is a question comes in from Coconut Pete, just in regards to a broadcast from May 8th, 2022. You said, you noticed notices to airmen before Russia invaded Ukraine. I'm wondering where anyone uh, could see such alerts if they occurred in the future. Wasn't sure if you received them on Twitter or for some other type of uh, shortwave radio source. Thought it might be interesting and uh, a good way to forecast that something is about to go down. So thank you, Coconut Pete, checking in. And now I wish I could give you an easy answer and say, oh, it's uh, this site over here that's a comprehensive uh, 
you know, resource that you could easily find it all indexed. I'm sure there are sites that you could find that, but in that particular case, there wasn't anything that, uh, there wasn't anything that allowed me to just find everything all at once. And that's just not one thing. When it comes down to current events that I intently follow, I just don't have one single source for everything. I have essentially a whole collection of various things that I just kind of put together and then try to base my uh, my view thereby. So it's like, I'll, I'll see what people are saying. I'll try to see what the raw data is saying. I'll try to see what various, even, uh, you know, some of those open source intelligence uh, groups have to say, but some of them are filled with so much bias, you know, Look at the information, look less at what the person providing the information has to say, because so much of it is just editorialized these days. It's a disgrace, really. I listen to the shortwave, I see what different sides are, uh, are saying, and then sometimes I just get a gut feeling, you know, the writing is on the wall. It was like, again, thinking back to that night... I really did not believe until the minute that it happened that uh, the operation was actually going to take place, but I'll certainly say that evening, right before it happened, there were some signs that in the back of my mind got me thinking, even though I didn't believe it was actually going to happen, it got me thinking... Is something really going to go down? Is, is, is it really going to happen? You know, it raised those questions. I still didn't believe that it was actually going to occur with Ukraine and Russia. But when I was seeing all of these things ongoing, it got me thinking. And I'll tell you what, the two things that evening, because I remember, I remember that night, I fell asleep at around probably... 6 p.m. or so, and the invasion started about about five hours later, four or five hours later. So when I woke up, it was already in full swing. But as I was falling asleep, it, I had those questions, and the two things that raised those questions in me, it had nothing to do with all the screeching and hooting and hollering from some talking head, or uh, what the CIA was saying, or what Kiev was saying, or what Moscow was saying, or uh, this, that, or the other thing. You get that every single day. But the two things for me that did raise those, uh, those questions, for me anyway, were number one, all of these notices to airmen closing all the airspace and it was just happening so rapidly from one area, then the next, then the next, then the next. And it was like a nationwide thing over in Ukraine and even Eastern Europe. And I had not seen that before. So I was thinking, why are they doing that? So that was the first thing. But the second thing, and this is just something that I picked up on, and no one even noticed this. I just happened to pick up on it. I was scanning around on the shortwave, and... I tuned into this frequency, and I know it might sound unbelievable, but I, I heard what I heard, and 
it was all these communications in Russian. And you might say, oh, how do you know those weren't uh, ham radio guys or something? Because the way the shortwave spectrum is, the frequencies are divided up very clearly. So the areas where the amateur radio operators or whatever are uh, all located, it's a certain part of the spectrum. And one thing you got to know about a lot of amateur radio guys, they are very keen to following the rules, so you're not likely going to find them outside of their uh, regulated frequencies. But anyway, so this was a frequency that was located in a range where Russian military communications were known to already be heard, albeit infrequently. And uh, most of the time, I'd never heard anything on this frequency. It was usually just static, nothing. Don't even really check it, because there's nothing... It's just, there's no one ever using that channel. But that night, I saw activity there, tuned in, and I could tell that, uh, granted, while I don't speak Russian, you could tell I am familiar at least with numbers in Russian. It's from all the Russian language numbers stations that I listen to. I'm familiar with numbers, at least, and uh, I'm familiar with some of the basic Russian words, and uh, I could easily tell that they were giving call signs and were essentially just reporting in and uh, giving radio checks. And the thing that got me, though, is that this frequency I'd never seen activity on was insane. One call sign after the next, after the next, after the next, and it was continuous. I mean, you're talking hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, different radios all just signing on, reporting their call sign, just testing out the equipment to uh, check in and uh, ensure that their radio is working properly. And that, right then and there, combined with all of these notices to close the airspace, that's what raised those questions. Because to me, I thought, wait a minute, could these just be radio checks for something? Sure. But it got me thinking, combined with that, what if they're actually do- what if they're actually going to go ahead with this and these are all the units that are going to be going in there that are testing out their communications and uh doing the final preparations before they uh, get this underway and i did think that and again i still believed it wouldn't happen but those questions were undoubtedly in my mind and uh after i woke up i realized those notions that i had about the uh, test transmissions proved correct. And uh, indeed, it was later uh, realized and then heavily promoted afterward that the Russian ground forces operating in Ukraine were using shortwave radio to communicate with each other. So we're not just talking about the uh, aircraft, but the tank battalions, even individual units, etc., We're all uh, using the shortwave radio for two-way communications as they were fighting in Ukraine. And anyone could listen to this. It was not encrypted. And uh, there were those online receivers in the Netherlands that could pick up 
the uh, military communications from the Russian army operating in Ukraine. So those same units were the ones that I had heard that evening. Indeed, they were testing out their equipment uh, before they were uh, getting ready to cross the border and uh, move in. So that's what that was. And uh, Russia still uses the shortwave for the uh, communications, but nowadays they really... Because now it gets jammed by uh, Ukraine... And uh, so they change frequencies pretty often to try to avoid that. They try not to talk as much, you know, just keep the information to a bare minimum. But uh, they still do utilize the shortwave. All right, so changing the focus. There are still a few more fast food quality emails to get to. So I want to get to the last of those. Following that, I may read a few more of the random pieces of feedback. And then following that, we'll get to some of the earthquake experiences. But I've been trying to balance everything out. Hope it's been enjoyable so far. Again, these will be the last of the food quality emails, at least explicitly. This comes in from Jordan, from Utah. Hello. I've noticed a significant decline in the fast food experience. In particular, there's a Wendy's near my home that I frequented every now and then. I never really considered the quality of service or product during my youth up through 2019, as it never really seemed a factor. What I paid for was what I received, and the staff treated me as appropriately as anyone would expect. During the lockdown years, I didn't go to this Wendy's at all. Fast forward to late 2022, and I found myself heading to their establishment once more. At this point, the restaurant had been fully reopened in full for many months, if not a year. I went through the drive through around dinner time on a weekday, and the worker over the intercom said, We are not taking any orders for the remainder of the day. So that was it. No reason given, no apologies. I inquired why, but they just stopped speaking, so I left. I went back a few weeks later, this time going into the lobby, I ordered a standard combo and asked for a couple sauces. The ordering experience seemed way off than what I was used to. The individual taking the order seemed upset that I was there, almost like how dare I make them do what they're being paid to do. When the worker assembled my order, they didn't say a number or my name, they just threw the bag on the counter and walked away. I was the only one in the lobby, so I assumed it was mine. I looked inside and found that there were no sauces. I waited for a worker to walk by, and then apologized for interrupting them, and asked if I could get a couple sauces. The look of resentment the worker gave me was palpable, and the overall experience left me confused. 
I felt like I was wronging them in some way, even though I didn't do anything out of the ordinary. This is an aside to me, but the food tasted cheaper and or worse, even though it was more costly. To be clear, I've worked at Subway and Arby's, and I've also worked at Olive Garden during my college years, and I understand the grind people go through in the service industry. And I could assure you I'm nothing but jovial and non-problematic to them because I get how draining it can be. But this new generation of service worker, at least in my area, confuses me. They're making way more per hour than I could ever dream of back then. I used to make six twenty-five an hour at Subway, and the sign at this Wendy's said the starting wage was thirteen an hour, and yet they treat their customers worse than ever. I've gone to so many fast food establishments in my area, and while not as blatant, I still sense this strange shift in service quality in general. I'm not sure the reason, but I don't think this trend is a good sign. I do need to note that I've moved uh, since to Arizona, and the fast food establishment I've visited feel more normal. The food quality is still worse at large, but the service is at least my understanding of normal. Maybe it was just that part of Utah that was experiencing this decline. Thank you for your time, and I wish you the best from Jordan. Thank you, Jordan. I have noticed the same uh, in terms of the attitudes displayed uh, in Florida, New York, and New Jersey, so I don't think it's just a Utah thing. And uh, I'm very glad that you, that you added that final paragraph about how you yourself were in their shoes at one time, and you understand it. Because I know for a fact, otherwise people would say, oh, well, you don't understand. Well, no, you're saying, yeah, guess what? I do understand. I've been there, and that confuses me even more. Right? It's, uh, it's one of those... I'm just glad you included that. Obviously, the people who would say it wouldn't care anyway, but it's just a... I, I appreciate that addition, because that was the first thing that came to mind, and then you covered it. So thank you again for sharing your experience. All right, this one comes in from Stephen. I'd like to give you a bit of background in why I feel this way and my own personal experience with a fast food establishment that is part of the trend that you mentioned. Now, as far as a sentiment of a fast food place that I used to love going downhill uh, is Domino's. Ever since I was a kid, my dad and brothers would get Domino's pizza delivered, and it always felt like a special occasion when we did. Usually, we would get it when watching a WWE, or F, I guess, pay-per-view event, a big football game, a cool movie we rented, etc. The ingredients always tasted fresh, and the quality was always consistent. During my 20s and early 30s, I'm 35 now, the service and quality of Domino's was usually consistently good. Ever since 2020, however, my local Domino's became impossible to order from. 
They would usually cancel orders, and you would have to fight with management to get refunds. And even occasionally, they wouldn't even refund you for an item not delivered. So I gave up on Domino's in August of 2021, when my nephew came over while his parents were out, and I ordered a cheese pizza from them. The exact thing happened once more, and I vowed I would never order from them again, ever. As they made my hungry nephew wait, I ended up driving him to my local Wawa convenience store and got him extra of whatever he wanted because I was so furious that they made him wait almost two hours. Never gotten them again since, and every time I'm tempted to download the Domino's app, I'm always reminded of that frustrating evening. It's really a shame because Domino's is one of the few fast food places other than McDonald's that gave me a sense of nostalgia. It was really a happy part of my childhood. It's sad now to see that it just became another soulless and empty service that has become a nothing like what it used to be. So overall, in answer to your question, I think the more brazen these businesses get with their terrible service, the more people will refuse to patronize them. I think some companies, at least the ones that have a shred of dignity, will improve, and others will simply not care because the owners and CEOs already have their fortune and don't give a flying F about their customers whom they deem as cattle anyway. These companies may survive, even though they do self-destructive business practices, they are like cockroaches and do not go down easy, as there will always be people leaving food out or giving them money for them to survive. Eventually, though, people can only take so much and will refuse to be treated in that manner, but the outcome will be remains to be seen. So thank you, Stephen, for your thoughts there. A bad... Domino's experience on your end there. It is a shame, isn't it, when you get one of these establishments that leaves you with that sense of nostalgia because you remember how good it used to be. But then you have to remind yourself, and it's always tough, that those memories are just that. It's a thing of the past. And, uh, and it's a shame yeah, Domino's for me has been hit or miss. I've had some good experiences with them. I've had some bad experiences with them. I will say, though, that the customer service I've noticed at various Domino's establishments has gone downhill. Now, years ago, back in around... Oh, maybe it was tw- tw- 20... I want to say 2010, maybe it was 2009. I'd say maybe it was a span between, to me, to be more general, perhaps, between 08 and uh, 2012, so about a four-year span, when I was a frequent Domino's customer, but they offered a good product, and they had good customer service as well, where uh, I remember... If there was anything wrong, the manager personally would take the responsibility 
and uh, would really do what they could to rectify the issue. Now, some people might say, oh, it was because you uh, you do the reviews or whatever. No, this was before anyone ever even... I was just... I was just, you know... I didn't even have the channel for many of those years, and even when I did, I wasn't even reviewing food. So no one knew who I was. That was just a good manager that genuinely strived to present a quality product. And that's out the door completely. That went out at around 2012 or so, which is a shame. You know, some of it comes down to the workers, some of it comes down to the folks in charge. You know, it's a fine-tuned machine. Everything needs to be functioning properly, and I do believe that a real good manager could uh, really help with a lot of that, but... uh, It was just a shame. It was just clear that for that span of time you had someone in charge there that really took pride in their work. And it showed in terms of the quality of everything, the quality of the service and the quality of the product. And should any issues arise, they were taken seriously and a resolution was all but guaranteed. This next one comes in from a listener in Ohio. Been a listener for about four years now. Found your podcast from your YouTube channel. Your most recent podcast was a favorite because you talked about fast food. I like to listen at night so YouTube doesn't work for me because it drains my phone battery, whereas the podcast audio does not, even if I fall asleep. So... I'd request either more food discussion or maybe an audio-only version of your YouTube channel to interject. Thank you for the suggestion. That being said, my opinion about fast food quality is based on having eaten them since the 80s as a child. McDonald's was a treat. Wendy's used to have basements for holding birthday parties, and Pizza Hut was for special occasions. I would say that in general, overall customer service standards have gone down. My friends and I were just talking about this. I blame two things. First, Millennial and Gen Z have different perspectives on customer service, fast food, minimum wage jobs. You'd never see a Starbucks girl with a snake tattoo up her arm, but today there she is taking your order. KFC the other day had line cooks with neck tattoos, long hair with no hair nets, and no gloves, prepping food. So this falls on the Gen Z workers and the millennials who manage them. But with phone app ordering, face-to-face isn't as big an issue as 20 years ago, so standards have fallen. Boomers seem to be the most upset, though, because they make up the bulk of videos asking for the manager to complain, which is an issue of generation gap and not an economic one. The second cause is larger. It's the labor force shortage. Boomers have retired, and now there isn't enough people to replace them, so it's harder to fire a bad worker 
because there isn't anyone to replace them, so standards naturally fell. Workers in fast food have more choices for income than in the past as well, so there is a shortage of quality workers in the bottom of the labor market. This adds up to a decline in quality, both in service and food. So those in the corporate offices have to find ways to keep up profits in the face of inflation. So they cut corners with ingredients, quality, as well as efficiency. It's quicker to just plop a pre-cooked frozen mix into a burrito wrap than it is to cook each part separately, which raises prices at places that do, uh, such as Five Guys or Chipotle. On a side note, I'd like to hear about the metrics of your podcasts. Are the numbers you get as robust and detailed as YouTube? And at what numbers does it become profitable? How many weekly listeners do you have? So that's from a listener there in Ohio. So thank you for your thoughts there. Interesting uh, comments that you had on or in regards, I should say, to the uh, state of fast food, and of course, as as you and many others uh, believe, it all comes down from the top, in many cases at least, but uh, all the various elements seem to come together and and still play a role. As far as uh, metrics go for the... uh, podcast it's uh it no it's nowhere near as much as what you'd get for the youtube uh, it's much more of a, a niche thing and that's understandable but the podcast itself still goes out to uh at a minimum in the tens of thousands of of listeners and uh the radio broadcast i think does go out to a wider audience, though I will say that as far as the shortwave broadcasts are concerned, uh, this has always been a problem for every single broadcaster, but it's very difficult to uh, actually quantify a specific number of listeners, you could say, in terms of shortwave, because it's, it's totally anonymous, but I just have reason to believe, based on the volume of correspondence that comes in, that the audience for the radio broadcasts that I do, which is is totally separate from the podcasts, it's a totally separate entity. It's it's not this. I do believe that that audience is larger than uh, anything that the podcast itself has. And again, the podcast itself, uh, the audience size again is in the the tens of thousands. Uh, her program, which is which is totally fine by me, you know, I just do this show to do it, but uh, I would say again that the shortwave audience, based on what I see, is about double that size, if I had to just take a wild guess, but again, a lot of these things, they're difficult to quantify, but that's just my understanding of things, being that I, I do the show. As far as profitability goes, uh, forget it. This show, it makes nothing. 
Uh, it, it, it makes nothing whatsoever. That's why I mention if you want to uh, send in a donation, because as far as revenue is concerned, that's it. The uh, ad rate, if there even is one, is uh, the absolute bottom of the barrel, as low as it can possibly get. So, I mean, many of the episodes that I do get demonetized in the first place. None of the other platforms, aside from YouTube, are monetized. There are no sponsorships. There are no advertisers. So, there's nothing. I'd say about in an, in an entire month, and this show generates enough revenue to maybe go and buy one or two fast food meals, and that's it. So, you know, 20 to 40 bucks, and that's about it. So, aside from that, donations is uh, all this show has as far as any sort of financial incentive, which is why, whether people want to hear it or not, I publicize the Patreon and the PayPal and all that at the beginning of every single program. Not that anyone really actually does anything with that, but it gets that information out there, and it's the thought that counts. Um, but as far as making any money off of this, th there's nothing to be made. I mean, absolutely nothing. I tried in 2019, and... Uh, it just didn't work out, so, you know, that's what you, that's what you have. So, if anyone out there is looking into trying to do anything as far as podcasts or, let's say, radio, as a means of trying to make money, you're wasting your time. Don't even bother with it, uh, because it's just not going to happen. There's better, there's better ways to, uh, to do it than this. If anything, it's a good way to lose some money. So, those are just some thoughts there. But it's just the nature of the beast. That's all that you can really say about it. Alright, this one comes in from Ellie in Texas. It's actually two emails. One that was originally sent... Uh, it, it actually goes all the way back to December of 2022. This was kind of, you actually answered the question before I ever even asked it, which is, uh, which is funny, but it's appreciated. And then in March, you, uh, added on to it. So I'll read the first one, and then I'll read what you, uh, added to it. So now let's take a time trip back to the glory days of 2022 to uh, December 20th, as a matter of fact. And uh, the first email reads, Hi, John. I wanted to write in in response to your latest review concerning Taco Bell's poor excuse for customer service with your orders. My best guess as to why you seem to consistently have issues could be location. Not to say it's exclusively one location, but the area itself. Of course, I am unsure if this holds true to the Taco Bells in your area, 
But something I know a lot of Taco Bells do is franchising. I'll go more in-depth on franchises in and of themselves, but if you're already fairly familiar uh, with the topic, feel free to skip the next paragraph. To interject, I am, but I'm going to read it anyway, because maybe some listeners aren't, and uh, you spent the time writing it, so I'm going to read it no matter what. So, you continue now. So, I personally worked for Domino's for about three years, and I worked for two different franchises. What a franchise is, is a company that owns stores from a bigger corporation. Domino's, Taco Bell, etc. A franchise could own anywhere from one to several stores, and these stores will be primarily independent from corporate stores, meaning they have their own regulations, pricing, hiring, pay, etc. The first franchise I worked for was fairly small, barely breaking double digits on the amount of stores in the franchise, and it was therefore pretty tightly managed. Excellence was expected, and for the most part, maintained. Of course, it wasn't always a perfect experience, but it is the fast food industry. The second franchise I worked for, however, was much bigger, with stores numbering in, I believe, the 40s. This franchise was much less tightly managed, and often had issues, and frequently left customers with a lackluster experience. I did what I could to avoid this while working there, but there's only so much you could do to help a poorly managed store run. Now, one could say the size of a franchise can impact how well it is managed, but either way, the management itself is what makes or breaks a store. So my working theory is that all or most of the stores in your area may be part of a franchise that's poorly managed. This is exceedingly likely if they're the same franchise as it's a poorly managed franchise that'll bring down all the stores that it owns. Now, this isn't definitive, and it's possible that you could just be stuck out of luck as far as Taco Bells in your area go. As, of course, uh, the people working in a store may be the issue if they have poor work ethic, etc. I know you've commented on the fast food industry as a whole has gone downhill, and I feel the source of this is simply too much growth. Back in the day when every chain only had a handful of stores, it was so much easier to maintain and assure that good service was provided at each location. But now, with several chains having hundreds of stores, there's so much going on all the time that it's much harder to do that. Now, this isn't to say it's impossible as a proper corporate structure could ensure quality is upkept, but the people at the top don't seem to care. They're making too much money that, well, why should they care if they lose a few hundred customers? Not to say I agree with this sentiment, but that seems like the mindset they hold. It's simply a sad state of affairs. And the only way to really fix it would be to have a full reset 
on all of these corporations, but you and I both know that that's never going to happen, at least not anytime soon. So that was the first email from Ellie in Texas, which again was written back in December of uh, 2022. So I I appreciate that email, and I, I have to say, as I was reading it, I couldn't help but think that this was a new email that was sent in, uh, given the exact nature of what it was that you wrote, uh, being that you answered the question again before I ever even asked it. So, uh, as I said, I couldn't help but think, even as I was reading it, oh, this was an email, you know, just typed out for the show. And then I reminded myself, no, this was before I ever even asked it. So anyway, uh, much appreciated and some good points there. Now, you added a couple months later in uh, March, you bumped it back up as per the uh, request in the previous show. You said hello again from Ellie in Texas. I was listening to the latest podcast and decided that since my email was somewhat relevant to the question, thought I'd bring it up and uh, add to it. So now, the addition. So I said in my last email that I don't believe uh, there will be any form of reset for these corporations and their gross lack of care for the slop they're dispensing and calling food. The main reason I believe is that there simply aren't enough people who care enough to make a change. Having worked in fast food, it became very clear to me that some people will buy fast food no matter what, even if it means they're quite literally scrounging for change. They will order food regardless of how much better for them it would be to just buy it from the store. Some might say this is because of social media or the government and so on and so forth, but I feel that while I agree these are contributors, they aren't causes. I feel that it simply is human nature to try to take the easy way out of things. And it's something built in that so many would lack the self-control to do the wiser thing because humans are animals. The thing is that all of this is available, so yes, people will use it. But this isn't because we've devolved in any way to be this way. If you'd introduced these things a couple hundred years earlier, it would have ended up in a similar fashion. The reason we hadn't seen people making that choice sooner is simply because it wasn't survivable to live that way in the past. They feel people are the way they've always been, but these advancements simply embolden side of humanity that hasn't always been so visible. Anyway, to get back on track from my tangent, too many people naturally lack the self-control necessary to boycott these things, regardless of any excuse they may have. If even half of the people who buy from them regularly were to boycott these restaurants, They may suffer some cutbacks and the workers may strain, but these corporations wouldn't have to sweat enough to make any real change. They may have some sort of, we've heard the people and we plan to be better from here forth, 
and make enough of an artificial change to convince some mass of people to return, but something would, uh, but nothing would truly improve from it. Really hate to say all of this. I truly, truly try to be an optimistic person, and I often disagree with most of your pessimistic outlooks. But this is the one thing I feel we both agree on. As much as I try to search for the positive in the fast food industry, I simply can't find enough to justify saying it will improve anytime soon. Anyway, thank you for listening. Sincerely, Ellie from Texas. Well, thank you, Ellie in Texas, for your thoughts. Much appreciated. Well written. And uh, certainly your thoughts, uh, no matter what they may be, always are appreciated. And uh, I've thought the same thing as far as, you know, there not being enough people. Now, sometimes I see that more broadly, but keeping things purely on uh, the sake of fast food. Yeah, I just, I think, I think you're right. I think that you have people that are just, they're conditioned, you know, they're always going to keep coming back. And, uh. I thought that was a good point, because I know other listeners have brought this up, likewise. And this is how I feel, too. That artificial change, you know? The usual, oh, we're gonna be better, we're gonna do, we're gonna do this, that, and the other thing, blah, blah, blah. But really, what may that, that life-altering, groundbreaking change be, right? What are they gonna do? They're gonna repackage the same slop and put a little bow on it, or put it in a new package, but you're still getting the same garbage. And, uh, that's, that's the way it is. And that's the way it's probably gonna stay. Thank you, though, for your thoughts. Like I said, well put, and, uh, and thanks for resending that. Alright, let me make the rounds one final time. Let's see if there are any that I've missed. If I have, I've apo- I apologize, but I'm trying to get to whatever I can. I do notice that there are a couple messages. I'm just going through them right now that simultaneously answer both questions. I don't think that there are any wherein the listener was having a bad fast food experience during an earthquake or anything like that, but there are some emails that came in where the listener has uh, expressed thoughts on both subjects. And I was thinking just now, as I'm going through them all, what would be the best way to approach that? You know, would there be... Should I just essentially read the email twice? You know, read the first part in one segment and then the second part in the next? But I hadn't uh, any idea. You know, I think the solution came to me just now as I've just been going through making sure that I uh, got to everything. 
what I think I'm going to do next is now I'm just going to read all the emails that deal with both of those things. And that'll be a good uh, separator, so to speak, between the fast food segment and the earthquake segment. Uh, but first, so I'll get to those. There's like four or five emails that I think have that format. And then after that, we'll go strictly to the earthquake ones, which there are nowhere near as many as there are the fast food ones. Which makes sense. I think people are much more likely to have a bad fast food experience than they are a noteworthy earthquake experience. And, uh, anyway, though. Let's just see if there's anything random and quick to get to first. Because I'll still get to some more random messages, but... Some people say that they like it when I leave the microphone on as I do this for some reason, so... I suppose I'll leave this part in, even though it's really... This is a, a good example right here, probably one of the best, perhaps, of essentially taking up time, but not really actually doing anything. I mean, I'm doing something, but you can't see it, you know? You, I'm just going through the email, and I'm checking everything, but... George says, discovered Art Bell this morning, and it's got me thinking, any other time in history, I think your radio show would have been ast astronomical in terms of listenership. Have you heard of Mr. Bell, or have you any opinion of him? From George. So thanks, George. Oh, yes, I'm familiar with Art Bell, and uh, I like him. It's a shame, of course, about his, his passing a few years back, but... Uh, I always liked Art Bell. You know, coast to coast AM, it is what it is. In its current form, I, you know, I treat it as its own show, and I listen to coast to coast AM periodically. But I think Art Bell's coast to coast AM is very different from George Norrie's. And uh, I think, in my opinion, Art Bell was a good example. He made the show. You know, he made the show what it is, what it is today, what it was known for. It was his presentation, his style, his attitude, all of that. He was just a great radio host. And uh, one thing that I had the pleasure of listening to a few years before he died, he uh, tried to do a paranormal show of his own, and it was called Midnight in the Desert. And it was heard on a variety of uh, AM stations, but it was also heard on shortwave, because Art Bell himself uh, was a shortwave listener. I think he was into amateur radio, too, but uh, he certainly knew about the medium and its technicalities, so he probably had more direct oversight over his own show than perhaps Coast to Coast AM, and uh, he had it broadcast on the shortwave as well. 
So throughout 2015, I listened in to uh, Midnight in the Desert, hosted by Art Bell, uh, each night. Listened in on the shortwave, and uh, it was just a lot of fun listening. I'm very thankful I was able to find that and uh, enjoy it while it was still around. But uh, Art Bell never had a problem with him, and uh, thank you again for your question. This next email comes in from Michelle from Italy, who said, In your show above, Random Talk, Irrational Anger, How I Decide What Items I Review, and Strange Dreams, uh, specifically in regards to the dream you talked about, I would suggest you see the movie The Manchurian Candidate. Let me know. Regards from Italy, from Michelle. Well, thank you. I I have no idea what that particular podcast, when it was released. Let's see. Let's find out. So that was two years ago. That was from July of 2020. I couldn't tell you a thing about the dream in that podcast because I don't remember an ounce of it, at least off the top of my head. Uh, But I will say that I am very familiar with The Manchurian Candidate. Uh, I've seen both versions of the film. I've seen the original, 1960s version, and uh, then the remake from the uh, early 2000s. So I am familiar with both. As far as the Manchurian Candidate films go, the 1962 one is my favorite, and uh, always will be. I just enjoyed that one more. The 2004 film is uh, is all right for what it is. One very obscure detail that I remember from the the 2004 Manchurian Candidate. Not that anyone would actually care about this, because it's such an obscure detail and it's such a minor technicality that no one is is going to care. The political parties in each film are never explicitly mentioned, but it's emphasized, at least, that in the 1962 film, the side being focused on are the Republicans, and in the 2004 film, it's the... uh, Democrats that are being focused on. But anyway, toward the end of the 2004 film, it's just a screenshot. It's, like I said, such an irrelevant detail. But if you ever watch that one and you're looking at the scene where uh, they're at the election campaign headquarters and it's election night, then uh, look in the background because at one point they're going to show an electoral map And it's one of the most nonsensical electoral maps I have ever seen. And uh, you can't even equate it to even 1990s politics. It just makes no sense. It's like someone said, and just make every other state a different color. So make one state blue and the other red. And, you know, you know, these days with uh, the election results, there are certain states that are very reliable for one party or the other, and then you have the swing states, and uh, even by the early 2000s, many of the swing states we have today pretty much are still the same, with a few exceptions, but this map, it was like for 2004, they had 
Washington State being red, and you had red California, but you had blue Wyoming and blue Oklahoma with a red New Jersey and then a red Tennessee, and it's just, it was just the weirdest thing. But anyway, it is what it is. The Manchurian Candidate, though, I think it's a good film. I think it's still relevant in this day and age. So thank you for bringing that up. Now taking a look at some of the mixed emails that I would like to get to that deal with both fast food and earthquakes. Getting to a few of those. We hear from Maddie in North Carolina. I hope you are doing well. I was listening to your latest podcast and wanted to answer the questions. In regards to the declining quality of fast food, I believe this is because these companies have realized that they can cut costs by having the lowest quality ingredients and get away with not paying their employees living wages and still bring in a high profit. I rarely ate fast food as a kid, however, I noticed that a similar situation happened with school lunches declining in quality. I enjoyed the hot dogs, fruit, and even the green beans, but by the time I got into middle school, the lunches were practically inedible. It wasn't even necessarily because of Michelle Obama's school lunch program, because I don't mind the wheat rolls and the extra fruits and veggies, so I wasn't too picky about that, but... The vegetables became watery, the food wasn't heated thoroughly, and it gradually started to look more like slop. I always envied kids in school places uh, like Europe. If you look up European school lunch, the meals look home-cooked, healthy, and delicious. Additionally, while I have never eaten McDonald's abroad myself, I looked at menus and pictures people have taken of their McDonald's meals from other countries, such as France, and the food looks better and more appealing than what you get in the U.S. Overall, I believe the food system in the U.S. values profit over providing quality, nutritious food to the consumer. And the ingredients as a whole are different. I've heard many stories of Americans moving to Europe and losing weight, even though they were eating more desserts, and vice versa of Europeans moving to the U.S. and gaining weight. I truly think the food in the U.S. is generally worse in nutrition-wise, and only continues to worsen as the 21st century progresses, which will steadily rise the percentage of overweight people here. As for earthquakes, I experienced a minor one in 2011. I was in elementary school at the time, and relaxing at home that day. I was walking upstairs, where there was a dresser with some vintage dolls on top, that scared me because they were old and had big eyes that seemed to follow you across the room. However, I couldn't take them down because my mother liked them as a decoration. As I was entering the room with the dolls, the shaking started, and all I saw were the dolls rattling around on their own as the whole room shook. Needless to say, I was terrified and ran back down the stairs. I soon realized it was just an earthquake and not the dolls coming to life on their own. Luckily, the only damage was the emotional damage from the dolls, so thank you. Maddie, from North Carolina. 
Much appreciated. I think you bring up some good uh, thoughts. I like the school lunch comparison, too. Likewise, I'll add the doll experience. I'm sure that must have been really creepy, especially when those dolls, I'm sure, gave you some weird, creepy feelings in the first place. And then you see them moving like that. Yeah, I could... I could definitely see that being quite creepy. This one comes in from a regular listener, low-ranking officer in a third-world country. Says, uh, on earthquakes. When I was a child to young preteen, I grew up in California, and earthquakes were common. When you grow around it, it really doesn't seem unusual. I remember the school's evacuation drills and the pamphlets that say to get under heavy furniture or stand in a doorway. It was not strange to glue vases to their resting place. The one time I was actually scared as a child was when this large brass and glass lamp that was very old, large and heavy, fell on me while I was sleeping in bed. It landed on my chest and pinned me to the bed, and I was too small to push it off. The fear was the feeling of helplessness. I couldn't run, I couldn't find my sister or parents, and I was stuck and had to wait until they came and helped me. I wasn't hurt, but being alone and helpless was terrifying. First, to interject, I I agree. I think you bring up a good point. It's that feeling of, of helplessness, that you are powerless to do anything about the situation. That is creepy. The fast food chains, I think, uh, the golden era of them is over, as you mentioned in a previous podcast. Once upon a time, you'd be happy to have a birthday party there. Well, I think it's dead, like the golden era of plane flight. It's gone, because the time for quality is gone. The excesses that enable it are over. Food quality has declined, because there's less of it, and fillers make up more of it, and an all-beef patty is a rear at the fast-food chain. The prices go up because the economy is garbage, and it will get worse before it gets better. Corporations will always be greedy, and that's what they are for. So the question is, how much and what will be to compromise on? Things can get better, but not until all of these things are fixed, and I don't see that happening in the near future. Maybe in a few generations, if the values change, then maybe, but I wouldn't bet on it, but I want to believe, so I remain hopeful. So thank you for checking in there, some good feedback. KP in Arkansas. I admittedly don't eat as much fast food as I once did, but I still have a place special place for Taco Bell. Recently, though, I have gone less and less. They continue to alienate their fan base with increasingly higher prices, boring repetitive limited-time offers, and removing fan favorites. Mexican pizza, grilled stuffed nacho, lava sauce, Baja sauce, etc. I don't see an end in sight as labor costs and inflation go up. They are no longer the low-cost, great value that they were, and because of that, I'll go less and less. 
As far as earthquakes, a few years back I lived in Lompoc, California. Having always been an East Coaster, I was worried about quakes. One moment I was awoken by an extremely loud rumbling and shaking. As I got my wits about me, I immediately panicked and thought it was a quake. My bedroom was on the first floor, and I had a sliding glass door. I jumped up in my cartoon boxers and nothing else and ran into the glass door. I pushed out as fast as I could and ran in a panic to the grassy area in between my building and the other apartment. As I got there, I noticed quite a few people looking at me, and at that moment I realized it wasn't a quake, but rather the local Air Force base, Vandenberg, shooting off one of their heavy test rockets. I had quite the laugh after that, and I watched the rocket launch. So thank you, KP. Checking in. A case of of misidentification as far as the earthquakes go. Thank you for writing in there. This next email comes in from Alex. What's the end game of fast food? The end game of fast food is a hamburger made with stuffed pizza dough from Pizza Hut instead of bread, meat from Taco Bell, vegetables from Subway, and sauce from Chick-fil-A. That is the only way to defeat Review Bra and his army of well-dressed minions. All right, jokes aside. A month ago, my friends and I went to a lookout on top of a hill in the middle of a city, and we took some pictures. We spent most of our day there playing or just goofing around in the scorching sun. It's summer in the southern hemisphere. Afterward, we stopped at a Papa John's and tried two pizzas, all the meats, and one called La Cordillera. We were really hungry, but the pizzas were just okay, kind of underwhelming. In the end, it didn't satisfy us, so we had some churros. Every person commented on how disappointed they were because Papa John's is usually the best pizza around here. On the other hand, two weeks ago, we went to Domino's. I haven't tried a Domino's pizza since high school, and even then I used to think that the pizza was bad, but the crust was good. Well, after trying it, I was pleased to see that, unlike Papa John's, that hasn't changed. Toppings were still mediocre, but just one scale below Papa John's, and the better part was the crust. Simply delicious, doughy texture, that yet retained its bite, buttery and rich, but not overdoing it. I think it was even better than I remembered it. I think it's important to mention that I tend to prefer thin-crust pizza, but when the crust is that good, I don't mind the thicker crust. Seeing those opposite experiences, I can conclude that fast food is like any other business. Some establishments held in high regard might stop being on those spots, but there will be others to take those places. From my perspective, it's safe to assume that fast food restaurants are here to stay forever. Worst earthquake I've ever experienced? The 2010 Chile earthquake, with a magnitude of 8.8. It was one of the strongest earthquakes in the history of my country. It affected more than 2 million people, 
and left a total of 525 dead and 25 missing persons. I must say that thankfully me and my closest family and friends weren't affected at all, but I knew some relatives that lost their houses. All in all, I'm glad the number of victims wasn't that high as we see in Turkey. So thank you, Alex, for your thoughts there. Again, a little bit of everything, uh, some earthquake thoughts, as well as the fast food thoughts. This comes in from Eric. Fast food. I grew up in the 90s and came of age in the early 2000s, which, in my opinion, were the last great times to do so in the United States. Although it was really small, I do remember when gas was less than $1 per gallon. I remember flying before 9-11. Yes, it was awesome. I remember life before cell phones, the internet, fancy gaming systems like the Sony PlayStation. And I remember when fast food tasted good and was reasonably priced. First, to interject, I'll agree with you there. I, I oftentimes wish that you know, I could have had more, my wits about me more back then, and I could have cherished those good days. But, uh, alas, I can't. But certainly I wish that I were born earlier, uh, but there's nothing I can do about it. But again, I will agree, those were, on a very large scale, it seemed like the last happy days in society. You know, after 9-11, a lot changed, but I would be willing to wager that the year where everything seems to have changed completely was 2008. Anyway, continuing. The problem is that the kids in Gen Z and beyond will never know any of these things. They will grow up in a world without the double XL grilled stuffed burrito. They'll never know what it's like to buy Wendy's for a car full of people with just a $20 bill. And they'll never know the joys of getting an original Little Caesars $5 hot and ready pizza, a Mountain Dew 2-liter, and sitting down to a LAN party of Halo Combat Evolved on the original Xbox. I subscribe to the viewpoint that each generation is successively weaker and more lame than the previous. The work ethic, care, and attention to detail in the food industry isn't the same as it was when I was growing up, because the people in the workforce now do not have these qualities to the same degree as previous generations. I don't see any reason why this will change, and thus I see no reason why we should expect the quality of fast food to go back to what it was in the good old days. The people making the stuff simply have never known the quality and value that we have, and thus have no reason to even expect better. It's a problem of generational memory loss. That is an interesting point that you raise. One thing that got me thinking is that sometimes I've wondered, maybe... There are a lot of people that are just conditioned to accept whatever's put in front of them. And as they have never had the alternative, then uh, this, in the minds of some, is great. But in your case, you have the perspective, 
and you got to experience it when it was much better, you could compare the two in your mind and think this just isn't it. As far as earthquakes, when I was living in Washington State, I once felt a primary wave. I was sitting in my apartment playing video games when suddenly I heard a loud slam. The building jerked once. First I thought that a truck had hit the building or something, but when I turned around to look through the window at the parking lot, nothing was amiss. Took me a while to realize that what I experienced was an earthquake. While I was in the Navy, I was on a ship that was preparing to pull into port in Okinawa when the 2011 earthquake hit. We were literally within sight of and lined up with the pier when we had to pull back out to sea and wait for the tsunami warning. The tsunami did not really hit Okinawa, so we were completely fine. At the time, we had no idea or thought of the destruction being wrought. We were mostly just selfishly pissed off because our liberty was being delayed. Even when we finally got to shore and saw the first videos of the tsunami, we had no idea that the Fukushima nuclear plant would melt down. Before that, I also remember watching the devastation of the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami on TV. These are my limited personal experiences with earthquakes. I have lived on the west coast, where there is a slim but non-zero chance of an earthquake bringing your house down on top of you with no warning. Living in tornado country, both previously and presently, I can say that I prefer earthquake country because while you do get more warning with weather, your stuff usually stays in one vicinity in an earthquake versus being spread across three counties if you're hit by a tornado. That said, the actual path of a tornado is small compared to the area of effect nature of earthquakes. So there is a good chance that you'll never get directly hit with one, even if you're living in Tornado Alley. Life is a trade-off, I suppose. So thank you, Eric, for checking in. Some good thoughts there from uh, Eric in Texas, presently. All right, this one comes in from Mike in Phoenix, Arizona. First, I do agree that fast food is getting worse at a majority of places. Think the big names, national and international. But there are a few more localized or smaller fast food chains that I think still deliver the same quality and much higher than the likes of McDonald's, Burger King, etc. To the surprise of no one, likely, In-N-Out still delivers a high-quality meal, both taste and experience, for a comparatively low price. We are fortunate to have them here in Phoenix, but I know many aren't so lucky. The next chain I continue to experience a high level of quality is Freddy's. Not sure if you've ever had Freddy's before, but it's like a steak burger slash custard place. To interject, I have. I've actually been to Freddy's a couple times, but I will add, I believe they are quite good also. 
The prices are definitely higher than most fast food, but the quality and freshness is definitely worth it. And finally, Raising Cane's is the other chain that we continue to have great experiences at. Always fresh, tasty, and cooked perfectly. Some chains are just garbage, but that's half the appeal. There's something about Panda Express that is so terrible, but so delicious. It's my go-to guilty pleasure when my wife is out of town. On to my anecdote. You have had some terrible experiences at Steak and Shake, and it was no surprise to me to see how fast they went downhill. Early on in my college career, we'd frequent Steak and Shake for the garlic doubles. But as the years went on, we noticed a massive drop-off in service and quality. And the last time I ever went to Steak and Shake was on my 21st birthday. After a night of drinking and partying with friends, we went on a Thursday morning at around 3 a.m. and had two garlic doubles and two orders of fries. Probably the most food I've ever eaten in one sitting. The following Saturday, they were shut down for a massive cockroach infestation and repeated failures of health inspections. Finally, I enjoyed your set of emails on the beginning of COVID. I actually have a weird nostalgia for it. Not the good kind of nostalgia, but more of a feeling of, wow, how little we knew and how dumb we were, thinking it was only going to be for a couple weeks. It was a strange time in everyone's life, and it's interesting to hear others' perspective. Personally, I found your channel in that April, and then became an avid podcast listener shortly after. Your video, titled Managing Severe Circumstances Without Losing Your Mind, was a great comfort during that time. I watched it twice, I think, but I wanted to thank you again for it. Most surprising thing now uh, that I think back on is how my wife and I did not eat out once for over a year, even drive through or delivery. Half of March, all of April, and early May, we made maybe three trips to the grocery store and cooked all our food. We tend to make all our own breakfast and lunch, but eat out for dinner a couple times a week. It was wild that we went so long without even food delivery or drive through We did save a ton of money, as I was worried about being laid off, so we barely spent a cent in those six weeks. Mike, Phoenix, Arizona, checking in. Thank you, Mike. The COVID early days. Yeah, that was, that was a unique time, wasn't it? I remember those days, though. There was all that uncertainty as to how, how bad things were really going to be. There was a span of time where, you know, I did all the precautions with groceries and stuff, where I'd wipe it all down with Lysol wipes and all of this stuff. Yeah, it was just, it was a weird time. All of the, all of the, the Zoom meetings and the virtual this, the virtual that. You had drive-in, this, that, and the other thing. You had every, every commercial on TV was just the same. It was like it was all made by the same ad firm, always with this somber piano music, and, you know, we're gonna... We're going to get through this, etc. Thank you again, Mike. 
Alvaro checks in. Long-time listener, but only the second time emailing. I'm a history teacher in Boston, and I'm in the process of teaching my students about the Los Angeles Zoot Suit Riots of 1943. To interject, I'm just going with a random email. During these riots, American servicemen and white Angelinos attacked and stripped Mexican-American children, teenagers, and youths who wore zoot suits, ostensibly because they considered the outfits, which were made from large amounts of fabric, to be unpatriotic during World War II. Rationing of fabrics and certain foods was required as part of the war effort. I wanted to ask if you liked zoot suits, or if you have any thoughts on them. I think they look interesting, but they seem very much outdated to me, and not much of something I would wear in a formal setting, aside from a themed event. So thank you, Alvaro, for your question. Yeah, zoot suits, yeah, they are what they are. I I, I wouldn't wear one. I think they're too flashy for my liking. But in the end, if someone wants to wear a zoot suit, I couldn't care less. Wear it. Uh, sport it with pride, by all means. Uh, but for me, they're just too casual. They're too loud. They're too uh, they're too gaudy in a sense. I always like things with my suits, uh, formal, conservative, and uh, largely traditional. So if you gave me the choice between a zoot suit or a black three-piece suit with a wing collar and necktie, I'll always go with the latter. So, zoot suits, they're, they're, they're fine, but, you know, it's just they're gaudy, they're excessive. Those are my thoughts there, so thank you for your question. Now let's move on to some of the strictly earthquake-related experiences. Matt writes in, Second time corresponding, long-time listener. Back in 2016, I was studying abroad in New Zealand. We were coming back from a five-week geology field camp and stopped at a cafe for lunch. As I was about to order, I saw the plates on the wall begin to shake. We all went outside as a precaution. The earthquake seemed to last for 30 seconds or so, we were about one hour, or 50 miles, from the epicenter. The earthquake ended up being a 5.7 magnitude earthquake, and sometimes is known as the Valentine's Earthquake. It was initially thought to have been a 5.9 magnitude. Once we got to the city of Christchurch, we were prevented from entering our apartments as they needed to be inspected before we could enter. So we all spent the next few hours taking a bus to the mall and went, went shopping for stuff for our apartments that we would need for the next few months. Over the next several months, I experienced a few smaller earthquakes, mainly during the night, and they woke me up. Definitely an interesting experience. Previously, like you, the only earthquake I felt was the DC earthquake, that occurred over a decade ago. On a side note, I noticed that people there got upset when we talked about an earthquake in 2011 that killed 150 people. 
I believe it was a magnitude 6.5. At the airport, we were talking about research projects, and one was about the 2011 earthquake. One of the people in the airport got visibly upset and said, you can't talk about the earthquake in public like that. It's disrespectful. All the best from Matt. So thank you, Matt, for your earthquake experience. It is interesting. I wonder if that's a more... If that's a unique phenomenon, or if that's like a broad thing where it's just over there, you don't talk about that. Or if that just happens to be someone personally impacted. I wonder. Thank you again for sharing your thoughts there. This email comes in from Ella in Boston, who said, first, uh, I apologize for my English. It's not my first language. No worries, and I, I certainly appreciate the, uh, the disclaimer, but you're right. My name is Ella from Boston, Massachusetts. I call them heartquakes because my heart will never be the same. The earthquake that changed my life was the seven-magnitude earthquake in Haiti in 2010. I was in my room watching television when all of a sudden my surroundings started shaking. So I ran outside, standing on a hill behind my house to take a look. What I saw changed my life forever. Ground, trees, houses... The sky, the horizon, everything was shaking and falling over. By the grace of God, my house was not badly damaged. The earthquake happened that afternoon, and later on I went down to the city to see what the damage was. What I witnessed changed my perspective on life and death. I had never seen so many dead bodies lying around, people screaming, panicking, crying in total despair. Truly the saddest moments that I have ever witnessed. From then on, I took the decision to spend the rest of my life focusing on loving God and helping others because life is fleeting and death is inevitable and unpredictable. Kindly from Ella. So thank you for your email and uh, for sharing your experience. Yes, that would be the uh, Port-au-Prince earthquake in uh, Haiti in the year 2010, and uh, indeed that was an, an absolutely catastrophic earthquake that uh, hit Haiti, and uh, the death toll from that was absolutely enormous because of the many disparities in regards to records, the living conditions, etc. The death toll was indeterminate, but at least uh, between 100 and 200,000 deaths, possibly as high as 300,000. Uh, but again, I've seen pictures and videos from there, and the destruction, again, was uh, was enormous. And I'm, I'm thankful that at least in your case, uh, you were able to escape directly the destruction that your residence was all right, but to have to go down and uh, see see the city in that condition, see the death, the destruction, the despair, the panic, and to think that life was carrying on normally, and then it all just changes, just like that. 
so suddenly. So I, I could understand the change of perspective on things as well. You know, to witness something like that, no doubt it would make many of us think and, and re-examine things. So thank you again for sharing that experience. This one comes in from David in Mexico, said, I was listening to your latest podcast, and your question about earthquakes brought about some memories, so I finally decided to send you an email. This is going to be a long one, and I apologize for that, but it's not always that I have the chance to contribute to your podcast, and I apologize if my English is bad. Here in Mexico, earthquakes on the scale of 6 to 7 are rather common, so I'm used to them. And as you might know, Mexico City was originally built on top of a lake, so earthquakes feel very intense. The strongest earthquake I felt was on September 19th, 2017. Two weeks earlier, on September 7th, I was getting ready to go to sleep, when I suddenly started feeling dizzy. After a few seconds, I realized I wasn't dizzy. There was an earthquake. I woke up my parents and my sister, and we were outside waiting it out. This was the first time I witnessed earthquake lights, blue-greenish lights that you see high up in the sky during earthquakes. At the time, I thought it was normal lightning, and remember thinking how apocalyptic it felt to have a storm and an earthquake at the same time. The power eventually went out and the earthquake kept going. It felt like it lasted forever, but it eventually ended. And since it was late at night, we decided to go to sleep. We don't have a shortwave radio, but my dad's AM-FM radio was working, and we found through that that it was an 8.2 earthquake, the strongest of my life. Two weeks later, on September 19th, at around 1pm, I was watching YouTube when I felt the next earthquake. Unlike the one on September 7th, this one felt like an earthquake immediately. No mistake about it. I thought it was funny because September 19th is the anniversary of the 1985 earthquake, the most devastating earthquake in the country's history. And every year, on that day, there's a nationwide earthquake drill. The school near my home had one just two hours earlier. I picked up my dog and decided to wait it out again, but it kept getting stronger, and I realized I needed to get out of the house. It was too late, the ground was shaking so violently that I couldn't walk. I tried to get downstairs and kept getting pushed back. The interesting thing is that it took a few tries for my brain to realize what was going on. I held on to a wall, and with nothing better to do, I looked outside. The trees and the telephone and light poles were swinging from side to side, and I saw a guy in sandals running like hell. I heard some people screaming and dogs barking, and a power head explode. It sounded just like in the movies, which made me realize we had lost power again. I might be misre uh, misremembering, but I think 
there is a loud rumbling sound underneath all of that. Finally, after what felt like an eternity, it finally ended. I tried to get downstairs again, but my legs were shaking so much. I was too afraid to remain upstairs, however, so I had no other option than to walk down slowly, praying to God the stairs wouldn't collapse under my weight. My parents and my sister were at work, and I tried to call them, only to find the touch screen of my phone wasn't responding. Just my luck. It didn't really matter, however, because communications all over the country were down anyway. Once I could walk normally, I inspected the house for damages, and when I found none, I went to buy candles and get ready for a night without power. There were lots of people on the street, some clearly still agitated, some laughing and joking nervously. I came back with the candles, and I think I had to buy those uh, religious-themed ones that are inside of a glass, since they had run out of the normal ones, and I waited for the rest of the family to arrive, while also fearing that they wouldn't come back. My dad arrived one hour later than usual and told me he almost had to slap a woman at his work because she was hysterical. My sister arrived three hours later than usual and told me that the bus driver had picked her up, told her... She was the last person he was letting in the bus because there were a lot of robbers in the street. My mother arrived three hours earlier than usual and told me she was on a high floor on a tall building when the earthquake hit and she saw lots of dust rising everywhere in the city and she was afraid her boss was going to have a heart attack. At the end, it turned out to be a 7.1 earthquake about ten times weaker than the previous one, but it felt much stronger because I think the epicenter was closer. A day passed, and communications were restored, and we found out that many buildings and houses collapsed, and some people just left their cars abandoned in the middle of busy avenues, and also heard rumors of people getting robbed in their houses, by criminals impersonating city inspectors. The power came back again the next day at around 10 a.m. Over the next few days, I kept getting very tense. Every time I saw or felt something moving around me, thinking it was another earthquake. All around Mexico City, there were great displays of solidarity, with people volunteering to clear out rubble and try to find survivors. It got to the point where the government had to tell people to stop trying to help since some areas were getting too crowded with volunteers and people were just getting in the way of the professional rescuers and sometimes getting hurt whilst trying to help. It was around this time when the rescue dog Frida became a national celebrity after helping find many people under collapsed buildings. She died not too long ago and has a statue in her honor. Something weird happened in the earthquake uh, with a school that collapsed. Some children died and some were able to be rescued, but all were accounted for, except for one little girl called Frida Sophia. The media kept running stories about the poor little girl trapped under the school and how... 
every minute was crucial because she could die at any moment. It then turned out that there was no one with that name at the school, and no one was claiming to know her. Most networks dropped the story immediately, except for one network that weirdly kept continuing coverage of the story for weeks after everyone realized she didn't even exist. Apparently, in the 85 earthquake, there were similar rumors about a kid that went missing, and it turned out he didn't exist. Some people say this happens because of mass hysteria, and others say the media makes up these stories. What do you think? Uh, to interject, because you still have a little more, but uh, again, to continue uh, with my thoughts here, I would say that it's a bit of both. I think definitely, as these situations are unfolding, uh, there are many conflicting bits of information. There's always going to be panic. People are going to get details wrong, or uh, people will make mistakes, etc. So these things really do happen, and uh, the mass hysteria uh, definitely is a contributing factor. However, I would say that there are some instances wherein the media especially the Western media, but uh, even overall worldwide, either A, they will blatantly fabricate stories, or B, they willfully will run stories, even if they know that the odds are this information may not be factual, uh, they, will, they will just go right ahead with it. Again, sometimes they will make the fake news, and sometimes they will exploit the existing uh, fakery. So I think it really depends, but these days I am convinced that a lot of media outlets, not all, but too many, way too many, are more concerned with two things. Making a profit, most importantly, and then secondarily, perpetuating an agenda at all costs. And it seems like more and more outlets that supposedly call themselves uh, reasonable, accurate, and unbiased are instead focused on trying to tell you what to think, and that it's my way or the highway, or B, to just feed you whatever BS and uh, make money off of it, and fewer and fewer outlets are interested in just telling you the facts. And it's a, it's a shame really is. It's, uh, it's disgraceful, really. But I think it's a bit of both. And I mean, I, I, I can speak from experience. Granted, this is a one-time thing, but back in 2017, there were some uh, internet trolls that uh, propagated a rumor that uh, I had died in a terrorist attack. The funny thing, though, is that if you even were basically familiar with the circumstances, you'd have to ask the question, what the hell would I even be doing over there? Because allegedly, I was at an Ariana Grande concert in Manchester, all the way on the other side of the Atlantic. As a hint, I was not there. I hadn't even left the state of Florida, and I wouldn't be caught dead at an Ariana Grande concert. But nonetheless, there was a terrorist attack at that Ariana Grande concert in Manchester, and uh, a few people died. Well, allegedly, <laughs> according to the trolls, I was amongst the victims. 
Well, I thought this was utterly absurd. I thought, who would even fall for this? You know, because at first I thought, give me a break, and this is just more of a... You know, it's just, this is just trolling. Uh, but then the emails started coming in. I remember that evening, I was checking my email, and I saw one email. I thought, all right, it's just one email. It's no big deal. But then two, then three, then ten, then twenty. And then in the comments, too. I shook my head. I thought to myself, you've got to be effing kidding me that people are actually, they're actually buying this, that they're actually thinking I died. So I was compelled eventually because too many people were uh, either A, genuinely believing that I was dead or they were just running with the story and uh, even if they didn't even know me. So I had to make a video and say, no, I'm alive, this is just fake news, it's trolling, please ignore this. At that point, it should have been easily verifiable that I was alive and unaffiliated. But some of these supposedly reliable, and I would say that with air quotes around it, mainstream media networks in the U.S., not that evening, but the next day, still reported that I was amongst the victims. And I thought to myself, you know, this, this sealed the deal because I was already skeptical of the media, but that confirmed that I thought, you know how easy it is to just check and see that, oh wait, no, this guy isn't even a part of it. You look up my channel, and the first thing you see is a video of me there saying, I am alive. How difficult is it for you to do that, exactly? If you're going to report that as a mainstream media outlet, you think you would have the competence to do a quick 10-second Google search and see this video and then redact the information because you would then realize, oh, wait a minute, no, this guy isn't a victim. But these networks, so lazy, incompetent, and careless that they are, they didn't even bother. They couldn't care less. All they care about, like I said, money, and trying to tell you how you should think, and act, and live your life, and that's it. Worthless media outlets. That's what they are. And I know those are harsh words, but... I just speak from personal experience, and I can't help but feel that way about them. And uh, you could talk, of course, about whether my sustained bitterness is justifiable, but I, I think it is anyway, because I know that this isn't the only instance where this nonsense happens. It happens constantly. And it happens with uh, far more important things, I'll say, than just whether or not I was victim to this, that, or the other thing. Very important things that could affect you, your life, the lives of all of us, and they just treat it with the same disregard. Like I said, it's, it's disgraceful, really. And I didn't mean to go on this rant, but uh, it was just a thought that came to mind. Now, finishing your email, and I'm sorry, David, to have to put you through that. There is nothing directed at you. You just you brought up some interesting... Uh, thoughts that, that got, uh, got me thinking. Anyway, you say, these days, September is considered to be earthquake season in Mexico, 
And while scientists and know-it-alls claim that earthquakes are unpredictable and earthquake seasons are impossible, people think it's too much of a coincidence that strong earthquakes seem to happen every year on September. Just this past September 2022, there were another two strong earthquakes, one even happening again on the 19th, a few hours after the annual drill. In my personal experience, the top five scariest earthquakes I felt have occurred on September. Those two from 2017, one from 2021 where I was at work and could hear parts of a wall falling down near me, and the other two from 2022. What do you think? Do you think earthquakes are random, or do they follow a pattern that scientists are not yet able to describe? Uh, Again, to interject, it wouldn't surprise me if there is a pattern uh, to them that perhaps with our current technology we can't predict, um, but there may very well be, perhaps in the, in the Earth's mantle, in regards to the plate tectonics and all of that, uh, that there may be long-term trends that uh, could be observed, and with uh, better technology and scientific advancements beyond our understanding, uh, we may be able to discern certain trends and uh, perhaps forecast I think our current abilities, at least by the uh, the mainstream, there might be powers that be that can predict this stuff. I mean, who knows? There's a lot of technology, I think, that isn't accessible to the average person uh, that we will never know about. But uh, I think from the mainstream point of view, uh, there is no way to accurately predict them. So therefore, they're treated like they're random. Uh, but that's not to say that they occur with pure spontaneity, that they they may occur, there may be a rhyme or reason behind them, and there may indeed be an earthquake season. Uh, But is there anything right now that could be said, you know, to prove that? No. It wouldn't surprise me, though, if uh, that ever does turn out to be the case, Uh, because, in my opinion anyway, I could believe that. And uh, we will see what the future holds. You know, you'll have people out there that act like we know everything now and we have the answers for everything. And they will say definitively that you can't prove that. So obviously there's no such thing as an earthquake season. But I like to leave the door open a bit because, as I say before and I shall say again, yes, humanity has made great strides. But to think that we know everything and have the answers for everything is, in my opinion, one of the most ignorant things one could ever think. Concluding your message, I think that's all I have to say about earthquakes. I got carried away because I'm happy to share my story with you. You could find lots of videos uh, of the 2017 Mexico earthquakes and Frida the Rescue Dog on YouTube. There's a funny picture floating around somewhere on the internet of men getting caught <laughs> caught by the earthquake inside a brothel and having to leave half-naked with the girls. Uh, keep doing a great job. Sincerely, David. Well, thank you, David, from Mexico. Mexico City, uh, checking in. I appreciate your thoughts. I appreciate the time you took to write your thoughts. And uh, likewise, I would like to say that you uh, described them clearly and eloquently. So uh, I would say... Uh, Give yourself a pat on the back because I think that you have good command of the English language.
So thank you, David. Checking in there with an earthquake experience. You're listening to VORW International. So this next email comes in from Kai, who writes, In 2016, I was living in Korea and experienced the 2016 Ulsan earthquake, which was a magnitude 5 earthquake. I believe it was the fifth largest recorded in Korea at the time. I was visiting some friends in Busan, which is a popular tourist district in the southeast of the country. Busan neighbors Ulsan, so the effects of the earthquake were felt quite strongly by my friends and I. We were in a Starbucks overlooking the beach at night when the earthquake struck. My girlfriend had gone downstairs to use the bathroom, so myself and a friend were left upstairs on the second floor. We were just chatting when suddenly the table in the windows started shaking and the building felt like it was moving. I hadn't experienced an earthquake anywhere near that level before, so my first instinct was at a large truck where something had gone past outside. But as the tremors continued, I realized what was happening. There was no serious local damage, and we laughed nervously about it afterwards, but for my girlfriend, who had been stuck in a cubicle at the time, it was much more frightening. There have been more severe earthquakes in Korea since, but thankfully I've always been visiting at other times of the year and have missed them all. Best wishes from Kai. So thank you for your earthquake experience there. A pretty unique one over in South Korea. This one comes in from Aki in Japan, who says, This is my first time writing to the show. Regarding earthquakes, I'd like to share a piece of my experience and thoughts. When the massive earthquake hit Japan on March 11, 2011, I was 11 years old. Fortunately, the place I lived in at the time was located in the southern part of Japan, and I felt nothing when the earthquake struck. One thing I want to point out is that there was one more big problem aside from the earthquake and the tsunami itself, which was the radioactive contamination caused by an accident at the nuclear power plant. There were many rumors about food, water, and crops being contaminated, driving farmers into a corner. No one knew if that was true or not because it sounded very likely, unlike most of today's conspiracies. At the time, politicians said it was unexpected and unforeseen, and I'll say that's exactly why natural disasters are scary. And you can see that if you looked at what happened in Turkey and Syria. I heard nuclear power produces less carbon dioxide, but to this day I still doubt its safety. So thank you for your thoughts there in regards to the earthquake that hit Japan back in 2011. Yeah, nuclear power, you know, the way I see it, and I don't expect everyone to agree with my point of view, I, I support nuclear power, but at the same time I just think it is something that's very powerful and it needs to be taken seriously. You know, that's all that there is to it. With immense power comes immense uh, responsibility, and it's not something that can just be misused or mismanaged. But uh, that's just my opinion there. 
This next message comes in from Justin in Gary, Indiana, formerly Portage. One night in 1994, when I was 13, I was crying to my parents that I didn't want to go to bed because we were going to get an earthquake. My parents thought something was wrong with me and forced me to calm down and get to bed right away. I couldn't sleep, and when I would get close to uh, drowsing off, my fear of a huge earthquake would jolt me back awake. I can still remember hearing the rumble getting closer and closer before we could get out to bed, my bed thrusting upwards, throwing me into the air. It was as though the house was alive and jumping and shaking quickly from side to side. At this time, in the early 90s, there were PSAs warning that if you were ever in this situation, to tuck yourself into a door frame, as it is the strongest part of the structure. Today it is well known not to do this. My parents and sister were all tucked into the door frame of my room. I don't know why they all thought to run to me and my door frame. The noise was so loud we could hear strange noises from outside, like crashes and explosions. We had been in many earthquakes, but it seemed like this one was never going to stop. Our house would lean south, then tilt north, then back south. It just continued. We all held onto the frame and each other. We almost fell over, but my father kept his arms around us, uh, both hands firmly grasped to the door frame across from him, keeping us stable between his arms. When it was over, my dad rushed us outside, just in case of our structure damaging or the gas leak. We got outside and saw all our neighbors do the same. The sun was not yet coming up, and we could clearly see an orange glow west toward Los Angeles. It was a 6.7 magnitude, and the fear of aftershocks kept our community terrified for months. There were over 50 casualties, and more than 100,000 became homeless. I remember they said we didn't get the the worst of it. Not far was Northridge. That was where it was centered. It seems like everybody knew someone who lost their life or their home. My parents knew of three families that went homeless. I'd like to leave a positive note to this story. I learned to be prepared for anything after this. So when COVID hit, I already had over a thousand of toilet paper, cases of paper towels, tons of food. I prepared meals and delivered them along with distributing toilet paper during the worst time of the shortage. That earthquake taught me to be prepared to help others during times of need. And because of that, many more people were helped during COVID. So I'm glad... I experienced such an act of God at such a young age. It helped me shape me into who I am today. God bless you for all you do and have continued to do. I may give people things like toilet paper and food, but you provide all your listeners with a sense of comfort and logic for that. I thank you. Well, thank you, Justin. Justin over there in Indiana. You're too kind if... I may say so myself, but I appreciate your kind words. I think this is the last earthquake email. Comes in from Helen, who says, 
It moved me to hear you speak about your 12-year YouTube anniversary and how astonished you were about those who reach out in appreciation of your positive impact on their lives. Please believe them. My life resembles a moving train wreck. We lurch from crisis to crisis. I have been to some dark places in recent years, often wondering how I can keep going, but since discovering your channel and show in November last year, I feel as though a door has opened and you have granted me a new perspective on life. The sense of positivity that you have given me is worth its weight in gold, and you always have my sincere thanks and respect for that. Now let me turn to earthquakes. The devastation caused by the recent one in Turkey and Syria is so difficult to comprehend. I've often heard them being described as an act of God, which I cannot wrap my head around, as I believe it's an act of plate tectonics and a horrific one at that. What God would want so much suffering, death, and destruction? Well, that's a whole other discussion. Yes, I have been in many earthquakes, but not ones that have caused widespread harm. I moved to Japan in 1996 when I had just turned 22, and I was eager to experience everything Japan had to offer. I wasn't prepared for the first earthquake, however. I worked on the third floor of a building in a provincial town and was standing in the open-plan office when the floor began to sway and the filing cabinets clatter. The movement became more and more violent. I was alone and I panicked. I ran to the window. I later learned this is exactly what you shouldn't do and was aghast to see people milling back and forth, crossing the road as though nothing was going on. What felt to me like a massive earthquake was an everyday routine to the Japanese locals. Well, by the end of the year, I was just as blasé. One early morning, about 11 months later, I was sleeping on my futon when an earthquake hit so strong, it lurched me out from under the covers and across the floor. I got mildly irritated and got back into bed and immediately fell back asleep. I think the most afraid I've been in an earthquake was several years later in 2000, when I was living in Nagoya. I'd got home from work late at night and was cooking on my gas stove when suddenly there was a lurch and the building just kept on swaying. I remembered my Japanese teacher telling me about the great Hanshin earthquake of 1995 and how she had thought, this is going to stop now but the tremors kept going. I thought the gas pipe was about to break, so I turned off the gas and went to stand under the door frame. Fortunately, the earthquake then ceased, and no damage was done. All my best wishes to you, John, and please do take care of yourself. Well, thank you, Helen, for your email there and for your kind words. It is interesting, and I could, I could picture it just now, that uh, obviously all the locals, you know, the earthquakes are just a part of life. Uh, just I imagine the dismay at first you must have felt upon feeling what at the time seemed like one heck of an earthquake, only to glance out the window and see everyone just going about their business as if it's no big deal. And, uh, and like you mentioned, though, eventually over time, you experience it more and more, and yeah, it just becomes a part of life. You know, you can't drop everything at every little tremor. 
But at the same time, you could eventually, I would wager, distinguish what are the tremors worth taking action for and what's no big deal. You know, it's, I bet it's pretty easy to tell. So thank you for your thoughts there. Now let's take a look at just some random emails that came in. Let's go over to this one first. Forrest writes in uh, from... Oh, wow, this is a resend. This was from all the way in January 2022. After watching your most recent video in which you reviewed KFC's Beyond Fried Chicken Nuggets, I couldn't help but wonder what you end up eating in lieu of your planned meal uh, when the fare is less than stellar. Do you have a contingency meal ready to potentially do another video review? Do you order a reliable standby? Or perhaps just grab an apple from the kitchen and call it a day. So, uh, thank you there, Forrest, for your email there, and thank you for resending it. Well, generally speaking, I actually don't eat all that much, and uh, if the review item turns out to be bad, I usually I just don't eat afterward, and that's that's it for me. And uh, I'll just wait until the next uh, day or whenever I get hungry again. But uh, usually I just won't bother with, with anything afterward. I'll drink some water, have some healthy drinks too that I'll, I'll drink that'll get nutrients that way. I do that a lot. I just kind of go with uh, liquids. It's just It's easier for me that way. And uh, call it a day. Uh, but sometimes there are establishments where I will get something else in addition. Uh, if there is a place that I know very reliably does, you know, a great job with this, that, or the other thing, I'll always get that as just a, you know, a backup item. So, for instance, KFC, despite the disgusting Beyond Nuggets, I really liked their popcorn chicken, and I really liked their wings. So, I think that night, I also got some popcorn chicken, and I was able to eat that after the Beyond Nuggets went straight into the trash. So, it all depends. Sometimes there is a contingency plan. Sometimes, if I'm very hungry, I'm not going to deprive myself of food. I'll get something else. Uh, sometimes I'll make something. But I'll, you know, I'll figure it out, and... There is always, depending on my appetite, some sort of alternative. So thanks again for your question. This one comes in from Ron. A uh, question about shortwave radios. Uh, do you have any opinions on the Grundig... What is this? S450 DLX radio. I can get one for less than $20 at Goodwill. For an extra 13, I can get a 23-foot wire antenna. Uh, my house is at 1,800-foot elevation, but surrounded by trees. Any opinion would be greatly appreciated. Uh, so thank you for your question. Number one, get the wire antenna no matter what, uh, because that is going to make a huge difference in terms of reception. So get the wire antenna and uh, make sure you string it up onto one of those trees. It has to be outdoors, so string it. Feed it out of a window if necessary, but uh, make sure it goes outdoors and away from the house, uh, because that will greatly enhance reception. 
I was actually doing a little bit of radio listening uh, before I got to the microphone, and I was just comparing on uh, one of the the bands. I was listening to frequencies in around the the uh, seventeen thousand kilohertz range, one of the higher frequency bands. And uh, I was scanning around on one of the broadcast bands, and I was using my radio, uh, Texun PL880, and I just had the regular, the regular uh, telescopic antenna. And I could pick up a few of the real strong stations, so I was able to get uh, Radio Exterior de España on two frequencies, and uh, that came through very clear. And I was also able to pick up some station uh, to Africa coming in pretty nicely. But other than that, yeah, just some fluttery, you know, weak transmissions. So I plugged in the wire antenna, which I have uh, out a window connected to uh, just away from everything. And sure enough, now all of a sudden, I scan the same range of frequencies I'm able to pick up the Voice of America in English totally clear. Uh, they had a broadcast called Africa News Tonight, and they were talking about, uh, you know, obviously news in the African continent. It was in English. Uh, so that was coming through great. I picked up the BBC World Service on two frequencies in English. Uh, obviously, Radio Exterior de España on its two frequencies. I got uh, Deutsche Welle in Hausa. I was able to pick up Radio France International. Again, that one station that was already coming in clear to uh, Africa that was booming in. I was also able to pick up uh, a broadcast targeting uh, the uh, Kurdish population. I forget the name exactly, but uh, it might be called like Dengue Kurdistan or something. Maybe it's Denge or Dengue or something like that. Kurdistan. And uh, that's a broadcast for uh, obviously the Kurdish uh, peoples there in parts of Syria, Iraq, and Turkey. And they broadcast from a transmitter in Uzbekistan. So the signal originates from Uzbekistan and is transmitted toward the Kurdish areas. But given that shortwave is global, it carried over to North America, and uh, I was able to pick up all those broadcasts. Uh, I also got Radio Algeria. They were coming through also. So just by plugging in that wire antenna, there was so much more I could listen to. So trust me, they do make a difference. As for the radio itself, uh, there's nothing I can really say about it because I don't own it. But the price for it looks like it's anywhere, generally speaking, between a hundred and three hundred dollars. So if you're getting it for twenty bucks, understand. Just ask yourself the question: Why is it twenty bucks? You know, is it just because it's goodwill and this is a good deal? Or is it because if you buy the radio, it won't even work? So just understand, am I getting what I'm paying for? I don't know. I, I, I couldn't tell you. 
I can say, though, looking up that radio, over the years, I have gotten some reception reports from listeners with that radio. Back in 2018, this guy says he was in Charleston, West Virginia, listening in on that radio. Solid signal. Uh, listening in on a cheap, portable Grundig, etc., coming in loud. Uh, this listener in Washington State said, listening on my backyard deck on that radio. Uh, let's see. This guy was in Washington, D.C., first-time listener using that. This guy in Tennessee says, I listen every week on that radio. So, it seems to me uh, like listeners have caught the broadcast on that exact radio and seem to have good things to say about it. So I would say, if you have a good feeling about it, uh, then give it a shot, see what happens. Look, it's just 20 bucks, so... I say go for it, but that's up to you. All right, this one comes in... This is actually a resend of the predictions show, but let's go for it. My predictions for 2023. I honestly don't see anything life-changing, such as another pandemic or a hurricane Katrina. I feel like this year will be one of stability, following previous year's scars. The COVID pandemic was a splash of icy water onto the face of humanity, as we saw how people will act when entropy threatens our quaint little civilizations. We specifically saw in the retail sectors that people will hoard for themselves first and let everyone fend for themselves, shown aptly with the toilet paper, hand sanitizer, cold medicine shortages. Much of society is beginning to adapt to a post-pandemic mentality with people embracing, working from home, and wanting to keep their distance from each other. Along with simply accepting government sanctions and the relief, they send out to help the sanctions go down smoothly. Now that we as a collective have taken our government-issued medicine, I see a sort of inebriation period coming where things will sort of float along as this adjustment period continues to shape society as we know it. In short, there will be a few hems and haws, but I see it as a passive year of underlying change, be it good or bad, who can know. So thank you there for your visa and some 2023 predictions. Uh, Chris, Southwest Omaha, Nebraska area, also a 2023 prediction. I predict that in 2023 we won't find a cure for the coronavirus. Hope I'm wrong. I wouldn't eat a bat either. So thank you, Chris. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be a cure for it. It's, it's here to stay, and it's never going away. And at this point, we all just have to live with it. Just accept that it, this thing is here. It's never going away. It's going to be like the flu at this point, where it's just going to be a part of life. And, and that's it. That's uh, the way it is. COVID, yeah, it's not packing its bags anytime soon. Tom, in Aptos, California. I wonder if you watch silent, old, or period piece movies to enjoy the clothing being worn. So, to interject first, uh, I have. It's not something that I do terribly regularly, but I do pay attention to either old or, or period piece uh, 
movies, and uh, I do pay attention to those things. Uh, what I pay attention specifically to is uh, movies that take place between the 1910s and 1940s, and I'm curious how accurate they are um, with the understanding that in real life, people in, again, let's say from 1910 to even the 40s, even the early 50s, that there was still a percentage of the population that still wore uh, the older styles of clothing from the Victorian and Edwardian eras. You know, it's not a huge percentage, but there were still people around uh, that did. And I'm always curious if some of these movies throw in a few of those, uh, you know, outliers that uh, aren't all wearing the modern attire. It's just a little detail that I pay attention for. Uh, because it's true, you know, you just look at the world around you any given day, and you will see people wearing all sorts of clothing, and you'll see people that are wearing the latest fashions, or whatever is popular, most people will be, uh, but you're also going to see some people out there still wearing more uh, dated clothing, be that intentionally, or it's just, that's just what they wear. It's like if you look at the suits that men wear, if you look in various offices, formal occasions, uh, the legal system, politics, you'll quickly realize that not every suit that the politicians are wearing is a brand new contemporary, you know, suit from the 2020s. Uh, you'll still see, especially in politics where uh, many of the folks are older, you'll still see people wearing suits with styles that were more popular in the 90s, early, mid-2000s, and uh, it's not all still, you know, the same slim-fit suits. So, you know, that's how it was back then, too. In the 1920s, not every person looked like Al Capone or something. Uh, they weren't all wearing these uh, big pinstripe suits with, you know, the big Tommy gun and the big fedora hat. You still had people wearing more uh, formal attire from decades past. You still had people out there wearing frock coats, top hats. You had people wearing detachable wing and imperial collars. They weren't a majority. They were a minority. But they still existed, and they were still out there. And I'm curious how many movies kind of uh, kind of get that. Now, interestingly, I know there were some movies that actually kind of <laughs> do that too much, almost. There's one uh, film out there that I remember I watched once. It kind of harkens to the very, very early beginnings of cinema. There was a movie from 2011 called Hugo, and uh, it's supposed to take place in the year 1931. Paris, uh, 1931. And uh, the one thing with that is I think at that time, by 1931, there were still people around that dressed in those Edwardian uh, fashions 
but I think they actually kind of increased the number of people that dressed that way almost a bit too much by then, because it seemed like uh, if you look at the way the extras are dressed, and yeah, this is one of those things that pretty much only I will notice, but it's like every other person in that movie is wearing either a wing collar or a detachable collar with a necktie, a three-piece suit. They'll have a long coat, walking stick, and a bowler hat. And no doubt those people were around back in the early 30s, but I just don't think every other person uh, was still wearing such older styles back then. It's like maybe one in every... I'd say probably 10 to 15 people was, not one in every two, like the movie portrays, but... I mean, that doesn't bother me. I wish people still dressed like that. Those those ensembles are awesome. And, uh... It was just something that I happened to notice. Alright, you also ask... Has anyone ever addressed you in a friendly way as suits? And if I ever come in contact with an alien being, I hope they have the same disposition as you. So thank you, Tom. Now, no one's ever called me suits at this point, but I'm sure someone will now. But uh, now I've never been uh, referred to as such. Dimitri in Estonia says, What kind of books do you enjoy most? For me, it's important that I learn something from every book that I read. So I usually go for popular science, psychology, sociology. Is there a book you think everyone should read? Probably answered this question before, and if so, I apologize. So thank you for your email there, Dimitri. No, it's, um... Yeah, I think that people should read what they, uh, read what they want to read, but do so, you know, objectively, critically think, and, uh... If a book seems overwhelmingly biased one way or the other, just take into account that there's a bias here. Now, these days, I've mostly just been doing light reading, I would call. I read a lot of short stories, often in the horror genre. It's, uh, I just enjoy it. But, uh, I just do a lot of light reading these days, you know, just read a bunch of short stories each night for the most part. And that's about it for me. So thank you for your question there. Uh, this listener says, uh, I'm Eric from Baytown, Texas. I remember hearing you say if you were to write a sort of book, uh, you would publish a collection of short stories. I was wondering if you have written any, and if uh, so, will you publish them? To interject, I know I answered the first question earlier in the broadcast. Two, have you read any of Stephen King's horror uh, novels? Yeah, I, I have. I've read a, I've read a couple of them. Uh, actually, a bunch of them. So, yes, indeed, I have. I was actually thinking about The Mist the other day. Both the uh, story and the movie itself. I think with the movie... You know, the acting isn't perfect, but, uh, the ending, you know, I gotta, I liked the ending of it. It's morbid, but that's, uh, my take there. 
the thing about the mist that you always have to remember is that, you know, the creatures in the mist, I don't necessarily regard them as evil. They're just kind of, you got, you got to remember that. It's not like the creatures are there specifically to kill anything that moves and they're deliberately targeting people. The way I look at it is that a portal was opened to another dimension and the things that came out of the portal were not there on attack mode. They were just living their lives and they're now trying to adopt to the new environment that surrounds them. And that's it. They're just wild animals just uh, trying to make do in a new world. You know, are they dangerous? Yes. Are they deadly? Yes. Will they kill you? Probably. But are they there with the specific purpose of going around door to door and killing anything that moves? I don't think so. They're just living their lives and uh, probably which is victim of the circumstance. All right, this one comes in from Sarah in New Hampshire. I'm not sure how I started watching and listening to your shows, but it began with the food review series. I found it funny, as a person who eats very little fast food, that I shall enjoy your channel so much. You have a really wholesome way of being genuine. Your manner of speech and the way you carry yourself is a joy to experience. I thank you for all the content and willingness to share it with the world. I hope it isn't weird to say, uh, but I'd like to think that if we went to school together, maybe we would have been friends. I've watched pretty much all your reviews. When I heard about the radio show, I backtracked to the beginning, and uh, I've been listening to some of the older videos while I draw. Couple questions. Have you ever watched the show Joe Perra Talks With You? I think you might really enjoy it. If you have seen it, do you like it? So, uh, thank you for the recommendation there. I have seen it. I wouldn't say that I am a frequent viewer by any means, but I found it enjoyable. I like the style. And, uh, yeah, I don't have anything bad to say about it, but I haven't seen a ton. But what I did see, I liked. And two, would you ever consider a one or two word prompt in your VORW channel perhaps once a month, where listeners could use the prompt of your choice to draw, write a short story or poem based on the prompt, and then they could post their drawing, poem, interpretive dance, short story, etc. on social media and uh, tag you in it as a unique way getting more viewers and more interactions. I think it could be a fun way to connect. That's something I'd have to put a little more thought to, but thank you for bringing it to the table. And finally, a quick UFO story. About 10 years ago, I was driving south on 16 in New Hampshire around 1 a.m., and I noticed a formation of lights that were amber in color. The formation was a V pattern, like geese, uh, but would uh, that geese would be in, but the lights were not moving forward by the point of the V, but moving sideways, as if one of the long sides of the V led the formation. Each light moved in the same way a stationary flame on a candle would. 
where it didn't lose its location in the formation, but seemed to dance around in place as it glided forward. There were at least ten of these in the formation. Anyway, it stuck with me. I thought you'd like to hear about it. So thank you, Sarah, in New Hampshire, for your questions and experience, too. I think that was interesting. I could imagine in my mind that sort of the way that they would just dance around like that. That is cool. Who knows what it was, but certainly I'm sure it's an experience that you'll never forget. This next email comes in as a V-send from Quinn. Says, First off, I hope you are well and that 2023 is treating you well. I'm actually looking at 2023 with a lot of hope and optimism, not because of anything happening in the world, but more about some exciting things in my life. I'm finally taking charge of my health and sticking to a diet and exercise plan. I feel like my goals are reasonable and achievable, and I have already seen some results. Towards the summer, I am planning a backpacking trip with my dad, and I'm really looking forward to it. It will be two weeks out in the wilderness, covering about 250 miles. It's something I've been wanting to do for a couple of years now, and it's finally coming together. Then, in the fall, I will most likely be moving again to be closer to friends and family, which I'm very excited about. I've been living here for a year and change, and it's been a lonely time, but I think important to me, important for me to experience, it's shown me how important it is to be close to the ones I love. Those are my predictions, plans for my life. I think the world doesn't... I hope the world doesn't get in the way much because I'm excited about these plans and life changes. Wishing you all the best in this new year. Thanks for all the work you put into making content. So thank you, Quinn. Uh, that was a resend of a prediction, originally sent in for the predictions show. A very positive one, uh, I will certainly add. And I hope now that we are a few months into 2023, uh, that everything so far on your end is coming together, that everything is, is falling in line, and I hope everything is uh, going going nicely, just as you hoped it would, if not better. This listener goes by the name That Dude, who says, Recently, I've discovered a very heartwarming YouTube series called Hall of Shame. In this long-running news segment out of Detroit, Michigan, reporter Rob Wolchek runs down these real-life scuzzbags and exposes their misdeeds, be it scamming old ladies out of thousands, fake care repair businesses, illegal towing, you name it. He doesn't care and will walk right up to them and confront them live on air. To me, personally, Detroit seems rough and scary. I mean, come on, there's a reason Robocop is set there. But Rob has given me a sense of hope that good still exists even in horrible places. What is your opinion on him and his actions? So thank you for your question. At first, the name and uh, all of that didn't uh, resonate with me, but as I you sent a link to the channel, so I checked it out, and I realized over the years I had actually seen a few of these videos, and uh, 
while this is just one guy, uh, certainly I appreciate what he does, provided that all the facts and everything are, uh, are matching and that these indeed are uh, legitimate scammers, etc. And uh, these are folks that it's verifiably confirmed that what they're doing is wrong and are harming others, and I haven't any problem whatsoever uh, with this reporter confronting them. As a result, it's uh, not only maybe it will get a couple people to think, probably not, uh, but at the very least, it'll kind of serve as a little bit of a warning, you know, to avoid this service or whatever that they might be scamming and that they're out for you or your money or whatever it might be. And uh, plus it makes for some entertainment. So the way I see it, uh, it's certainly what I would wager, a position that has its risks because you don't know how people are going to react. And uh, it's probably more risky than you would initially think. But at the same time, provided all the information, like I said, is uh, verifiable and that these aren't just random people that are being harassed, I, I have no problem with it. So uh, I'll have to check that out a little bit more. But, but those sorts of things uh, can kind of... It could be nice to see when you're so used to seeing it the other way around where these scammers ruin someone's life, they take someone's money. I mean, you name it. So it's refreshing to see. This one comes in from Henry in Worcester, Massachusetts. Here is my response to the first question regarding my thoughts about the future of fast food. Firstly, it is important to acknowledge that fast food restaurants have been a cornerstone of the American food industry for several decades. These establishments have played a significant role in shaping the way Americans eat, and their convenience and affordability have made them a popular choice for millions of people across the country. However, there have been growing concerns in recent years about the quality of food served at fast food restaurants. Some have accused these establishments of using low-quality ingredients, including poorly managed processed meats and genetically modified produce. Additionally, there have been reports of unsanitary conditions in some fast food kitchens, which has led to concerns about food safety. Furthermore, there have been complaints about the behavior of some fast food staff with accusations of rudeness and unprofessionalism. These concerns have been amplified by the rise of social media, which has allowed customers to share their negative experiences with a wider audience. While these issues are certainly cause for concern, it's important to note that fast food restaurants have faced similar criticisms in the past and have managed to weather these challenges. Many of these establishments have made efforts to improve the quality of their food and the cleanliness of their facilities and have implemented training programs to address issues with staff behavior. Ultimately, the fate of fast food restaurants in the United States will depend on their ability to adapt to changing consumer preferences and address concerns about food quality, cleanliness, and staff behavior. While there is certainly a risk that these establishments could fall out of favor with consumers, it is also possible that they would continue to thrive if they are able to evolve 
and meet the changing demands of the customers. For the second question regarding my worst earthquake experience, I never thought I would experience an earthquake here in Massachusetts, but in 2021, an unexpected earthquake hit the state, and it was one of the scariest moments of my life. I was at home just going about my day when I suddenly felt the ground start to shake. At first, I thought it was just a passing truck or a construction site, but the shaking got more intense, and I realized it was an earthquake. The shaking was so violent that it knocked over some of my belongings, and I could hear some things falling and crashing in other rooms. I was terrified and didn't know what to do. Thankfully, it only lasted for a few seconds, but it felt like an eternity. Once the shaking stopped, I quickly got out of my house and looked around. I could see that my neighbors were also outside, looking scared and confused. In the aftermath of the earthquake, I learned it was very rare for Massachusetts. The earthquake was not strong, but it was still strong enough to cause damage to some buildings in the area. Although I was lucky that my home wasn't damaged, the experience of the earthquake left me feeling shaken and vulnerable, and it made me realize that natural disasters can strike anywhere, and we should always be prepared for the unexpected. So thank you, Henry, in Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, for your thoughts there, both on the state of fast food, as well as uh, your earthquake experience. And I will add that uh, you just don't know. You don't think of earthquakes ever hitting Massachusetts, but that's not to say that it's impossible. So I think you uh, ended your thoughts on a, a a good point that I hope people think about. You know, that's a, sometimes a cliched phrase, but there is some truth to it. Try to expect the unexpected. Doesn't mean you have to go ridiculously overboard and uh, try to prepare for extremely unlikely scenarios, but, you know, it's a sometimes those sorts of what-if questions, maybe they shouldn't necessarily be dismissed. Joanne in San Diego, California, sends in this message. The meaning of friendship has been bothering me recently. In my own experience, people associate with me as long as I am providing them something of value. It could be material things or non-material things like being helpful or being someone to do activities with that are easier to do with another person, like hiking. As soon as I stop being of value to them, that friend will never speak to me again, no matter how close I thought we were. I don't have any long-term friendships, it's always been about convenience, not caring about the actual human being. Is this normal? Is the cliched meaning of friendship a real thing for other people? Thanks and take care, Joanne, San Diego, California. So thank you for your question. Now, the answer that I am going to give shouldn't necessarily be taken as a definitive fact, or or I should say an absolute uh, truth that, you know, this is definitely how it is, etc. I'll just give my two cents based on what I have personally witnessed and observed, and make of that what you will, because I'm sure, depending on who you ask, uh, you'll get a different answer. So... 
I personally have always interpreted friendship as appreciating another person for the individual that they are. You're not looking to get anything out of it. You're not seeing the person as a resource, but you genuinely like and appreciate the person for who they are, as they are. That's how I've always seen it. But I'll say this, and I'll give, I'll give an example. My view of that, I think people can say that that's how they see it too, but based on what I have seen in life, people can say that that's how they feel about it, but that is certainly not reflected through their actions. I will say, based on what I have seen over and over again, probably 90, 95% of people, maybe, they might agree with the first statement that I said. They might nod their heads and they'll think, yeah, that sounds good, you know, yeah, that's what it's all about. But the reality of the situation is they're just using people for one reason or another, uh, be that just uh, as uh, something to fill up time, something to keep you occupied, uh, something to, to get you this, that, or the other thing, to exploit someone financially, Oh yeah, this person's uh, this person's my friend. You know, works at uh, at this uh, venue, and I could get it. I could get free tickets because uh, this guy works there. You know, is that person really a friend, or is that person to you just a- an asset, so you could get free tickets? You see so much stuff like that, that this friend and that friend, blah blah blah. Really, the person is just a resource uh, that's being exploited oftentimes unknowingly. They'll think, oh yeah, this person appreciates me, whatever, sure, yeah, I'll help them out, I'll get, I'll get them, I'll get them into here, or I'll do this or that for them. Really, they're just thinking to themselves, yeah, I get free stuff from this guy, and uh, so on and so forth. This person does things for me. So, a lot of it is very, very selfish. And that's not to say that it is always one person exploiting the other person. A lot of the times it's one person is exploiting someone who's exploiting someone else who's exploiting and it just goes on and on and on. And people use each other. Now that's not to say that someone, if you're friends with someone, that uh, you shouldn't do uh, favors or whatever, but it's all within reason, of course. It's just, you try to look into things If, again, I'll use the analogy if someone works at some sort of performance venue and there's someone who you think of as a friend, but the only time this person ever talks to you and uh, starts being nice is when there's a concert coming up, put the pieces together and think, does the person really care about me as an individual? Do they care about uh, who I am, what I think, or do they care about the fact that I can get them free tickets? And a lot of the time, it's sadly the latter. And I think you see this so often that uh, people will think to themselves, will lie to themselves, friendship is this or that, but it's just one person using another person, and it cycles on endlessly. 
uh, to find individuals who are truly genuine, it's, uh, it's extremely, based on what I have seen anyway, it is extremely, extremely, exceptionally rare a thing. That, that's not to say that it doesn't exist. I know for a fact that it does exist. But I don't think that it's something very commonplace either. That's just my personal opinion. To give a personal example to, to back this up, I remember back when I was in high school, I thought I had friends. And if you had asked me, even up until I was in, let's say, my senior year of high school, oh, do you have, uh, you have friends? I'd say, yeah, I do. I actually have a bunch, yeah. And uh, I could list off probably at least a dozen, maybe more, different names. And again, if in that moment I were asked genuinely, are these your friends? I would say, yes, absolutely, because that's what I believed at the time. I thought, yeah, these guys are, are my friends. I'll associate with them. They'll, uh, you know, and, and, and that's that. Now, I, I, don't, I can't say that there is some sort of specific event that was a catalyst that made me realize the actual nature of the situation, because I can't say that there was. But at one point or the other, I just started thinking, and maybe it was just a gradual thing. Like I said, there wasn't any sort of event that just suddenly happened. But I just started realizing when I was uh, with these guys that, again, I had thought for years that these were my friends. I'm talking, you know, five or six years, I would uh, hang out with these guys, essentially. And I thought, yeah, these are friends. I think it was just, maybe it was just a gradual thing, but I just started realizing that when I was with them, I was always quiet, you know? I've never been an extremely talkative person, and I know it's kind of funny to say, being that I've been here at the microphone for six hours, practically, uh, but in social settings, I'm generally quiet. I, I stay to the side. I'm more of a, a listener and observer than I am an active participant. That's not to say that I don't have things to say. I just, a lot of the time, keep quiet. That's just in my nature. And, you know, so I, it didn't really surprise me. I wouldn't really say too much, but I would listen. But I started realizing, eventually, that more and more I started realizing whenever I would have something to say or to try to contribute to the conversation, uh, they would just talk over me. They wouldn't even uh, give me the, the, the time of day to listen to a thing that I had to say. Or if I had a problem or something personal I wanted to talk about, they would just blow it off and I uh, didn't want didn't to waste the time on it. Again, though, I thought that this was just normal. I just accepted it because I didn't really have anything to compare it to. Uh, but then I also made the connection that with uh, some of them, they would only talk to me. I, I began to realize the connection that whenever they would actually give me the time of day, after any sort of casual conversation, rarely directed my way, there would always be a request to go along with it. And for years, I just put up with it and I accepted it and I thought that it's just how it was, this is how it's supposed to be. 
Uh, but eventually I I came to realize, wait a minute, you know, you put the pieces together. I thought, I think these guys are just, they're just using me. I don't think they really care one single bit. And I finally decided to uh, to do a bit of a test. I thought, you know, what I'm going to do, because normally I would go out to lunch with these guys, I thought, all right, for the next few days, I'm just not going to show up. And I'm going to see if any of them even notice my absence. And uh, who knows, maybe they might, if they if they actually care, they might wonder, hey, where uh, where is he today? If I, Next time I see him, I'll ask him if everything's all right, you know, what, what's going on. So I uh, stopped going. No one even asked. No one asked one single bit. And another guy who would always ask about these certain requests, I just decided as a test to just pretty much essentially say, I'm sorry, I can't do this for you this time around. Never heard from him again after that. And I stopped going to these, uh, you know, I stopped hanging out with the other guys. Not a single one of them even noticed. Not a single one of them ever even asked why. They just didn't care. So that's when I realized that none of these people ever even cared in the first place. They never did. They were just using me. I was just a resource and a tool to them. And now I couldn't give them what they wanted. They couldn't benefit from my being there. So that's it. On to the next. But, you know, I don't... Those guys weren't... <laughs> villains or anything like that. These are most people. This is how most people are. But, you know, after that, I, I cut them all out of my life, every every single one of them. And I don't regret that. Actually, it was one of the best decisions I made. So in the end, while it was it was disappointing, of course it was disappointing to realize the nature of the situation... It was a relief as well that I was able... It felt, it felt freeing, in a way, to get these people out of my life. And at the same time, it made me realize... And you could see this for... See it as you see it. That's all I could say. For me, my interpretation, it made me realize... Because there are folks out there who are real, who are genuine, who are sincere, decent, good individuals... I believe that they are incredibly rare, but through that belief, it's only made me come to appreciate these people even more, and realize how special they truly are. That's the way I see it, and that is my absolute belief. Some people may say otherwise, but I think that a lot of people out there, yes, they are insincere. They are just there to get something out of you. Just to use you for this, that, or the other thing under the guise of friendship, which to them, maybe that's what it is. And if that's how they see it, that's how they see it. That's not how I see it. It's, it's a tough realization, though, but could be, it could be disheartening, disconcerting, even. But don't give up. You know, keep your head up. 
hang in there as best you can, and, and you never know. You never know what the future holds. It has yet to be written, so who can say? But just hang in there, and and that's just my two cents in that regard, based on just my philosophy and uh, some experiences in my life to, to back it up. Thank you for your question. All right, and taking a look at a few last pieces of feedback that are coming in. Katie in Eugene, Oregon, has a question. I've been watching your reviews for a few years now, and I've just recently gotten into the podcast and your broadcast. Anyway, listening to the broadcast, I'm curious as to what your taste in music is. Do you have a favorite time period of music? I appreciate all the work you do. Thanks for the entertainment from Katie. So thank you for your question there. So generally speaking, my favorite um, type of music anyway, uh, I like rock, uh, especially alternative, uh, punk, grunge, post-grunge even. I like all that sort of stuff. Uh, Decades-wise, though, I mean, I'll, I'll broaden things up. I mean, on an average day, I'll listen to a wide variety of music, generally from the 1960s, up until maybe the early 2000s. I I will say that I don't really care for much contemporary music. That's not that I explicitly hate all of it. There are a few recent songs that I like. Uh, But generally speaking, I'll listen to music from, again, the 1960s up until the early 2000s. And that's about it. Uh, If I were to even narrow it down more, my uh, two favorite decades would easily be the 1980s and uh, 1990s, music-wise. Uh, for those two decades, you could really broaden things out a bit, and uh, most music uh, from those decades I am just generally a fan of, so uh, big fans of that. I certainly still like the classic rock from the 60s and 70s, and I, that's just really my main, my main uh, focus, a lot of music almost of any genre, from the 1960s to the early 2000s. It's just a lot of the stuff after that gets a bit iffy. Um, still in the 2000s, even, and, and yeah, maybe even into the 2010s, a lot of alternative, maybe indie rock, pretty good. And uh, I would probably have a favorable view of. But most contemporary popular music just isn't for me. And I don't even listen to it, it's just not, it's not my thing. I will say one thing that's really, that really has um, expanded my music interest and preference is listening to the radio. As I scan around, I'll hear all sorts of stations from all over the world, and I'll hear all sorts of music that I never would otherwise. And that that's pretty good as far as music discovery goes. But my own broadcast, which takes listener music requests, uh, is best of all as far as music discovery goes, because every week, several times a week, I go through uh, many dozens, if not hundreds, of, of music requests, and I check out all these sorts of songs that, again, I would never otherwise even know of. And uh, I find so much good music that way. And then, of course, I play it on the air, and uh, I hope other listeners can uh, discover some good tunes as well. 
But most music I'm willing to give a chance, you know, see how it is. And uh, yes, I still have my preferences, but as far as it goes, I'll be willing to lend an ear to pretty much anything. And I can't say it's a guarantee whether or not I'd like it, but I'll certainly give it, give it that chance, you know. A good question. Thank you for asking. This one comes in from Penny, who writes... Just a few words of appreciation regarding your 12-year YouTube anniversary. I really enjoyed listening to the story of how it all started, and it was very touching to hear that, uh, hear what you had to endure regarding your YouTube channel just by being yourself and creating content that you enjoyed. If you threw in the towel, as you thought of doing many times, I never would have gotten to listen to your content while getting to know such a wonderful, charismatic gentleman as yourself. Thank you for staying the course. Your persistence, consistency, and endurance in creating content is admirable, and this is the key to your successful career. Your encouraging words about pursuing a passion or hobby in combination uh, with my love of music and listening to your radio show this past year has inspired me to start creating my own music with the Ableton Music software. I've always wanted to do something music-related and never took action. Granted, it'll take some time to learn, but I've taken the first steps and started a few weeks ago. A local DJ gave an intro class on creating songs on this software, and in addition to that, as luck would have it, Someone in my neighborhood was giving away a piano keyboard, still in excellent condition. I've wished to own this instrument for years now. So thank you for your encouraging words. It really means a lot to me, and I do hope other listeners out there will be inspired by your enthusiasm and encouraging words to pursue a creative passion. I admire who you are by staying true to yourself, and as I mentioned before, I wish you continued success in all your endeavors for many more years to come. You are much loved and appreciated. Now, regarding one of the parts of your fast food question, in reference to McDonald's, in my opinion, their gross profits will continue to grow, however, at a slower rate in the future due to some factors such as decreased quality, increased prices, some will say no to purchasing fast food at such a steep price. Supply chain delays folks seeking out healthy fast food options. However, I do not see them going out of business due to their solid business model, which is, as many already know, McDonald's franchises restaurants to individuals worldwide. According to a recent article, the franchisee applicant needs a minimum of 500000 in liquid assets to operate a restaurant and must pay a 45000 franchise fee in addition to royalties and rent. McDonald's generates revenue from real estate, they own the land and the buildings, and the franchisee makes money from selling burgers. As far as earthquakes go, nothing to report here. Montreal, Canada has had minor earthquakes, but I don't even remember any of the dates. I'm fortunate to live in an area that doesn't have major earthquakes. Keep up the good work. You are an inspiration to many. Take care from Penny. 
So thank you, Penny, for your thoughts there, and uh, I appreciate your regular listenership as well to the broadcasts. And uh, it, it's wonderful to see that uh, some of these programs were a bit of an inspiration uh, for you to at least start looking into making some music, and uh, I encourage you to just keep going for it and uh, make the most of it, have fun, keep at it, and you never know what's going to happen. So I think it's great that you're giving it a shot, you're going for it, and also, I mean, it's always great when you have these sorts of, of uh, fortuitous circumstances, for lack of a better word, uh, just like how you stumbled upon that keyboard there. You know, it's like you could almost take that as a little bit of a sign that uh, the, you know, this, is, this is my time to just go for it and uh, see what happens. And I wish you again the best of luck there. And likewise, as far as the uh, fast food goes, I think that's a good point that you mentioned. In terms of uh, places like McDonald's, yes, they make, they make a lot of money off of the franchises, you know, from the real estate itself. And uh, no matter what, they'll be making money off of that, regardless of whatever quality comes out of the specific restaurants. But uh, yeah, like you said, they're, just, they're drowning in money. They, they make so much. It's, uh, it's crazy, really. This comment comes in from an anonymous listener in Iowa saying, It's biking season, finally, in Iowa. Looking forward to a summer full of good VORW podcast content to zone out to while riding through corn and bean fields. Just wanted to give you a heads up, and it may be on my end. I haven't been able to connect to the radio show uh, the last couple of weekends through TuneIn. TuneIn just spins and buffers. Just wanted to let you know in case you've been told this by others. Have a good one. So thank you for your email. And you included a picture of your bike as well. So number one, I hope that uh, you have many an excellent time biking around the state of Iowa. Hope the weather winds up being, of course, delightful. And likewise, uh, so I, I would, and I don't want to say this definitively, but I have reason to believe the issue with the tune-in is probably on your end. I, I, I don't want to say that, like I said, definitively. The only reason I say that is because for the last several weeks, I have gotten numerous pieces of feedback from numerous listeners all tuned in on the TuneIn platform without incident. So no one else has reported that issue, that's just why I mentioned that, but, uh... You know, just let me know if it persists, and, uh, we'll go from there. Of course, there are other ways to listen in. I could certainly send you some other links and whatnot to catch the show via, so it's not the end of the world. But if it if it persists, uh, would you be able to send me another email, and then I'll get some alternate ways to listen your way. So thank you again for your question, or concern, I should say. Jonathan in Syracuse, New York. I'm writing this email in response to your posed question regarding declining fast food quality. I agree with you, and I assume many others, in that fast food is going downhill. I think it has been happening for decades, and I think it is being done solely for the sake of profits. 
I think that the problem is more far-reaching than just fast food, and that major corporations have become increasingly efficient at advertising and selling us low-quality goods, and it will only get worse over time. I work for a regional food chain, and I see what is happening, at least in my own workplace. They are only focused on sales and profit, with no regard for the actual humans working on and buying the goods. Quality has steadily been going down for years, and prices have steadily gone up. Decisions come from the top down, and when a customer asks why something changed, we just shrug and say we can't do anything about it. It leaves both the workers and customers feeling powerless and frustrated, but the company doesn't care as the money is flowing. Big data is a menace to society that is evolving so rapidly, and we, regular humans, don't have a chance of contending with it. Corporations have vast amounts of information about people, and with ever-improving AI tools to analyze the data, they have an unprecedented power of manipulation and coercion. Fast food companies know how low they can drop their quality and just how high they can raise their prices in order to maximize profits. So that is what they do. It is the only right way of doing business through the lens of capitalism, and if a business were to try to go in the opposite direction, they would be driven out by the competing restaurants. As they say, a system works exactly the way it was designed. So if we want to change, the whole system needs to change. I think the only solution to this problem is people voting with their wallets, but I don't expect much of a chance, given how things have trended over the last few decades. I've always thought it would be good to have some sort of consumer's union or organization so the people could decide what we want and what we're willing to pay for things, but I just don't know how that would really work. Anyway, just my two cents. Hope you're having a good day. Thanks for reading, Jonathan. Syracuse, New York. Feedback there on the decline. Oh, and here's another one. This one comes in from Neil. I agree with you about fast food getting worse for more money. And I think people like myself who are working professionals in their mid-30s are shifting focus on maintaining a healthier lifestyle. I love fast food, but I can notice the quality is so poor, my <laughs> so poor in my gut and a second gut punch for my wallet. Not only that, but it makes me feel a bit sluggish. Instead of Taco Bell, I think more people will begin to explore an option like Chipotle. For a few more bucks, you can uh, you can get some pretty fresh food. I also think more people will try to teach themselves how to cook at home. At the end of the day, I don't think fast food is in any trouble anytime soon. There is still a large population that can't afford to pay those extra bucks for a better meal, and they rely on the fast food. I also think they are seeing increases in business from being compatible for delivery via Grubhub and DoorDash. That's a whole new revenue stream.
Mobile apps are also bringing people back in the door. These apps, of course, offer plenty of deals and help maintain a cheaper option. Unfortunately, I think the quality of fast food will continue to decline. I hope not. We need a revolution, with revolution being in all caps. By the way, you should check out this HBO documentary called The Automat. It's about the original fast food of the 1920s. Take care from Neil. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for the uh, recommendation about the documentary, by the way. I'll have to look that up. It, it sounds cool. You know, because you think the fast food, it is a fairly recent phenomenon, at least as far as humanity and all that goes. I know, and I might be wrong here, a lot of the fast food chains that are big today emerged in like the 1950s and 60s. But some of those are, and I'm really thinking of two places, White Castle and Crystal Burger. I know those places were around back in the 1920s. I know especially White Castle was with the little slider type burgers. That stuff was around for, I mean, now close to a hundred years. So I would imagine in that documentary, they'd probably talk about those establishments, but either way, it would be cool to uh, check it out. So thank you for bringing that to my attention there. It's appreciated. I'm old enough to remember several decades of fast food. And despite many negative changes, I find my usual Taco Bell order of three simple beef tacos and the required, likely toxic, Baja Blast to be of decent and perhaps most importantly consistent quality. They have a particular mechanical precision of impossibly thinly sliced lettuce and cheese, which when combined with the shell and finely ground beef, does taste very good, and pretty much the same as it always has. Perhaps sticking to the basics is the key. My pickiness as an eater usually stops me from trying any of their newer items. I also believe Pizza Hut is still of decent quality when consumed in the restaurant itself. Once it's brought home, the enjoyment seems to go down quick. Regarding earthquakes, I was, in a uh, I was in a small earthquake on the New Madrid fault line. I was sitting on the couch, and my assumption was that a car had hit the house. One quick but hard jolt, and that was it. Thanks for the enjoyable programming. Best regards, Jack. Thank you, Jack. Last call for feedback. Last call... Last call. Let's take a look and see what we see. If there is anything. I, I, I don't think I'm going to show this on the, on the air because there wasn't any permission given, but it's amusing. It says, my adult kids showed me your videos. I'm on a Whole Foods diet due to a health issue my husband has, but I've been enjoying... Uh, watching your videos to get a little vicarious fast food into my life, and my cats love you. So uh, a picture was included of two cats gathered around the computer screen, 
and my video, the one about the boneless wings, is up. And uh, the two cats, very fluffy, white cats, very fluffy, both intently uh, staring at the video. One of them is kind of laying there across the keyboard, looking up, and the other one is uh, standing, or sitting, sitting upright, I should say, and is looking, but this, they, they are intently watching the channel. That's funny. Thanks for sharing that. I'm just scrolling through some other emails just to see if anything else came in, but honestly, I think this has actually been... I think I very efficiently pretty much cleared out the inbox, which is a good thing. That's why this show is as long as it is, because this is the big catch-up program to just get to everything. That's why it's been hours and hours, but that's good. I'm just going through page after page, but it looks like I've actually pretty efficiently, again, gotten to them all. I'll make the rounds one more time. Because there might be one or two more emails. Hiding, who's to say, right? But so far, nothing's coming up. Of course, if I forgot any, easily be able to, uh, you could just resend them like was done in this show. That's fine with me. Now, a lot of this is just shortwave stuff. You know, I'm just kind of going through them. Like, this is a reception report from Austria that came in. And then right after that, a reception report from Spain. All right, this one comes in from a listener who goes by the name Canon, with a K. I have indulged in your exquisite content for a while now, around 2016 to be exact, and I'm a big fan. I've just ordered one of your fine pieces of merchandise, and I'm quite giddy at the mere thought of wearing this article of clothing. I hope, no, I pray you have a joyous day review, brah. With regards from Canon, or maybe it's Canon. Either way, thank you for uh, for your your feedback there, and uh, I hope the merchandise is most enjoyable. You know, obviously it's from a third party provider, Teespring, and uh, either way, I hope it's to your liking. I should mention if it's if there's any issue with it, please just mention that with Teespring, I really haven't any control as to uh, as to the quality. So if someone, you know, says, oh, I don't like the way that the shirt fits, there's nothing I can do about it. It's just, you know, the, they're a third-party service. So just bring up any grievances with Teespring, or whatever the name of the... I, I still think of them as Teespring, and uh, they should get it resolved pretty quickly. But uh, I really hope that there's no need for that. A lot of people are very happy with the product, and uh, I hope it's I hope it's to your liking. Chris sends in an email saying, 
I'm just, I just hope there's going to be a new podcast. So indeed there is, and you're in it. So no worries there, Chris. They are sporadic. And it's, it's why I say that there's never any sort of set schedule. But, yeah, I try to, I try to do what I can and get these shows done. I guess when they happen, essentially. Thank you for asking, though. KP. Question for podcast. Okay, let's see what this is. Hey, John, I was recently watching a few of your recent videos. As a former New Yorker myself, I've noticed that your accent from years ago was much heavier than now. Was this something you worked on in speech, or was this a natural progression? Just curious, from KP. Thanks for your question. That's a good one. All right. I've, to I've told this story before, but it's something that gets asked, and uh, since we're getting to the end of the show, I'll tell it again. It's, it's an odd story. And I guess there's no really good way to verify this. There is, but I didn't even know if this still exists. There was a cassette tape that I had recorded back in maybe 2006 or seven or so that would... Anyway, so here here's the story. I don't know how or why this happened. When I learned to talk, when I began to enunciate... Now, everyone's just going to immediately say speech impediment. Maybe. I don't know. I really... I don't have an answer for you. You know, it is what it is either way, but... When I first began to speak and talk, I developed a totally non-rhotic accent. It should be stressed. I did not live in England or... I, I, I was born and raised in New York. And my parents, neither of them had any sort of accent, just neutral American accent, perhaps with a tad of New York accent as well. No one in my family did. Nothing. But when I began to uh, speak, and I learned how to speak, I spoke... Well, think of it, th think of it this way. You know, imagine, like, a British schoolboy, you know, at, like, a preppy school, how he would sound. That's what I sounded like back then. And... It wasn't like there was trouble understanding me. All the words were said just fine. But oddly, it was just with this very distinct pronunciation, inflection, and uh, accent. This lasted from, again, when I first started speaking all the way through elementary school and through most of middle school as well. I vividly remember 
in middle school because the way that it worked with my school district there were numerous elementary schools but then there was one middle school so when you made the jump to go into middle school you would have a bunch of new classmates because all of these elementary schools would now be consolidated into one middle school and i remember during the first few days of of middle school when there were all these new classmates around me they kept asking me i was asked a million times by pretty much every other person are you british i'd say no you know it's because to me mind you when you think of your own voice you don't really i don't know your voice just is what it is you know it's like when you're talking to someone it's like but then when you hear your own voice in a video or an audio recording you know how it just it's, it sounds different maybe you don't really like hearing it or whatever it might be that's uh that's kind of how it was for me so it was like i wasn't really aware that my voice sounded as it did uh, because you know my folks didn't uh raise it as an issue i was understood and uh, it was accepted it wasn't anything that was tried to uh to be dismissed uh, it was just how i sounded uh, so you know it was just kind of weird when all these people were asking me if i'm british and i kept thinking you know no i'm not why why would you really think that you know it's it's just you know no i was born and raised right here because i hadn't really heard my voice all that much mind you this was before smartphones and all of that uh, but i do remember at one point in 2007 or so i had this uh boombox and some cassette tapes and i did some audio recording with that and my voice you know i did listen to some of those cassette tapes and yeah i sounded like a like a british uh, schoolboy for lack of a better word exactly that but it didn't bother me it was just kind of you know cuz so so seldom did i hear my own voice it was just an interesting thing but eventually what happened with time of course you know we sometimes as we become teenagers get a little older we sometimes become a bit more self-conscious and one thing that i became self-conscious about was my voice and i began realizing that you know the way that i sound is not normal at least in comparison to my peers so in 2010 really 2009 2010 and then especially in 2011 and 2012 i deliberately suppressed my natural accent and inflection and i instead decided to take upon what i would describe as like a working class new york accent you know something that you might imagine i don't know some garbage man in the city sounding like so 
I deliberately began to very strongly emphasize certain things. And it's like you could especially see that it still lingers on, you know, to an extent to this day. But there was a time like the word dog, it would be, you know, dog. <laughs> you know, I would really, I would go all out with that. You know, there were many other examples of that as well. But uh, that was actually artificial. It just so happened that the YouTube channel and all of that, which finally started recording everything, uh, began in the midst of that. So, I took upon this New York accent and really drilled it in for years and years. Now, for people who don't know any of that, of course you're going to see the videos from back then, and you're going to see this much heavier New York accent, and you're going to think, that's just my natural way of speaking. But that isn't so. That was actually all artificial. Now, it gets to a point, of course, where you can hammer it in enough that it just becomes second nature, and then essentially it becomes your actual voice, your actual accent. So, I hammered it in, and uh, was essentially able to dismiss, after years and years of doing so, my original non-rhotic, you know, more British-esque accent. But what changed, because then, of course, you, you observed correctly that over the years, the New York accent has again gotten a bit more subtle. So, it got to a point, I would say around 2017, if I had to take a guess. I, I stopped thinking about my voice first around 2015. But I didn't really do anything. But finally, around 2017, I just made the decision that, you know what? Why did I care so much about the way I sounded? Why? You know, I, I just... It was just one of those thoughts that I had one night where I thought to myself, why? Why did I... Why did I care so much that my voice was different from those of uh, my peers? Why did I care... Why did I let that bother me so much? You know, where I... I forced my voice to be a way that it really wasn't and then drilled it in, and then for years and years tried to maintain that. I thought, you know, just forget it. It's a facade. That's what it is. It's a facade. So in 2017, I decided, you know, I'm just going to speak as I speak, and I'm just going to let the words come out however they do, whether that winds up being permanently in the New York accent that I put on, whether the original inflection comes back, or if it's a mixture of the original inflection along with the New York accent, 
and things just kind of randomly come out one way or the other, sometimes with great variance, so be it. And uh, just let it happen. So that's precisely what I did. And I just stopped caring. I said, no, forget it. You know, my voice is my voice. And uh, I'm not going to make any effort for it to try to, uh, to come out a certain way. Sometimes when I'm at the microphone, you know, especially in the introductions uh, of both really the videos and the audio stuff that I do, I just try to project very clearly and uh, concisely. But aside from that, pronunciations and all of that, it, it just is what it is. So the reason why the New York accent has gotten weaker with time is because it was just an acquired thing, and it is just fading with time. Now my voice is kind of going back to whatever natural baseline there is. And uh, that's why at, at, at this point in time, it's just a bit of everything. And it really is a, a, an honest mix of uh, all sorts of things. I just speak freely here at the microphone. I don't plan out how a certain word is going to sound. It just comes out as it does. It, it really wouldn't even surprise me if, a, if the same word is pronounced different times or in different ways over the duration of this show because uh, I just let it come out however it does, which uh, leads to what you hear right now. But that's the story, and it's, you know, people, again, can say what they want, I know it's, it, it, it is strange to think about why did it, again, I know people will say speech impediment, but, you know, people will think, why did it, uh, why did it sound that way from day one? I don't know. I don't have an answer why I began speaking that way. God, I wish I could find that cassette tape. I really wish I could. And it might still be, I don't even know if it exists anymore. It really would be something if I could find it, though, because as far as I'm concerned, that is the only recording of my voice back when it was that way, but like I said, it was just so... It would be unrecognizable, you know, it'd be like you'd be listening to, to a different person. But that indeed was me. And it wasn't like some sort of speech therapy thing, it was just something that I was doing for fun, because I had this old boombox, I had some cassette tapes that I could record over, and uh, I thought it was just fun to record little things and just kind of screw around and play radio, and uh, that precisely was what I was doing, but most of the time I was just re-recording over stuff that I'd already recorded, and uh, that tape, I have no idea probably the last time I even listened to it was 2007, 2008. Might, um, I mean, the tape might exist, I don't know, it might be in the basement somewhere in a shopping bag with 50 other cassette tapes, and I'd have to play each one individually, and then take it from there. But I don't know, that thing might be gone. That would be, that might very well be some true lost media, and that is irrecoverable if it's not where I, where the only place I think it could be. If it's not there, that thing's gone.
there's no no doubt about it that thing is gone and being that you know it hasn't even surfaced in 16 years i don't know i have my doubts that it'll ever exist anywhere but my memory at this point but anyway that's a good question thanks for asking it kp comes in from aaron who writes since bigfoot is one of the most mentioned cryptids on your show i wanted to inform you that i have been a bigfoot fan since I first became obsessed with the paranormal and cryptids as a young kid. I have since reignited my spark uh, for Bigfoot, and have went down the rabbit hole of the Patterson film and its many in-depth analysis over the years. The more I look into it, the more I believe the footage is 100% legitimate. So far, no one has been able to officially debunk the footage and list it as a hoax. This includes teams of anthropologists, zoologists, and video photographers. Even the man who claimed to have worn the Bigfoot costume has recanted his story. And interestingly, uh, there is a Bigfoot conference coming to the Ocala World Equestrian Center next month, or I guess this month, April 2023. Uh, so first, to interject, because you do have more, uh, I feel the same way about the Patterson-Gimlin film uh, I know it's a controversial thing, which is kind of... I, I think the people that have made it six hours into this show aren't going to be the ones to really pitch a, thi a fit over this, uh, because they've been patient enough to listen to all of this. But, uh, yeah, my feelings about the Patterson-Gimlin film are the same. Uh, I really, if you ask me, I think it's legitimate. That's uh, That's my opinion. I'm with you. Uh, when you see it at first, you know, when you have that, that surface level, it's it's one of those things, my perception of it anyway, is if you have a surface level understanding of it, you're likely to have one conclusion. Then if you look into it a little bit more, you might have another conclusion. And then if you look into it even more, you're going to have yet another conclusion. So I'll, I'll give this as an example. With the Patterson-Gimlin film, number one, if you just see a still photograph from the film, uh, most people are going to have a very definitive reaction. They're either going to say, uh, that's a Sasquatch, or B, that's uh, fake. And then if you start doing a little bit of surface-level research, people will uh, start having their doubts about the footage. They'll read up about the background of uh, Patterson and all of that. They'll... Uh, probably see that clip of Bob Hieronymus who claimed to have been in the suit and this, that, and the other thing. And, and then they're going to get a bit skeptical. They're going to say, oh yeah, this is a hoax. They faked it, etc. But then if you really go on those deep dives, which I have as well, uh, you start realizing there's so many holes in that story if you want to try to say that it's fake. And uh, then the more you look into it, the more things just start coming out uh, that you realize, yeah, I don't, I don't think that this is a costume uh, that I'm seeing at all. And I, too, have spent so much time researching this, every technicality of the video, the circumstance, I mean, you name it. And after all of that, after going into a huge deep dive in it, my conclusion, personally, I don't say this as a fact, I say it as an opinion, that I think that's legitimate footage. You know, I don't think that they're everywhere. I don't think that they're some sort of interdimensional being. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if their populations are small, diminishing, and uh, 
are only getting more and more scarce, but it wouldn't surprise me if they're out there. And, uh, and that's my conclusion. Now, continuing, you say, think about how some animals are extremely intelligent, such as dolphins, crows, etc., and how most predators can elude humans encroaching upon their territories. It would only stand to reason that a large ape-like creature uh, could be intelligent enough to keep itself hidden from mankind. Again, interjecting, yes, if the intelligence is there, if they primarily reside in remote areas, if the populations are small enough to begin with, I too uh, feel the same way. Continuing, I will share a couple of videos I found on YouTube you may uh, be interested in, as well as a video of a possible skunk ape, since we tend to have those here in Florida and other southern states. And also, for a good laugh, I would recommend checking out the This Paranormal Life podcast episode about the man who punched Bigfoot, which I'll link to this email as well. I've also included a link to the Wikipedia page for the Gigantopithecus, a giant ape which some theorize survived extinction. And uh, there are some good bits of extra information in the comments of the linked videos as well. So hope all is well from Aaron. So thank you, Aaron, for uh, your feedback there. I'm on the same page as you, and I, I see it the same way. If you don't listen already, I, I would like to point you in the direction of a uh, podcast called Sasquatch Chronicles. Take it um, case by case. There's about a thousand episodes of there, and some of them are going to be more realistic than others. But uh, I, would, I would highly recommend giving that a listen. It's just people giving their experiences. Uh, there's also a smaller channel out there, though it's growing, called uh, Sasquatch Theory. That's another pretty good one. And, uh, of course, I would recommend the an- analysis videos from Bob Gimlin, who uh, I feel does an excellent job as well. Uh, as far as the Sasquatch Chronicles podcast goes... Uh, there Again, there are so many episodes there, so you could just sort them through uh, by popularity and uh, listen to some of those. Uh, you could also find plenty of threads on various forums and uh, on places like Reddit, etc., where people kind of list out the highlight episodes, the best ones, and maybe start making your way through that. You know, there's going to be some episodes that I have my doubts on. I'm not one of those people that sees every encounter and thinks this person is telling the truth. I I come into this uh, objectively and with a bit of skepticism. So for instance, there was one guy who said that his cousin was living in Mississippi and was sitting on his front porch by himself when, and I should add that this, this alleged cousin was living by himself, so where this guy even got the information from, who knows, and said that his cousin was sitting on the front porch alone by himself, in a place where he lived by himself, and a group of Sasquatch uh, came onto the porch and killed him, and then stole his television. And uh, I thought, so you're telling me, number one, that the guy who this allegedly happened to is dead and was the only witness to this, but he's dead, so how, how are you even forming this narrative? And then you expect me to believe that the Sasquatch stole the guy's TV 
I just I thought, I think, number one, this is a load of BS. And, uh, you know, you get these ridiculous stories like that, or you get this person that was saying, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, it's keeping track of of my routine. And it's just this weird stuff. And it's like, I'm not really inclined to believe these sorts of stories, or if it just gets so... If this one guy claims that he's seen every single cryptid known to man, and uh, but has absolutely nothing to back it up with, but then you get these other stories from from reputable individuals, be that experienced hunters, outdoorsmen, even scientists, uh, law enforcement, etc. They see things, and uh, you know you can't really explain them, but you could also tell in people's voices that uh, it's more likely than not that. They experienced what they experienced. So especially as far as the Sasquatch Chronicles go, just, you know, look for the recommended episodes. There were a few out there that um, will really make you think. And uh, thank you for the resources you send my way, by the way. It's great hearing from you, Aaron. And I wish you the best. And with that, that's all that I have for you in today's program. Thank you all for listening in. And until next time, be safe, be healthy. And I wish you all the very best. Take care. This is VORW.